Um, we read the comments religiously, so make sure you share your questions, your thoughts. Um, you know, am I overdoing it with my tweets and my concerns with China, or um, do you share those concerns? I was actually looking at, um, and while we're waiting for everyone else to join, and, and before introducing our panelists, uh, go on YouTube and write nuclear threat prank. Not sure if any of you have seen it. It was trending for a while, apparently. I saw it by accident as I was researching, um, uh, you know, the, the topic. And people just have that um, nuclear threat recording play on TV, uh, making it seem real. And it was back since North Korea days. So back then it was like a, a recording saying that North Korea it launched ballistic missiles on the US and now it's Russia. I, don't th- I haven't seen any Chinese ones. And then seeing people's reaction is fascinating. It's crazy. Seeing people's reaction when they see the recording, they believe it. Like this, the first one I saw is like an old dad. He believes the recording that ballistic missiles were, were, were launched by Russia. That's the first one I know. And they were headed to three cities. One of them is his city. He's like, oh shit. While listening to it, he's still putting the dishes in the dishwasher. And, he's, and then he goes, afterwards he goes, I'm going to go have my cereal. Almost all the videos, people just didn't react as you'd expect, like they just didn't give a shit. They just couldn't take it seriously. It's just fascinating to see. Um, obviously, these were pranks, but I'm like, if we do face such a threat, like when Hawaii had that uh, a false alarm, you remember that message that went out to residents in Hawaii about a nuclear threat? Nobody was prepared. No one had any clue what to do. And he stories of people just sitting on the beach waiting to die. Um, so it's just uh, fascinating. It's concerning. And uh, I don't want to be the person that's kind of, you know, trying to spread fear um, without, you know, having reasons to do so. So we'll have this debate and see if it's even worth being this concerned. But I'll kick it off. Um, Samuel, um, welcome to the stage. Um, We've got Victoria on stage as well. I've got Nicholas. We have uh, Angelo and we have Vivian. We'll let them all introduce themselves. We have more panelists coming in. Anyone in the audience trying to request to speak that was that you're meant to be on the panel, please do DM me. And for the audience, make sure you put comments bottom right corner and retweet the space. But let's kick it off with AllSource. AllSource, um, love a quick introduction, man. Very brief, 30-second introduction. And maybe the, the first question to answer um, uh, as we kick off the space is, are you concerned about a potential conflict between the U.S. and China? Because I know that's a topic you're, you're, pretty, uh, you're pretty passionate about. Are you concerned and... Uh, and, uh, and why, if so? Yeah, so uh, again, thanks, Mario, for letting me co-host. So just for everybody here, my name is, uh, my name is All Source News. I'm a Twitter account that focuses uh, specifically on cartel violence in Mexico, Latin American affairs, and drug trade organized crime. Uh, I'm also in contact with a lot of uh, open source intelligence accounts that focus globally on a lot of issues uh, across the world to include China and Taiwan. Uh, although my focus Twitter wise is uh, cartels, I do have, uh, I do try to focus as much as possible in, in international affairs as well. And so Mario, for, to your comment of, you know, concern of uh, China and Taiwan and China, the U S right. Is, are we kind of in this concern of world war three? Uh, I wouldn't go that far. I think you are seeing the lines kind of getting harder and harder. And I think the Chinese spy balloon incident probably did not help. Um, I think there's an acknowledgement on both sides, both the Chinese and the U S that this era of, you know, peaceful cooperation um, at least 
is over and there is this notion of competition between both, but I don't think you can automatically translate that into, you know, World War III or even a Cold War. You do see the U.S. and China in many ways still have significant diplomatic negotiations, diplomatic relations, try to coordinate a lot of international uh, affairs, so be it climate change, uh, uh, the Middle East, etc. So I think we're in an era of, you know, in the U.S., I think, the, the Trump administration started it with with strategic competition and the Biden administration kind of continues the same lines in which both sides, the U.S. and China, are aware of the geopolitical threat that each country presents. But at the same time, they're also very econom- uh, economically very integrated. Right. And, and there is a lot of diplomatic relations between both countries. Um, so not I'm not concerned yet, but I obviously the biggest flashpoint and the biggest unknown is, is Taiwan. Right. That can. A Chinese invasion of Taiwan would all but guarantee a U.S. intervention, and that could lead to a war. That will that will lead to a war. Uh, both sides have have openly stated their intentions in Taiwan. China has said that they are uh, determined to reunify with Taiwan by any mm. means necessary. And the Biden administration and Biden specifically, President Biden, has made it abundantly clear that if China invades Taiwan, he would respond militarily. So that is where I think we would have to be concerned. Uh, but to end that point on this. A Chinese invasion of Taiwan would not be a surprise attack, right? We would have a long time knowing something's going up, the military buildup the Chinese would do. And in that time, hopefully, hopefully, diplomacy can rule over. Uh, but I think Russia and Ukraine kind of undermines uh, the notion that any uh, diplomacy can always. So I dropped out. Um, Samuel, I want to go to you. would love a quick introduction. Real pleasure to have you on stage. All sorts, by the way, you dropped out. I know you're back now. I uh, would love to, 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 to have an introduction. And then you're kind of following up on all sources point. You know, he made the point that globalization, that was an argument made for, for years. Global, globalization and, and how interconnected we are, um, makes it very, um, very unlikely for wars to break out with what was the saying like any any country that has a mcdonald's has never been to war they've never no, no country that has mcdonald's has been into war with another country with mcdonald's kind of making the same point that uh, uh, all source made globalization prevents wars but we're seeing the narrative we're seeing the importance of taiwan with microchip manufacturing we're going to talk about the importance of microchips for, for the you know this is like the new oil for the world and and um there's a there's like a, a, a kind of a cold war happening in that industry um, with the U.S. arguably winning that war, but we'll, we'll make that discussion or that battle. Uh, but we'd love a quick overview, Samuel, on your thoughts. Are my concerns um, valid and do you share them? If so, why? If not, why? All right. Yeah, thank you. It's been great, it's great to be here. Just to introduce myself, uh, I'm actually a specialist who works on great power competition with a focus on Russia. I just uh, have written a couple of books about uh, Russian foreign policy. The first one that just came out last month called Russia in Africa. And the second one that's coming out on the 13th of April called Putin's War in Ukraine for Hearst and Oxford University Press. I got my degree doctorate in international relations at the University of Oxford in 2021. And now I'm working at the Royal United Services Institute, so RUSI in London, as well as working as a consultant for uh, various uh, government agencies in the public and private sector. So yes, just an overview of who I am. Now, with respect to the uh, question at hand, I mean, I think this is an extremely important question, absolutely, with all the focus right now, obviously, on Russia's invasion of Ukraine, the uh, looming threat of a U.S.-China confrontation has been largely uh, overlooked by the uh, mainstream media and also by a lot of uh, policymakers. But I think that 
I think it's too soon to say that we're moving on the path towards uh, World War Three. I think that, as you said earlier, globalization is an effective protector against this. Obviously, there's so much more in terms of integration between the U.S. and Chinese economies for everything in terms of trade and debt and uh, other factors that would prevent, you know, the kind of ability to isolate China that we've seen attempt to take place with Russia. Even if Russia can only be isolated from the collective West and not necessarily from the collective non-West, it would be pretty impossible to do that in the case of China. So that's just a a general argument. And, uh, yeah, I think that, you know, the... uh, the risk of China becoming increasingly aggressive in Taiwan would probably come if it feels that its peaceful development model is somehow under threat. Obviously, we should be paying close attention to the fact that the Chinese GDP has declined to 3% annual growth. We're seeing now the demographic decline really start to kick in after the COVID pandemic. 40 million people already have shrunk from the workforce since 2020. That's an interesting statistic. And uh, we're seeing the Belt and Road Initiative, with the exception of the MENA region, largely uh, stall. As, all, as the ongoing uh, uncertainties also about the uh, ability of countries, particularly in Africa, sub-Saharan Africa, to pay back uh, debts and to return those. So China's means of projecting soft power, economic power, and the appeal of its governance model somehow deteriorates, the economy inside gets weaker, then the Chinese Communist Party might appear more vulnerable, and that could lead Xi Jinping and the Chinese Communist Party to ratchet up tensions in the Indo-Pacific region, and escalate and test the foundations of a confrontation. So I think the biggest risk to of a U.S.-China confrontation right now is not necessarily anything that the U.S. and China is doing right now, but the fundamental indicators of China's uh, geopolitical power, both the economic, the military, and also soft power. We should not ignore the, the role of soft power in all of this. I think that the fact that the U.S. and China are still holding dialogue on a number of issues is encouraging, and that does mitigate the uh, Cold War idea like um, uh, what the previous uh, speaker just said. But it's also important to keep in mind that we're finding it increasingly hard to compartmentalize the uh, regional crises, like the Taiwan issue, from other issues like climate change. You saw, for example, with Nancy Pelosi's visit to Taiwan, there was a cessation of dialogue announced by China on a whole variety of issues that would, uh, that would were, were entirely unrelated to Indo-Pacific security, including the environment, including some of those. So we need to make sure, at least for the American side, whatever we can do, to make sure that that, that that compartmentalization remains in place. Because when it's not there, that's very dangerous in terms of an escalatory spiral. So that's just that one point I want to make. And finally, the other thing we should watch for is that, yes, I do agree that there's a bipartisan consensus now about confronting China, and the semiconductor war is definitely a concern. We should also be looking at the actions of European countries and European partners with regards to this. There's always been a feeling, at least, you know, maybe the French have been taking a bit more of a a more hawkish view in recent years, but the Germans in particular have always been more accommodationist towards China, much like the way they were towards Russia with Nord Stream. Even Britain at times, right? The, under David Cameron, they were talking about a new golden age in Anglo-Chinese relations. You know, they, they were, they were, there was generally a division between Europe and the United States on Chinese policy that was enduring and that sharpened with some of Trump's unilateral uh, policies. Now that gap does seem to be uh, potentially easing over the fact that there's concerns of a China arming Russia and Ukraine. Obviously, if that were to happen, it would ease much more. But even regardless, we're seeing some compliance from Western uh, allies and partners on 5G, on semiconductors. Look what the Netherlands has been doing recently, for example. There's a greater convergence between the Americans and the Europeans that does move us towards more of a Cold War interblock conflict. Not necessarily a hot war, World War III, but more of an interblock conflict. That's something to watch uh, going forward. 
on the flip side, this might be all a red herring. If China doesn't arm Russia and Ukraine, and that that issue kind of fades from the headlines, it's possible that we could be seeing uh, an influx of European leaders visiting China between now and the middle of the year. That was also being reported by the Chinese media and now some Western media outlets as well. So it's unclear whether this U.S.-European convergence is uh, real or whether it's going to ultimately... Can I ask you one quick question? Before we go to Nicholas, I've just got one quick question for you. Yeah. Uh, th- then what will happen? Just a, it's a very basic question. What will the outcome? What could the outcome be with Taiwan? Because both countries are just very adamant with their position. China will support Taiwan. Will will use military military force to reunite Taiwan. The U.S. will support Taiwan militarily. Is it all about microchips? Is it is it more strategy? You know, because of the Taiwan Straits. What's the reason? But what's more importantly? What other solutions could there be? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, obviously, I think, yeah, one of the obvious solutions would probably be, you know, I think the prevention of this kind of complete uh, interblock uh, divisions that we're seeing, you know, between the U.S. and Europe versus China, like those kind of block confrontations of that scale and that consistency combined with the, the needless militarization of the Indo-Pacific region. It's one thing offering allies and partner security guarantees and recognizing the legitimate concerns and doing normal business transactions in terms of arms by not provoking the situation too much. And also, yeah, not compartmentalizing, compartmentalizing other, other issues of dialogue from the issue of Taiwan. That was the other point that I made. And also with military assistance. We have to see what kind of military assistance is going to be. If it's a military assistance where the Americans are guaranteeing themselves to put boots on the ground, that's one thing. Or if it's more like what we're seeing right now, you know, the uh, F-16 modernizations that we're seeing in the Taiwanese Air Force over the past few decades kicking off, the U.S. breathing munitions for those planes, that kind of thing. If it's a Ukraine plus style uh, Western uh, intervention on behalf of Taiwan, so starting from a higher baseline and going more escalatory, but not a direct boots on the ground confrontation, then we might be able to avoid a nuclear war, World War III. But if the American security defense guarantee means, like you know, intervening like we did in South Korea back in uh, the 1950s, right. then we're looking at something something different. So that's just an right, important well, clarification. I think we need to get from the American side about what a military response will likely be, okay. and that needs to be discussed more in the current context, particularly now that we've seen such an expansive intervention in Ukraine. Yeah, so go to Nicholas real quick. I mean, look, I, I think Samuel's implying this same sort of uh, rapport that we had during the Cold War. Uh, I think there, there's several scholars like Robert Art, uh, John Dullery, who use this, this same metaphor we used in the Cold War of the dance between the U.S. and China now, where a lot of the tension is posturing, uh, maybe implying something colder, not necessarily this hotter thing. But I don't know. Tensions seem to be pretty high. Nicholas, give us your take here. What is happening? Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm, I'm Nick Schill. I'm the former chief software officer for the Air Force and Space Force. And I was uh, in the Pentagon for, for the last uh, four years. Uh, before that, I, I founded 12 companies. So I'm, a, I'm an entrepreneur and uh, a tech guy, but also a, a cyber guy. And so I, I, before my time at, at DOD, I spent uh, two years at DHS as the uh, a special advisor for cyber. And I can tell you, I've seen firsthand what's going on when it comes to uh, the cybersecurity uh, posture of the uh, uh, critical infrastructure in the U.S., particularly when it comes to the grid and water supply, and I can tell you it's uh, it's a despicable uh, state. And I, I wouldn't be surprised if if the grid right now in the U.S. is at least forty uh, percent uh, owned by by China. 
in in terms of uh, the ability to push a button and, and shut it off. So wait, you know, wait, when you when, say when you look, own, Nicholas, what do you mean by own? I mean, we, we're cyber. It's, it's it's at risk. Cyber like floppy own. disk at risk or own. No, I mean, you know, not not financially own. I mean, you know, uh, obviously they have uh, had access to it through cyber means, and they are dormant inside of the stack to be able to, should they decide to invite to invade Taiwan, which you know I think is going to happen within five years, um, they they could potentially shut down, you know, as as high as forty percent of the U.S. grid, which obviously would would force us to uh, redirect our attention to <clears throat> to the United States and have. Our military, you know, go um, make sure that we get power back in the in the country. And I can tell you, every uh, war room exercise we've done at the Pentagon, within 24 hours of China, uh, you know, attacking Taiwan, the U.S. loses all communications, uh, which obviously is exactly what happened, you know, with Russia and in Ukraine. And as you know, uh, not being able to communicate is already. Uh, the beginning of the end. And of course, when you start adding, uh, cyber means, and of course, uh, China has been at war with the United States, whether we realize it or not, uh, for 20, 25, 30 years, uh, they were able to, of course, invade U.S. schools and, uh, steal IP across U.S. companies for, for many years. Uh, what you see in terms of activity and finally, you know, we're declassifying a lot of that information. We used not to be able to talk about it, but you see, the FBI director and many of the U.S. agencies finally admitting what's been going on for many years, uh, which is Ray China stealing IP and, of course, hacking U.S. companies. Uh, you, you've seen what they've been able to do, you know, stealing uh, all the F-35 uh, capabilities and building their equivalent, you know, jet. But you've seen that across pretty much the entire industry. And so, you know, China has been leading in hypersonic quantum compute, uh, machine learning, of course. And as you know, the nation that's going to be leading in machine learning will be uh, controlling the world. And this is where so, the, yeah. the battle for microchips comes in um, that we're seeing behind the scenes. Um, I, I'd go, if you don't mind also, so I do want to jump just to give the um, – uh, the new speakers, we do have Victoria, Miles, and Vivian. Of course, we have Jim, Slayman, our regulars. Uh, but Miles, I'd love to go to you. We'd love a quick introduction, and maybe you can give us an overview for the audience. And we're trying to kind of frame everything for the audience before we start digging deep um, and trying to see you know, what what um, you know what various outcomes we could have, peaceful outcomes and, and uh, non-peaceful outcomes, and if war breaks out, what could happen, and also kind of geeks out over you know war games and, and kind of discussing what could happen if China and the U.S. Are, uh, get into a war. Um, so, Miles, I would love a quick introduction and then anything you'd like to add to the discussion. But more importantly, the question about microchips. Not sure if there's something you could, uh, something you, you, you know a lot about, but I know it just plays a key part in the tensions we're seeing between the U.S. and China. Well, you know, I think it was uh, interesting what Nicholas just said on emerging tech because <clears throat> a lot of what we know about the history of warfare uh, is about to be changed. Uh, it's, it, you know, we're, we're entering, you know, whatever, however you want to characterize it when you think of the history of warfare, but we're entering a new era where we're going to have to write new rules and it's not going to be about material power and arms. It's going to be about a different type of armament, armament. And when Nick was talking about, you know, preparations in the homeland, I would have to associate myself with his comments. So, you know, by way of quick introduction, 
uh, have spent a number of years working in the national security community and the executive branch on Capitol Hill uh, ended the Trump administration as chief of staff at, at DHS. And I would agree with Nicholas that the United States homeland is woefully unprepared for a conflict with China. So however you're trying to factor in the likelihood of war with China, uh, one of those factors has got to be, is it beneficial to us to enter that full frontal conflict? And from a homeland security perspective, uh, right now, I would say it's very much not beneficial to enter that. Now, that there's a different value judgment about whether you should exert military force to rein in an autocratic regime whose ultimate goal is likely to see the world in its own image and to spread its influence. It's a different value judgment. But the temporal one I'm making is right now as the United States from a homeland perspective prepared for that. Uh, we are not. We are not. And I think the silver lining, if you're looking for one, is that there has been a recognition in the past few years of that reality and what seems like the near inevitability of confrontation, not necessarily of war, the near inevitability of serious confrontation and the need to do that domestic preparation. It's starting to happen. As Nicholas knows, it's happening painfully slow. Uh, and it's something, though, that I think we're just starting to see the inklings of bipartisan cooperation on. I think that was one of the real big frustrations for the past 15 or 20 years on China is that at any given time, uh, it was a partisan flashpoint, but you're seeing at least more and more centrist Republicans and Democrats recognizing the state of conflict that we're in, which is not dissimilar to what happened during the Cold War. At the very beginning, I think there was ideological differences about even the nature of the situation we were entering that led to, uh, in Washington, something approaching a consensus, maybe not tactically, but strategically. I think we're starting to see that in the United States, which is going to be essential if uh, America does enter that type of conflict. So anyway, just some, some broad thoughts there. But on the on the chips piece, uh, you know, that's central. Look, I mean, what people don't realize is, you know, right now, policymakers in Washington are incredibly technically uh, inept. And, you know, they see chat GPT as a novelty, almost like a toy. And they only are seeing the very tip of the iceberg when it comes to machine learning and robotics. We're a few years away from a quantum future where quantum machines are going to supercharge artificial intelligence. And you still have people in Washington that are focused on the fact that encryption is going to be broken. Guess what? Newsflash. Encryption will be broken. Assume that's the case. There's some policy preparation happening there. Very little. But there's no policy preparation happening for the next big leap, which is you go talk encryption, to the best quantum scientists well, in the world. Yeah. Miles, Miles, what, encryption will be broken. Can you elaborate on this point? Like, so, so my WhatsApp messages are encrypted. Is that the type of encryption you're talking about? I know there's military messages, communication, accessing um, uh, intelligence, etc. But ca can you elaborate on this point? Like, how, ca yeah. how yeah. can encryption and, and, be broken? People should prepare for the fact that likely by the end of this decade – Standard RSA encryption that protects your financial records, that protects your signal conversations, uh, that protects U.S. government secrets transiting networks, uh, will likely be, from a mathematical perspective, able to be broken by whoever achieves a fault-tolerant quantum computer. And most scientists predict that'll happen by the end of the decade. The real big question is, Will we know about it or will we not know about it? And that probably depends on who reaches that milestone first. If it happens in the West, 
if a company like Microsoft or IBM or Google and their quantum machine achieves that capability, it's probably something that will be disclosed. Uh, but I think there's a really likely chance that it's uh, the Chinese, perhaps less likely the Russians, at which point it won't be disclosed. And there may be a period of time, weeks, months, or even years, where an adversary has the ability to hoover up our communications, decrypt them, use them for nefarious purposes. This would be in a lot of ways as significant as, perhaps more so in some ways, than the Manhattan Project for that to happen. Now, that is, uh, it's a mathematical inevitability. Someone will reach that point. Again, the best projections are about the end of this decade. What's more significant than that is if you talk to quantum scientists about what comes next, if quantum machines really do supercharge intelligence, what will we see that has strategic implications? And the dumbest way to to distill it is you've got quantum scientists that say you will have machines that have genuine human emotions, happiness, sadness, anger, because you'll be able to replicate, replicate them in organic terms because quantum computing mirrors nature. Uh, we are, if we're only a decade, maybe a little bit more away from machines that can genuinely mimic human emotion, what are we doing from a policy standpoint to prepare for that? And to the question today, how does that affect the nature of warfare? We, we've not even scratched the surface. And oh, these, these are I think that's one of the big concerns. Yeah, great stuff. Uh, great stuff, Miles. And, and I want to bring in Victoria. Victoria, I know you were, I'll let you introduce yourself. I think you were Deputy National Security Advisor to Donald Trump as well. In, in this same capacity, I, I love, I remember reading, uh, I think this was your 2016 book, David Sling, and there's a chapter there that you have on China, if I remember, and it's about the, the cultural influences and projections that China's, uh, put out there as influence into the world. Uh, I, I know you, you, you probably have, uh, some great insights onto the, the current conflict and superpower, but give us a quick intro and tell us about your thoughts on, on what is happening here. <laughs> well, thank you so much for that. And I would just say that David Sling is actually a book about the history of democracy and 10 works of art, because you have to start all of this with the PhD in Italian Renaissance art history. So actually, there is no China in that book, because they haven't quite graduated to that, that club yet. Uh, but I do appreciate the book plug. Um Along, along those lines, I just say I'd like to sort of wagon on what both Samuel and Nick started. I think Mario is 100% right. We have to be deeply concerned about the possibility of kinetic oper operations against China as soon as 2025. This is what we should be working every day to prevent. And you know, we can start in the security realm where we have Axios reporting that Worldview, which is a company started by now Senator Mark Kelly, had in, an investment from Tencent that very closely related to the P, uh, PRC uh, investment firm. I mean, this is an awful sort of incursion into our security realm. And this is what le led to this, the spy balloon. We can go on to information where we have Semaphore, which it was started by Ben Smith, but has two members of the CCP, of the Communist Party, on their board. That's in our information space. Uh, and that's so deeply dangerous because then you have these people starting to 
control how information is going to the American people. And then from my personal background, both from the NSC and from the Department of Energy, I mean, I am most concerned about the way China is trying to corner the market on the renewable and electric vehicle battery uh, spaces to try to control our energy and that we are unilaterally under the current administration trying to abdicate that enormous advantage to us that we know they fear. And so you have things like Microvast, which is the world's largest EV company, technically headquartered in Texas, but doing 80% of its business in communist China. So we are in being, we are actually giving $200 million through the department of energy to microvast to manufacture these EV batteries. What are we doing? Are we actually paying China to become our source for what is going to be our dominant energy, uh, source but doesn't, so doesn't, think, doesn't but but Victor, doesn't that interconnectedness yeah. between the both economies doesn't it isn't it a good thing like all sorts you were talking earlier about globalization and i only wanted to comment on this uh with, with what victoria just said uh, all source like when it just seems that the same topic of of both economies being interconnected is a positive and a negative a positive in that you know it's, it's you know efficient economies and negative is that they both suffer greatly if there's any disputes, like the disputes relating to Taiwan or the dispute we're seeing uh, with with uh, Russia and other disputes, smaller disputes we've seen over the years. So I'm I'm just a bit confused that that the same topic also is being um, is being used to make both arguments. It's not good that both economies are interconnected, and then we see decisions taken. I think the the U.S. banned the export of microchip technology. Correct me if I'm wrong. Netherlands joined them. I think Japan joined them. Um, so it's kind of the, the economies are being disconnected. Also, yeah, yeah, Mario. So yeah, yeah. So I think so. There, it's, it's, it's a double-edged sword. I mean, that's the issue, right? The dependence lowers tension, but also maximizes risk, right? And I think that's something that both countries both nations kind of acknowledge i would like to make a comment though mario i think a lot of times people put too much emphasis on economics interdependence and that might reduce war i mean we've seen studies about world war one how those economies were very interconnected countries in europe and in world war one and how war happened and i would note because the mcdonald theory you said was true until 2008 when russia invaded georgia and then again, in tw- and then again, when Russia invaded Ukraine. So I think that just highlights that globalization in and of itself does not guarantee peace. And I think that just like I said, it's a double edged sword and people have to highlight it. And I think Victoria brings up excellent points on the risk that we're assuming and how China, though, and how they man- how they view ec- their economy compared to the U.S. You-, you can't equate the two, how the U.S. views economic trade an economic growth compared to China, where China utilizes completely to increase their geopolitical strength vis-a-vis America, right? I think they do view this more as a competition. I think the U.S. is starting to catch to the, you know, understand that, hey, if China views us as a threat, we cannot treat them as an equal economic partner as we would, let's say, the European Union. 
Um, I, I do have a question, and I would like to ask uh, uh, Miles and Nicholas because I think both of them, you know, from their, their background in cyber. And I'll go first to Miles and then Nicholas. Just a quick question. Just a quick question. Um, in your experience, who do you, when you were both in your in, in your in the role of the U.S. Uh, in past U.S. administrations, who was the biggest cyber threat to the U.S.? Would you believe it was China, or back then was it Russia? Uh, just Miles and then Nicholas. Yeah, I, it, you know, far and away, uh, China. I mean, I think Victoria just laid out some really, really compelling reasons why. Uh, and, and I actually think I saw it more even after I left government. I left, went to Google as their head of advanced technology and security policy. And looking at the sector, I felt, to Victoria's point, like it was completely infiltrated. And I don't say that hyperbolically. I don't say that conspiratorially. Uh, it was just very evident that the CCP had completely infiltrated the U.S. tech sector and that there was a deep animus towards working with the United States among U.S. companies. I'm not necessarily saying that of Google, but broadly in the sector, there was um, there was a real aversion to working with the USG, which you don't see that in China. There's not the opportunity for that level of dissent among corporate actors, um, but they have very firm control uh, over that innovative sector. So th there was a huge disadvantage, I think, for the United States in that. Now, I think a lot of that's changed pretty dramatically. But yes, in short, um, China, by an order of magnitude, uh, was a greater cyber threat than the Russians. Think of the Russians as vandals with spray paint cans spray painting on your building. And think of the Chinese as uh, extremely sophisticated plumbers that you never see enter. I mean, sometimes people use a robber metaphor instead. The Russians will break into your house, smash the glass, They'll piss on the carpet. They'll kick the dog. You will see their fingerprints everywhere. The Chinese, you'll come home and the door is still locked and you'll go in and you'll go to bed safe and sound and the alarm system will be turned on, but they'll have come in anyway and they'll still be hiding in the house. That would be the cyber analogy that I would use. Well, let me ask, let me play devil's advocate for just a second here. Mark Stein, 19, I'm sorry, his 2006 book, America Alone. Uh, very, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a big proponent of this, or at least this notion of our, our demographic winter upon us. When you look at China, who just encountered their first ever, uh, or, or at least in the, the recent memory, significant uh, population decline, right? One-child policy, selective abortions, uh, you know, 100 million 30-year-olds not having a bride or even a chance at a bride, uh, 100 million uh, Chinese males. Mark Stein makes the case that uh, China is going to become a lot older become, before it becomes more powerful and that uh, the age issue is going to be significant and that dramatically lessens their threat to us. Anyone want to comment on that? I mean, I agree with that. Um, with China, because they had the um, one-child policy, you saw, you're seeing a significant issue with their population. They have an aging population, not as many youngsters to um, counteract that issue. In addition to that, they've realized that, that this is a problem and then they've tried to move away from the one child policy. But then again, maybe just because of hubris or arrogance or unwilling to change fast enough, they're not willing to, or they haven't yet moved away from that policy. So for sure, China is gonna, is, is in a significant issue when it comes to their population and the fact that they're not able to maintain that population in the, in the current situation. Yeah, I mean, that's it's kind of like door number one, two or three. Uh, the press would have you believe that Russia is our main threat. 
the military industrial complex would have you believe that China's real threat, uh, a lot of people along, you know, the, the, the likes of Mark Stein, who are, uh, 9-11, uh, uh, focused folks, uh, they believe that the Middle East is still a threat. And when you look at demographics, it's obviously door three. The median age of the Gaza Strip is 15 years old. There's no place like that in the world. Uh, and, and, you know, the median age in China and in the U.S. and in Russia is, you know, is getting very old compared to uh, where they were. I mean, Russia, for example, during World War II was average age was 22. Now it's 42, right? So the the idea being there is, is this really the, – the, the tension is obvious – but is the war really at our, our, our throats because of this demographic? Or does that issue – is are these the, the flailing, uh, you know, uh, flails of someone in the last throes of life and they, they really will start lashing out? Let's see if we can bring up someone new here. Uh, Mario, who did uh, Yeah, I, I, think I, brought up, I brought up Combate. Uh, Combate, I want to ask you that question. I do want to introduce Vivian and Matt Couch afterwards. But the question I have on top of what Justin just asked – is, um, you know, playing devil's advocate again. There was an argument made that the U.S. played a role in the war we have in Ukraine. Again, Russia should take most of the responsibility. They invaded Ukraine. Um, but it's a lot more complicated than this. And NATO's expansion is one argument being made. But now we're seeing the U.S. partnering with the Philippines and there's a military base there. Um, and I think NATO's visiting Japan and other countries in Asia. So we're seeing that the same thing that led to the conflict in Ukraine is now being repeated in Asia. It, it just doesn't, like we're seeing an escalation with Taiwan, but then instead of kind of yep. taking a step back and, 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 and discussing a solution for Taiwan, we're seeing NATO expand into Asia. Yeah, no, 100%. Um, yeah, my name is Kumbhati. I do, I cover geopolitics. Uh, I try to emphasize the Global South perspective. And I think, you know, looking back at recent U.S.-China relations and what has happened to the diplomatic settlements that the United States and China achieved over years of negotiating the Taiwan question, um, I think it's uh, fair to say that the Chinese view the Taiwan issue as their red line, the same way the Russians see the Ukraine issue as their red line. And Xi Jinping has been explicit about this, uh, the same way Putin was explicit about the Ukraine issue. Um, and I think we should not have any, we shouldn't doubt their word. They will take this to a war if we threaten the territorial and the uh, integrity of China. Um, and so I think the people of the United States really need to start asking what benefit is there in belligerence in the South China Sea? How does it benefit the people of the United States to, um, maintain U.S. dominance to some extent, to, to such an extent that the United States can set terms in the South China Sea, rather than care for the borders at home and for the problems that are actually affecting the United States. But why is the U.S. sorry, but why is the U.S. doing this? Like, why is the U.S. risk it taking such a massive gamble, especially with them being spread thin with with Ukraine um, for Taiwan? Is it just microchips, uh, or, or is it just fear of Chinese dominance and a change in the world order? Well, listen, I think there's two things going on that at least I can see from away, from far away. And one thing is there's definitely economic interest that see China's uh, economic performance and the performance of Chinese companies as an inherent threat. And they want to instrumentalize the U.S. government against those Chinese companies like they did to Huawei to slow them down because they can no longer compete at that level. The competitive edge is fading as China develops more and more and invests more and more in technology. So there's definitely economic interest there, but I think more fundamentally, perhaps, 
there's a neoconservative ideology that is per- just pervasive throughout the United States foreign policy establishment that focuses on containing other countries to basically stay up on top of the world. And I think that mentality belongs to the past century. Uh, the Chinese have explicitly disavowed that mentality. And in every speech, every statement, they talk about win-win cooperation and mutual development. And that's the line that has won basically um, the uh, year of countries across the entire world that want to develop, want win-win mutual um, cooperation. And essentially, I think we need to start realizing that peace is something you build through cooperation, through development. You can't just force China to accept your terms or your vision of the world right at their backyard. The same way we cannot force Russia to adopt our vision of the world at their own backyard. Simon? You're muted, Slayman. Yeah, thanks. For uh, so what, I was reading it. Um, so, so basically, I mean, I, I, I agree with a lot of what um, uh, Combat said. And I think if you look at it from another perspective, if you uh, from, a, from a world perspective, as, as rather than looking at it from a United States perspective, or firstly, even the United States perspective, first of all, as you said, they've spread thin. They've spent significant amounts of money meddling in wars abroad to the extent that basically working-class Americans are struggling. And then when you look at China's policy, it's completely the reverse. They're looking after their people. They're making sure that their people are doing well. They're not meddling in wars in other countries. If not, if you speak to most of their partners, they speak about China in glowing lights. They've made significant investment in Africa. They've made significant investment in Asia. Um, they, and, and from their perspective, these are all partnerships where they're invested in and they're giving these countries what they require to build up their infrastructure. And so when you look at it from a global stage where we had a scenario where everyone looked up to the United States as the world leader, they now see United States as a warmonger and they see China as a, as a, as a useful ally from a financial and infrastructure perspective. How's, how's the US, but how's the US a warmonger? You're referring back to Afghanistan and Iraq? Or recent events. Well, you've got, I mean, you've got, uh, like you said, Iraq, you had Afghanistan, and then United States only came out of Afghanistan, and then immediately after that have funded through the military industrial complex the war in Russia and Ukraine. And the skeptic in one would may, may think that, or, uh, or the conspiracy Yeah, go ahead, sorry, finish your point. Conspiracy theorists may think that the retreat from Afghanistan was in preparation for a possible engagement in another but country. But that's, that's causation correlation. There's no evidence to, 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 to state. For sure, for sure. That's what I said. That. Like, I don't think, I yeah, um, but that could, could be. It could be. Maybe there were early indicators that Russia could invade Ukraine. But my, my, my next point is Russia, despite NATO's expansion, despite everything, NATO did not invade Russia's territory, did not invade Belarus, did not invade any territory. They formed a partnership with a country that was willing to join NATO or other countries. And Ukraine should have the choice to join. Did did, did NATO, you know, did, was Russia against it? Maybe. But NATO decided to, to convince Ukraine to do so. Ukraine accepted. Russia is the one that invaded the border. China is the one that once that is, you know, threatening to invade Taiwan's border. How is in this case, ignoring Afghanistan and Iraq and Vietnam, etc., because that's a different argument, in this in, in the particular state of the world, the state of affairs, how is US the warmonger? 
Well, basically because they're meddling in affairs that are not uh, not have nothing to do with them. If if America wasn't involved, but you can't you can't say we can't say you can't say, sorry I'm, I'm I'm interrupting a bit today, but uh-huh. you can't say it has nothing to do with them. Um, Ukraine uh, is borders NATO, um, and and Taiwan. Um, Maybe it doesn't have, you know, it has the, it's the biggest manufacturer, uh, microchip manufacturer. So strategically, yeah. So that's so yeah. So so with Taiwan, there's there's been a policy agreed that there's a one China policy. Obviously, it's a contradictory policy because they said it's a one China policy, but at the same time, they've still got they still gave their back into Taiwan and gave them weapons and so on and so forth. In terms of Ukraine, I mean, it is it is an issue because if there was agreements or an understanding that. Ukraine would not join NATO. There was an agreement and understanding that uh, they would not uh, weaponize Ukraine. It's on the border of Russia. Like if that was happening in the United States and, for example, United States had enemy, Mexico was the enemy or Venezuela or, you know, any of the South American countries, you wouldn't have a scenario where it would have been acceptable or Russia wouldn't have been allowed to put put weaponry on the borders of America. You saw when they tried to do it in Cuba. So, yeah, there, that is a significant issue. You can't just uh, ignore that. It's actually he was just put in a corner. And he had no choice. And similar with Taiwan, he had he had other choice. What was the other choice? Like you let you let basically your the person on your border become part of NATO, become weaponized. Did we lose you, Mario? Hang on. Sorry, I was well, muted. Yeah, give them give them incentive not to join NATO. Convince them not to join NATO. Not force them not to join NATO. The US didn't force Ukraine to join NATO. The US well, they, well, convinced they did by putting a puppet government, government by basically causing a revolution. That's that's okay. So, so that's that's a possibility. We don't know for sure, but it's a plausible possibility. Um, there's, there's arguments on both sides of this, and it's hard to know for sure. Then have Russia do the same thing. Russia has a puppet government in Georgia. Or, or invaded Georgia, and I think they installed a puppet government. Um, they, they've done the same, I think, to Belarus. They've supported a, a arguably puppet government, which is okay. That's a strategy. But I think crossing a border again, I'm not, I'm not saying that uh, the US is the right thing. I'm not saying you, maybe, maybe Putin didn't have any other choice. But it just seems like Matt. I, I want to go to Matt before we go. I see a few hands up. Um, Matt, I want to go to you. Like, do you agree with Slaman's argument? Is the US just gonna? Poking its nose in other countries' uh, affairs, and and that could get us in trouble and, and and potentially serious trouble. I mean, I think it's it's an interesting take that he's got, Mario. But honestly, you look at the the situation, you know, in both countries, whether it's China and Taiwan or you know Russia and the Ukraine, you know, the, the U.S. is not doing anything to 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 quell either one of these. We need to be at the diplomacy table right now, not uh, not funding this proxy war. And I think it's it's interesting the the take that he has that you know that we're causing uh, you know world spread and worldwide uh, issues. Um, I think that the world's opinion of the U.S. has probably changed dramatically in the last you know 25 months with the debacle of the U.S. trying to exit Afghanistan and now of course the you know the military industrial complex funding what's going on in the Ukraine at the at the backs of the American taxpayer. But I think there's a a situation here to where you know the over I look at it from a different angle, which is if something does pop off. Who's going to fight in this war? Uh, when you look at the military numbers, and, and you know you've got some great panelists on here, but you know we're, we're talking about having to have a you know when we talk about the U.S. and China possibly going to war, how are we going to do that with a draft? Because we don't have the manpower, we don't have the ammunition, we don't have the ability to do it right now. And if we're at war with China and Russia, the Chinese are definitely not going to fund us with materials to build our war machine. There's a whole uh, whole other avenue here, but I, I think you know to, to get back to what Soleimani said. I just think that, um, you know, there's, there's got to be a, a, 
we don't have negotiators in the White House in that administration at all right now. And, and, it, and it speaks dividends. We don't have anyone uh, that, that's, that's talking any sense. You know, most of you guys already know there was a peace deal before this thing even popped off. Boris Johnson, as most of you know, told them not to take the peace deal, told Zelensky not to take it. And here we are a year later down the road. But to say that this thing started because it was unprovoked, guys, I mean, this has been going on since 2014 in the, right. the Donbass regions. It's not like this started a year ago like the, like the legacy media is telling everyone. And, and so many people are uneducated on the entire situation. This is a nine-year war. And, me, and now the Chinese are involved because, you know, we're pushing up very hard against one of their allies and we're making threats in Taiwan. Uh, just as you're going, I'll, I'll yield back. But it's this I wish I had a better answer, but it's such a complex situation. And I don't feel like we're uh, the world power that we think we are anymore, unfortunately. And Justin, I, I can't you're find the hand there, raise function, so I'm I'm just oh. going to put my verbal hand up. But you can go to others first. <laughs> no, that's fine. Let me let me play a clip. This is um probably the extremist view, or this is the alarmist view. Joe Rogan, speaker of the people here. Let me just give you his take real quick. The other day on uh, what's happening here, I want to stick with the China subject. Get caught up in these ideological battles and all the while they're inching us closer to nuclear war uh, they're push, pushing dangerous pharmaceutical drugs into our lives they're instituting a centralized digital currency and a credit score system and controlling people and locking people down and establishing narratives that are not based on fact at all but if you don't follow lockstep with that narrative you're fucked and you're out of a job and so everybody doesn't know what to do Next thing you know, we have something that's very similar to what's going on in China. And that can happen. We're not that far away from something like that happening here. All it would take is a large disaster, some sort of an attack, some sort of a a terrible scenario where a bunch of people died and they had to change the rules in order to protect us. And next thing you know, you're fucked. (laughs) Okay, speech language there. Go ahead. Who was that? Sorry. Sorry. uh, Sorry to interrupt. Um, No, go Vivian. Vivian, go ahead. Yeah. Uh, yes, I'm, I'm. I'm glad to be invited, and I'm the new to the panel. Um, Can you give us a quick also, intro there? Yes, um, actually, uh, as the only Chinese woman here, uh, I'm glad that I can chip in with some different uh, uh, narrative and uh, methodology. So very. Quick would you? Would you? Would we do? Would we also have Mr. Biao as well, Tang Biao, uh, on stage, who's a, yeah. a Chinese gentleman? Yeah. So we would love yeah, to ask so. him a few questions. But go ahead, Vivian. Yeah, so very quick introduction to myself. It's like um, originally I'm from China, but spent long enough years uh, working for different international media. The latest to stay is uh, was in Hong Kong. I was a BBC head up there, um, and I'm I was in charge of BBC Chinese there. Uh, before that, I had long enough time to just consult um, some NGOs and a lot of international organizations, including um, the embassies in China in different regions. Um, so my 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 line of reporting and my line of watch uh, basically is um, on China uh, in general, but also always try to just give uh, uh, you know in depth insightful coverage on China since uh, the advantage is the Chinese is my uh, native. So uh, somehow we, I'm lucky to, to get some access to the Chinese society in a close-up way that I think uh, more and more this world needs when we try to you know, look at a situation like this. Um, yeah, this, uh, recently I moved back to America. So um, it's good to, to see how, how the narratives are changing and uh, how the tensions are building up. So very quickly, um, that's my... My introduction. How, how is... uh, yeah, go ahead. 
Yeah, so I'll try to answer your first question because uh, uh, I see the conversation has already um, goes to quite far. Uh, but I, I have several points to, to make. Um, allow me to just uh, give several. Yeah, uh, please points. go ahead. Yeah, yeah so your your major question is uh, are we worried about or yeah or, or no and why right so of course because um, since i'm I'm from the media background i i am I'm probably the only journalist here no I have other colleagues here yeah so but journalists usually we try to stay um unbiased and based on the facts, but also we have a habit to look at the narratives, especially uh, trying to tap into the unknown narratives and some of the tensions that, you know, especially if you're, you, you're able to, to see on both sides. So my point will be, um, you know, I'm worried, I'm worried personally, but uh, honestly, I'm more uh, curious about what's, what's, what's going on on both sides. Uh, one is about the, the U.S. I think the recent um, fear and the heated discussions about this U.S.-China possible war um, are actually the result of a rising attention of the media coverage. Because uh, I'm, I'm now 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 I'm not with any professional institutional media, so actually I can have more freedom to talk about this and. Uh, I think the recent attention, especially uh, we see uh, from the American public uh, perspective, is really, uh, you know, uh, created by this recent coverage on balloons. And so basically even the American, Republic, uh, American public, people, uh, ordinary people start to feel like China could send their balloons and the military presence to uh to the homeland. So this is very relevant and very close up uh, feelings. If, um, you know, ordinary Americans, they know about China, if only about the products made in China or uh, the losing jobs, these are the economic factors. But recent coverage on on China goes to very quickly this, uh, you know, uh, military relation and military tension. So I want to emphasize, I want to make this point. It's like, um, from media perspective, I have to say a lot of journalists who work for uh, different medias in America, actually, they f- express this frustration. Uh, they say um, why China all of a sudden becomes such a prominent uh, topic only because of the balloons. But a lot of people think this balloon um, are quite uh, strange and uh, bizarre uh, story and of course we, we we still see a lot of information um, unknown to the public and to the media, but I want to emphasize this a recent confrontation. Um, it's it's unreasonably erupt and a little bit exaggerated. And the, my second point is. Um, uh, but sorry, also, Vivian. Before before you go to the second point and that first point being of exaggerated, I know we have a few hands up, but like. I don't, I don't like to, to, to make, you know, to kind of over exaggerate things to get attention. Uh, but in this case, if you have Biden saying that he'll support Taiwan militarily yeah. and, yeah, and, and China saying, I've said this a few times, yeah. I don't understand how it's being over exaggerated. You've just got a lot. We've had the okay. leak, the leak from the general okay. saying that by 2025, he, 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 uh-huh. he has a feeling, yeah. gut feeling that the countries will be at war. Yeah. 
Thank you, Maria. Actually, uh, before joining this panel, I read all of your tweets. Wonderful. That's a wonderful, you know, countdown on this uh, media coverage and the narratives. I think the most alarming and the most affirmative uh, signs that the U.S. will take military actions, uh, both from uh, uh, Biden. He was talking to CBS uh, reporter. He said, Are you, uh, he was asked, are you going to get into this war? Uh, not a war. He, the word is like, he will uh, defend Taiwan on the condition if time, uh, Taiwan was invaded, right? And the most, uh, and the, another one he was made in Japan when he was visiting and he was, uh, I think that's a prepared uh, remarks he was trying to make. He said, uh, if in any chance that China is going to invade Taiwan, U.S. won't uh, let, U.S. will take actions. I'm not quoting, but that's a that's a narrative. So I think, yeah, in that sense, we're not exaggerating. So I'm not saying we're spreading fears or we're um, we're talking something make no sense totally. I I appreciate that we talk about this, especially in this uh, English American setting. But I my point is uh, somehow this uh, immediate. And this sudden fears among American people uh, was somehow directly related to the recent escalation and the, the you know appearance of media coverage. So I'm I'm not saying this is nonsense. This is not important. It's extremely important. But I want to explain why all of a sudden all the Twitter users start to worry about war. So allow me to make second point. Uh, you mentioned that. But Vivian, the... Vivian, before you make your second point, I just want to yeah. clarify. Like I agree with uh -huh. what you're saying. So what Vivian's trying to say is not that everything's exaggerated. Obviously, Biden has made them comments, but she's trying to say things like the balloon and these type of things are overly exaggerated to make people focus negatively. What do you mean? This is the China. first. This is, is that what you think, Vivian? This is the yes, yes, but this is the yes. first time. Yeah. But Vivian, Vivian Slayman, this is the first time the Air Force. Um, it, Norad is involved in yeah. in uh, shooting anything down. Um, yeah. it, it, that was, that's a, it's a spy. It's potentially a spy balloon um, over U.S. territory, yeah, so Vivian, in U.S. Vivian's airspace. Can I, is that it's obviously a spy can balloon. I make my, yeah, can I, uh, go ahead, Vivian. Go ahead. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. yeah, go ahead. So, yeah, the reasons. Also, uh, we have enough reasons to worry that uh, war it will be started. But my question is, I think I want to just cue, uh, you know, just cue everybody everybody's down a little bit, like, set, think. First, is U.S. really prepared for a war? Secondly, this is a real war that's, you know, um, this, like, uh, just now before I joined this panel, actually, I was reading a piece. Uh, it's by VOA. Uh, we know this VOA is very aggressively uh, reporting a lot of uh, Top, uh, topics. This one's really relevant. Uh, it says the U.S. Army Secretary, um, what's her name? It's Christine Wormash. Uh, she made the point that absolutely uh, the Biden administration uh, has uh, is has been preparing the U.S. as homeland as a military force to be more prepared for a war. But her point is, uh, you know. Uh, you know, uh, obviously we have to prepare. We have to prepare to fight and to win that war. And she makes the second point is like our goal, our goal is to avoid fighting a land war in Asia. And I think the best way to avoid, I'm quoting her, she said, I think the best way to avoid fighting that war is by showing China and countries in that reason that we can actually win that war. I think that's a point is like extremely important for USA 
to be prepared militarily, psychologically, socially, politically, economically for a war. But we all know that if we are against the war as a, uh, you know, peacemakers in whatever, you know, universal value. Uh, sure. The war is something that you can, you should do your best to avoid. Okay. But the good way is to get yourself prepared. So, but, so at this moment, I believe the U.S. government needs to have more strategic talk like this, a lot of very candid, very open up, very honest, and even very down to ground. Well, let me, let me, Vivian, let me give, uh, let me, let me play this short clip and then we're going to go to Austin and Dustin. Uh, this is the, this is Nicholas Burns, U.S. ambassador to China. Again, uh, this is more sober take, but also sort of the Biden administration positioning itself, as it says, in a strong position. Let's listen. Just a one minute clip. Our American position is stronger than it was five or 10 years ago. It's the strength of our alliances. It's the strength of our private sector. It's our innovative capacity and our R&D capacity, which comes from our research institutions and our big tech companies. And I do think that the Chinese now understand that the United States is staying in this region. We're, we're the leader in this region in many ways, and that we want a future of peace with China. We don't want, as the President Biden makes clear every time he talks about this, we don't want conflict. But we're going to hold our own out here. And I feel optimistic, I'm just concluding my first year as ambassador, about the American position in this country and in this region. So uh, I, I think that's interesting. Uh, obviously, uh, a little sober positioning. Uh, some would say uh, some waffling, maybe, uh, as someone put it, a little bit of arrogance there, too. But uh, there are some interesting viewpoints there. Let's let me go. I, I know Dustin. I, we were had trouble. Justin, just up. just, just to expand on that quickly. Sorry, and I know you will push it to Austin. But two points. One, I believe it was also the CIA director, and 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 a senior Pentagon official. Uh, there was a USNI article about this, but both of them basically are stating that they believe that China recognizes the risk more so you know, with Western Ukraine and, and how the U.S. is posturing in the region, because, again, one of the things U.S. military does really well is deterrence. And they believe because of that, that China's temptation, let's say, or desire to launch an invasion against Taiwan forcefully by 2027 is lowering. And I think we're seeing that with Japan increasing their defense spending as well. So the, to Vivian's point, I think deterrence is 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 helping and hopefully will reduce threat of military conflict. But I know Austin will probably um, want to jump in on yeah, that. Yeah, can I? Yeah, I. I please let, allow me to make a second point. I uh, first. Do you mind, say, before not... Vivian, uh, before you make a second, I know you've got a lot of points. I do want to just, if you don't mind, just briefly go to Austin. By the way, Miles, to put your hand up, you just press on the love bottom right corner, the love button with the plus, and then on the right you have that hand up. If you want to put your hand up, Miles, or feel free to just jump in. When the, oh, there you go, it worked. I knew you wanted to speak. Uh, but yeah, so Vimya, I will go back to you because I know you had more points to make, I promise. Uh, but yeah, Austin, I know uh, you wanted to comment on that uh, question by all sorts. Good to have you back, man. And then we'll go, so what we'll do is go um, Austin, then we'll go to uh, Mr. Tang Biao and uh, Miles, and then go back to Vivian. Let's um, get Dustin there too at some point too. Dustin, uh, let's do Austin. Yeah. yeah, okay, good. Oh, Dustin, there's Dustin. Yeah, yeah. of course, I wasn't showing up. Go ahead, Austin. Absolutely. Uh, thanks again for letting me let me up here. Um, yeah, I think it's uh, the first point I want to kind of comment on here is the idea that the the United States is sort of stretched thin right now. Um, I think there's a there's a very clear reason when we talk about the potential for conflict between China and Taiwan. We are talking uh, 2025. We're talking 2027. 
Um, and the very apparent reason for that is the fact that uh, the Chinese have not built up their Navy and specifically their maritime transportation capacity to where they would want it to be in order to execute such an operation. They don't have the, um, it, let's say tomorrow she decides to try and take Taipei. He does not have the amount of ships necessary to transport the invasion force that would be required for those sort of amphibious operations. They would have to rely heavily upon um, civilian ferries that are known as ROROs, which stands for roll on, roll off, meaning you can roll anything from a car to a tank onto them and then roll them off once they get into sort of shallow waters. Now, the issue with these ROR ferries is that they, number one, they do not handle well in bad weather, which the, the Straits of Taiwan are notorious for having typically rough seas. And on top of that, the Taiwanese and the Americans both maintain a very um, coherent and efficient submarine capacity. So any sort of uh, landing sort of run by the Chinese would face severe sort of obstacles, not just with the fact that most of the beaches of Taiwan aren't sort of um, capable for supporting such an operation, but that the vast majority of these civilian ferries would likely be sunk in an operation like that. Why this is important is because a lot of the times when folks are talking about the the fact the idea that the United States strategically is stretched thin is because of the support the United States is currently giving towards Ukraine. Um, the reality of that situation is that there are no American uh, military units currently dedicated towards the Ukraine Russo-Ukrainian conflict. Um, the only shortages that we're seeing in the near term are mostly munitions based based upon supplies, and as you know, as it's going to take the Chinese, should should their objective be the forceful reunification or unification, I should say, with Taiwan, uh, as long as it's going to take them to build the Navy required to do so, the United States actively is learning what it means to produce, once again, munitions at scale from the Russo-Ukrainian war. So I, I don't really see uh, the argument that the United States is strategically stretched thin as holding much water because there's there's plenty of time to sort of learn from you know production at scale and what the strategic landscape is going to look like by the time we reach the initial dates of some of these predictions how about um, uh, how about the there wasn't there a weapon an advanced weapon that the u.s was working on i can't remember the name that china beat the u.s and surprised everyone in their capabilities and i think they chose they stole u.s technology to be able to achieve that uh, do you know which one, which example i'm referring to austin i see matt couch putting the 100 percent emoji so I think he knows what I'm referring to. Do you know what I'm referring to, Delson? It's it's common practice. Um, it has been common practice for the past 20 years, specifically in military development, um, for the Chinese to engage in intellectual property theft and uh, attempt to, and in some cases, um, nearly perfectly copy some uh, U.S. military. No, invasions. so I'm referring to China surprise. The 17th of October 2021. Yes. China surprises U.S. missile test. Yeah, there we go. Yeah, yeah. So, okay, hi, hi, hypersonic missile development. Okay, cool. That yeah, yes, there's. Yeah. So I'll read out. I'll read I out a quote. Hold on. I'll read, I'll, yeah. yeah. Let me let me read out the, the a quote here. The test showed, and the reason I'm referring to this because obviously the the stronger the U.S. is, the, sorry, the stronger the, the Chinese military is, um, the, the more confident they are in being able to to uh, wage a war or try to invade Taiwan. I'll read out the quote. The test showed that China has had made astounding progress on hypersonic weapons and was quote. Far more advanced than U.S. official realized, and I thought I read somewhere that they even beat the U.S. in try in achieving a certain milestone. I'm sure I read it somewhere. Um, does like that? Doesn't that concern you in any way, Austin? 
It, it does a little bit. However, I think there's there's an inherent fascination amongst number one, mass media, and number two, the general public with individual weapon systems themselves, as opposed to how they can be uh, sort of applied, right? And I think we're seeing this actively with the with the Russo-Ukrainian war. I think there's a lot of focus on systems, and I think that's a bit of a fallacy, and it kind of drives back to. Um, the the doctrine and strategy of weapons development that we saw from the germans during the second world war with the concept of a wunderwaffen or sort of a wonder weapon that's going to sort of change the entire conflict and win the war uh as we've seen from recent tests from the united states the united states is capable of developing hypersonic missiles i think what should be a, a larger focus here is what does sort of force composition look like if we're going to talk about a a, a war between the two countries but I think what's equally important to mention here, and this is going to be my final point, is as much talk as of right now, you know, and, and the reason that all of these projections, and I'll kind of hark back on this, the reason that all of these projections are talking about 2025, 2027, 2029, is that the Chinese do not currently possess the, the military capacity to invade Taiwan um, unless everything, every single sort of factor goes in their favor, uh, which is... Anyone no, no, they don't have. They have. They have the military capacity. If if the U.S. doesn't get involved, obviously, but if the U.S. gets involved militarily, then I, I, I think it's a. I think it's a reasonable assumption to say the U.S. would be involved militarily. I don't think the United States would. For sort Taiwan, of... but for for just Taiwan, they would risk war with the second strongest or the third strongest military, potentially a nuclear war, potentially a world war. And I'm not just saying this myself. A lot of policymakers, ex-generals, etc., have mentioned the the the. The taboo word of world war. They would risk all this for Taiwan, which technically and arguably uh, the US kind of years and years ago, they knew that it's inevitable China will, 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 will eventually reunite with Taiwan. And uh, they made a, a kind of very vague, um, uh, they, they passed a vague uh, bill to kind of solve the issue, but delay the problem. So it's like, it's like something they're expecting to happen. Yet they would risk a war for this with China, risk their economy, risk everything. I I, I would certainly say so because the United States economy. For, is why only... for microchips? I mean, not just not just for microchips, but also for for strategic posturing. Um, I I think even even though the 1979 uh, Taiwan Relations Act was specifically ambiguous in nature, uh, I think that I think the One China policy has actually been very important because. The, the reason the one China policy exists is it allows, you know, Beijing to go back to, you know, it allows who's ever leading Beijing to go home and say, you know, there is one China. And equally, it sort of um, dissuades the United States from recognizing, you know, um, Taiwan as an independent country, even though in, in practice it very much is. Uh, so, no, I, I, I don't really have any doubts. I do believe the United States would become militarily involved if Taiwan was invaded. Um, and I don't. Uh, I don't really foresee there would be any pushback from either the Japanese, the South Koreans, the Australians, or the the Filipinos, or any well, we'll other see, sort yeah. of, sort I, of I, uh, U.S. strategic partner in the region. The Philippines, in northern Australia, we see NATO visit Asian countries uh, close to China. Mr. I see a lot of hands up, so I want to go quickly to Mr. Tang Biao. I hope I'm not mispronouncing your name. Um, welcome to the stage. It's first time on, on the show on the roundtable. I would love your thoughts. 
Yeah, uh, thank you very much for your invitation. My name is Tang Biao. Um, I'm a human rights lawyer and a scholar from China. I left China like two years after Xi Jinping came to power. And uh, because of my human rights work in China, I was uh, banned from teaching, disbarred, like detained, kidnapped, and tortured. So my field is like uh, criminal justice, human rights, law, and the politics in China. I'm currently teaching at uh, uh, University of Chicago. Um, so very um, brief point. Um, the first it would have been uh, highly likely for Xi Jinping to invade Taiwan before 2027 or even 2025. But Putin's war uh, may have changed Xi Jinping's decision. Um, Xi Jinping and the uh, CCP have seen uh, Putin um, has been defeated. At least uh, Putin did not win the war um, very soon as uh, predicted. And uh, they have seen the uh, United States and its allies uh, firmly support uh, Ukraine. So, um, and and now the the likelihood for in, uh, invading Taiwan uh, is uh, is less, much less than uh, in twenty twenty one twenty twenty two, and um, and second point is uh, the most important consideration um, for uh, for the Communist Party. Um, you know, um, and, and, uh, the invasion of Taiwan is not military, not economy, not ideology, but politics. So I always, um, um, you know, discuss with my uh, students that the f- number one priority of the CCP is to maintain its monopoly on power. And, um, and it's uh, like a one party dictatorship. Um, so there, um, and if invading Taiwan is helpful for this aim, and then the CCP will do. If invading Taiwan is, uh, you know, is harmful to to this aim, and then it will not. And no matter the uh, the, the the probability of winning uh, the war, so there's there's possibility like uh, losing a war. Um, uh, in in Taiwan can be good for the uh, Communist Party, and and then and then uh, you know uh, Xi Jinping can invade Taiwan. So that um, and I've I've written a a, a piece about that this uh, this um, uh, considerations, and then the um, the final point is. Um, um, I, uh, you know, in, in, in China, I had been, uh, sacrificed my, my freedom, my career to promote human rights and democracy, uh, in China. And, um, so I, I'm, I'm not calling for a war, uh, against China. I'm always call, uh, for, uh, call for, uh, regime change. But unfortunately, the United States and all democratic countries have, uh, given up the policy of of uh, regime change they don't want to democratize china and and that's uh, that's wrong i think that's a mistake and democratizing taiwan is uh, sorry democratizing china uh, is not only required by like a value the universal value but also uh, required by economic and the political interests of the united states 
And um, and so Roger uh, Gasset, the author of uh, the China Coup, um, so he he has a, a interesting piece like uh, the uh, the uh, the regime change um, mm-hmm. in the context of uh, China um, is is a necessity for the United States. And and that's uh, it. yeah, that's I, it. I have, I have a question for you, Tengya. Before before we go to other panelists and Angela, welcome to the panel. I have a quick question for you. In, in terms of regime change, is that you know, there was an argument being made many years ago that if the Chinese economy crumbles and it's a matter of time considering the debt, etc., and that's, uh, that argument is like, you know, 10, 12 years old, um, the Communist Party will not survive because they're hanging on a thread. Their control, they rely on their controls hanging on a thread. But it doesn't seem to be the case. There, What we saw with COVID, the, the protests with the lockdown, um, they were not as severe as many people made them out to be, as the media made it out to be. What could lead to a coup and how would that look like? Yes, yeah, yeah, sorry. So, um, you know, almost all the uh, the experts predict that China's economy can't uh, can't keep its uh, rapid uh, growth rate and it, it is it is facing uh, economic uh, crisis and that will bring out like social and political crisis in in China and and last November December we have seen the uh, the white paper revolution the a fall uh, movement and so under this uh, brutal suppression and totalitarian surveillance, people still took to the street and, and call for the, the end of a zero COVID policy and also calling for freedom and democracy. So, um, so, and, and, and it is Chinese people's duty to overthrow the Communist Party. Um, and, and, and many, many Chinese people have sacrificed their freedom and even their lives to, uh, to achieve uh, to fight for democracy, but but the United States, the the, the democracies, uh, should um, should have a reasonable policy. And and I always criticize the like engagement policy. Uh, it it seems like a, like a, a appeasement uh, for for the past two two decades or more. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so it, it, it's, 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 it's time to, to end the appeasement uh, policy uh, in the name of uh, engagement. Uh, I want to go to Dustin uh, briefly. I know, Dustin, you've had your hand up for a while. Um, so I'll let you comment on, on uh, what was said so far, and I've got a couple of questions for you as well before we go to Miles and Matt. Hey, it's great being here. Um, uh, my name is uh, Dustin Carmack. I, I'm a research fellow at the Heritage Foundation. Um, your mic I, is, uh, uh, Dustin, not sure if you could get your mic a bit closer to your mouth. It's a bit far. Yeah, can you hear me? Uh, it's a bit worse now. Okay, one second. No problem at all. All right, so while waiting for, uh, are you with us, Dustin? Yeah, is this better? Uh, much better. Yeah, 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 much better. Go ahead. Yeah, so uh, I'm a research fellow at the at the Heritage Foundation, where I focus on uh, on cyber and intelligence policy. Um, but my previous uh, career, I was uh, I was over at uh, the Office of the Director of National Intelligence, where I served as the Chief of Staff 
uh, to Director uh, John Ratcliffe. And then uh, prior to that, I was with him as his chief of staff on in Congress on the Hill when he served on the Intel and, and Homeland Security Committees. And then before that, I was with uh, then Congressman DeSantis as his chief of staff. And so I've worked a lot in these issues uh, space and, and have a keen interest in on China here for a while. And it's been a great discussion. Uh, I just bring up a few things uh, regarding kind of what I see is, you know, this question of the 2025, back to kind of your original question on the this kind of deterrence box uh, that we're kind of in is, is I think, you know, China's seeing it's, there's twofold questions here. I think she is seeing what he wants to see in his timeline because he essentially says this. I mean, he wants to see the possible, it's a, it's a, it's a contrast within the CCP where there's people that want to play the long game and essentially see what happened with Hong Kong, where you essentially see a, like a peaceful <laughs> um, transition back fully into the, the Chinese scope and the national security law on one end. Uh, and those that see that 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 is fleeting as the United States pays more attention to this, that gets them, you know, removes themselves from some things, say, like in Afghanistan or other areas, but is also promoting and, and building defense structures throughout the Asian Pacific theater. And so, you know, that's why the, you're seeing man-made islands uh, be built in the South Pacific Sea because, or South, uh, South China Sea is because you're seeing this force projection picture like extend out uh, much further, not only towards like Guam, but I mean, this gives them uh, a window to really push back on any kind of U.S. deterrence posture. And so, as you were mentioning earlier about the, you know, the Taiwan uh, Straits being the choppy waters and a, and a tough incursion exercise, we haven't really spent a lot of time talking about what China is capable from a cyber standpoint. I mean, the Bureau and others have talked about the fact that China's cyber forces are larger than any other nation state in the world combined between like people that moonlight and criminal apparatuses, but also those that can target critical infrastructure. And as Nicholas brought up earlier, I mean, these, they, the ODNI has, has relayed this in, in unclassified spaces that they contain capabilities to affect critical infrastructure, at least for periods of time. And if you remember the colonial pipeline hack was by just a non-nation state and had massive impacts and ramifications just by causing consumer panic and fear in the United States populace. So China looks for these opportunities if it's, you know, on the hypersonics end of looking at ways to, you know, look at a deterrence posture. If it's looking at the intel posture of understanding command and control systems, that Chinese spy balloon, by the way, flew over our radar system and Fort Greeley that in our ICBM interceptors that look over the pole that, that see how we engage and how we pick up. Uh, threats that come over the, the Arctic, including from China, from Russia, from North Korea. Uh, it in included uh, areas, you know, of course, in Montana, where it was initially spotted, but also in my home state of Missouri, you know, Whiteman Air Force Base, home of the B-2 strategic bomber. So, you know, to say that, you know, okay, we so, just... You, so that's... Yeah, go ahead. Mario, you're, you're muted. Uh, sure, it happened. Or it happens a lot. Um, yeah. So you just said the balloon was used for um, just to see U.S. response, uh, military response. So my question to you is: is um, it, it, why is that? Just pure basic data collection because they've intruded intentionally. I'm assuming that's what you're implying. They intentionally intruded U.S. airspace just to see U.S. response. That just shows they're very ballsy. Goes against what Austin. No, Austin, your I, point is. That's not exactly what I'm saying. I, I don't know that to be the case. I mean, there's been speculation that it was something that may have been intended for Guam or Hawaii, where these things have been picked up beforehand and probably wouldn't have noticed, you know, the kind of posture that, you know, happens when you fly over Bozeman to Montana. Um, but it could have been picked up by a random jet stream. But then once, you know, it was it was over, it was kind of like, hey, let's let's see how far this rodeo can go. 
Um, and why not try to use that? I mean, as a, as a, as a possibility. And then, like I said, the United States response, you know, they saw it coming into NORAD space, uh, over the Aleutian islands. There was plenty of opportunities to engage that, that aircraft at the time. And so, yeah, you can make arguments. They want to get it for counterintelligence purposes, but to let it go over the entire United States, I, I still find it to be a kind of an outrageous proposition, but, um, but no, like I said, I mean, you're going to use that as an opportunity, same as their satellite structures are used to try to pick up, you know, a ton of intelligence and data all the time in the United States. Miles, I want to go to you and Matt with a question is, you know, we all agree there is a possibility of a conflict between both countries. Um, we kind of disagree on how likely that is. But the, the next question I have is, what's the possible outcome? I know all source, you're probably going to geek out on this one. But how could it play out? I was watching a few documentaries and they have all these nice images and stuff of of how the U.S. will respond. And both of them mentioned China having an initial strike on U.S. Uh, um, a preemptive strike on U.S. military uh, basis around Taiwan, knowing that the U.S. will, will get involved. Could China really have the guts to do this? Are they in a position to do this? That's number one. And number two, even if it doesn't go that far, um, if China starts to plan or, or starts to indicate that they will invade Taiwan, similar to what we saw with Russia, what could the impact be on the global economy and um, the world as a whole if, if, if a conflict does break out? And I know when you say conflict doesn't break out, there's different ways a conflict could break out. Um, so I'd love you to touch on the different scenarios. Maybe, Mars, you want to go first and we'll go to Matt and then we'll go to Austin. Mario, you, you ask so many questions. It's like flying with the Riddler. Uh, I don't know <laughs> my bad, start. my bad. bad. <laughs> no, no, I'm just teasing you. Uh, you know, look, how does it end? Oh, it doesn't end well. It's not pretty. But I say that for a reason, because that in and of itself may be instructive for both nations. I mean, we know from the history of warfare that sometimes you need to get into war to have a different outcome. In other words, if a war with China is very bad, it teaches both countries that they really want to avoid it again, and it probably pushes them to stay in their spaces. And I go back to just before Dustin, the speaker uh, before him, I, I think made some very lucid points about how at the end of the day, this is ideological. And that's why we have to put assumptions out the window, like would the United States really go to war over Taiwan? I think it was useful for you to ask that question earlier Mario, because, you know, we all remember that uh, the United States went to war because uh, some Austrian diplomat was assassinated in 1914. Why the hell would we go to war over that? Because there are deep underlying ideological reasons. And I think for policymakers on both sides in the United States, it's that we see in China a regime slaughtering its own people, violating human rights, projecting power in an autocratic way and generally representing a threat to the West. And the speaker before Dustin made a very good point, which was that uh, a democratized China completely changes this equation. And so that's why I think we need to, you know, a hundred years ago, Teddy Roosevelt said war as a general rule is to be avoided, but it's far better than certain kinds of peace. And that's how U.S. policymakers are going to operate. There are some scenarios with China where a war is preferable to an expansionist China around the world. But I think we have to admit that to the point Dustin was making, some of these asymmetric capabilities make it a lot less likely for us to anticipate whether that will break out or not. There is inherent uncertainty here. I think it's a very unstable situation and will remain so. So it's, it's going to be difficult for us to predict whether we go to war with China. Uh, analysts who want to say they know the probability is low, they don't actually know because a lot of the things that could 
influence the trajectory of the lead up to war or war itself have never been tried in warfare. So we are we are in a period of great uncertainty, but we can't forget that the underlying nature of this is ideological at its core. Miles, what's the process for um, I kind of took a few steps ahead, but what's the process for the U.S. to launch um, nuclear missiles, nuclear warheads? What's the process for Russia and what's the process for China? Very briefly, I'm not sure if you know the answer for that. I know it's a, it's a complex question. Mario, that's the perfect question to ask me or Dustin to get us put in jail. So, okay. <laughs> um, I, you know, look, I, I mean, the, the, the technical answer is not one that that I could get into. But from a policymaking standpoint, um, I think no matter what country you're talking about, there's a great degree of uncertainty. I mean, anyone who's sat in the White House situation room knows that, frankly, like any conversation, uh, it's not a foregone conclusion, the direction something's going to go. Sometimes there's groupthink. Sometimes there's strong opinions. Um, I, and I think that's why you want to avoid ever getting into the position where two countries are discussing when and how to put their fingers on the red button. Because when you get to that point, you're leaving uh, it to a far greater probability of execution uh, than if you'd never flipped the cover off the red button in the first place. I, I think that's what you want to avoid. And, and I do think that's where the rational actor model uh, that purports to describe how countries interact in a state of warfare or in international relations in general is actually useful because both Beijing and Washington deeply want to avoid that scenario. So you can imagine there being conflict that escalates to warfare, but doesn't necessarily escalate to nuclear warfare. Uh, perhaps. Is it, threats, how, how, but... how, like, how likely is it for, uh, I've got, I've got two questions before we go to Matt. Uh, the first question is, um, you know, I'm kind of pressing on that initial question with Russia. I just looked it up, uh, earlier before the space with Russia, Putin could give the order, but there are, uh, other layers before the weapon is launched. And I think the U.S. is similar where the generals need to approve it as well. And, and they could, you know, depending on the reason that Putin's made that decision, um, they could decide to to not follow those orders um is it that do we know do we have similar clarity on on china that's the first question and then the second question is what's the likelihood that if us and china do get into direct conflict how likely is it to 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 hit the nuclear stage yeah, well, I, I would say this. I, I get what you were driving at with the earlier question, uh, and that would be, you know, depending on a nation's regime type and their their military, is that going to affect the likelihood of them deploying a nuclear weapon? What autonomy do they give their commanders? Um, but I genuinely think, regardless of what safeguards are in place, when you enter a nuclear war scenario, um any sense of what's going to happen in terms of command and control is, is academic at best. Um, that there's a very good chance you see, uh, whether it's a democracy or an autocracy, people making decisions and self-deploying because they know uh, that the existence of not just their country, but perhaps humanity is at stake. And so I, I'm not sure I would put a whole lot of faith in what command and control looks like in any type of country in a nuclear war scenario, nor do I think anyone can really uh, predict with great accuracy what that would look like. Um, but but to your question, I do think there's, you know, game theory tells us a lot about what's likely to happen in those scenarios. And what is likely is what we have already seen in the past, which is two countries rapidly getting to a situation of mutually assured destruction. In other words, both of them 
readying themselves to make the threat and looking at that threat and deciding they don't want to end up in that scenario. And I think that's what's very plausible. I think the likelihood of nuclear war between the U.S. and China, is that piece is exceptionally low. I think the likelihood of ending up in a mutually assured destruction scenario where the threats get to that point is is actually probably quite high uh, if we're looking at this century as a time horizon. Matt? Yeah, I mean, I think uh, Miles kind of, you know, he took a lot of what I was going to say very great talking points there miles i also think yeah take that matt i got yeah, it. I God, you with man, nothing dude i gotta follow that <laughs> no, no, man. go for it uh, but no at the same time i think we're also not looking you know you brought up the financial ramifications if china and the u.s were to go to war and this is not even nuclear let's just say you know they invade taiwan we try to counter uh who, who knows what that may be i threw an article up in the in the nest there you know you know china's got a plan where they're putting cold war uh, fighter jets They've got over 500 of these J6. I think it's J6 is their old one. J7 is the new one. Don't hold me to it. I'm not a MIG expert. But, you know, they're turning them into actual bombs, basically. There are over 400 of them that are going to be drones so that they can take out, you know, missile batteries and infrastructure and things like that in Taiwan. So they do have what looks to be some sort of a plan in place. But to me, the financial ramifications for Americans, because we are so reliant on China for everything, medicines, our goods, our clothing, our food, I don't think people realize that if a war does pop off, the effects and and the fallout on the American people, not just militarily and not just with the loss of American lives, but you're talking about empty shelves and a dire situation in the United States like we've never seen before because those shelves are going to dry up. Things are going to empty. You're not going to be able to get goods. You're not going to be able to get medications. China, you're going to have a massive war over there where all of the goods come and flow through. That's going to be a nightmare scenario that I, I don't know if we thought that far ahead. You know, that's a a chess game, Mario, but I think, you know, just to answer the financial part, since Miles answered so many of the other military ones, uh, I think that's something that needs to be thought out well by our government as well. Uh, I would love to go to Austin to continue that point. And and Austin, not sure if you could kind of elaborate on the the initial question I had. And the reason I'm asking this is it just fascinates me that you could have, and it kind of depresses me, you could have just two people that could destroy the planet genuinely Xi Jinping Putin and uh, and the US president could 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 kill billions of people um so my question is there different layers like what what's how much power does Xi Jinping have in being able to deploy nuclear warheads and of course you can touch on the the ramifications of a direct conflict between the US and China and what would Russia yeah. do so okay so in, in the case Okay, there's a lot to cover here, so I'm gonna I'm gonna take it piece by piece here. Number one, the big this is Mario just asked way too many questions. I I'm having a hard time as co-host to keep up. <laughs> yeah, I, yeah, I just I, I just get it. I just get excited, questions. guys. I just get excited. Like I I, I don't. I've been trying to ask a question for 20 minutes and I just can't keep up. <laughs> no, I, and the thing is, uh, sorry, the, 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 sorry to in again. Since we talked about the Chinese thinking, can I just just to contribute some of the. Yeah, please. Yeah, go ahead, Vivian. Uh, I'll yeah. let it contribute, and then we'll go to Austin on these uh, questions. Yeah. Go ahead. Yeah. First, I saw some comments there. It sounds like I'm a propaganda, you know, but Tang Biao, he knows that I'm not. So I'm trying to say, it's like, remember, uh, we talk about the nuclear weapons. I echo one of the speakers. I think it's Matt or Miles. Um, uh, you know, uh, 
do any countries want to go that point? No. But if、uh, Xi Jinping now, if we compare him like Putin,、uh, both of them they have some common.、Uh, they have some common features that scares the whole world, and the world has enough reason to 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 be wary and to be nervous about this. So, so. Uh, but nobody wants to see the world goes to that point to have two、uh, insane people to just press the red button. So how can American and his、uh, allies to contain China strategically, militarily, and make a very clear message to Xi and his military、uh, hawkish、uh, directors that don't even imagine to you know to win the war? So that's a message. It's like just imagine like.、Um, Uh, how 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 much how much Ukraine's people on the ground have to suffer? It you know nobody wants to see a war, but it doesn't mean that U.S. has to show a soften line with China. So that's the point. I want to further elaborate that. And secondly, I think Kang Biao has made a very good point, and I want to enhance. And one of the speakers, I forgot, but I appreciate that the distinction between China, Chinese people, and the CCP. I do see. You know,、um, the previous、uh, administration, Trump administration, several very smart people like Matt Pattinger, like even Pompeo, they have made very good points. That you know, first, the fundamental difference between China and the U.S. is on ideology. What do you mean by ideology? It's like look at China's、uh, recent statement. They make a lot of statements on what a Chinese. Uh, what a Chinese socialism, communism country Xi Jinping wants to build, that is very、uh, troubling, and it's just a lot of、uh, you know a lot of ten- attention should be put on this part. It's like if we look at China as a socialism, communism regime, it's written in their common,、uh, it's, in, it's written in their、uh, statement. They wanna、uh, diminish, they wanna eliminate capitalism, and they also want to. Eliminate,、uh, you know, eliminate, delete all the um, uh, they call Western concepts, Western values, Western model of living from this planet. That's worrisome too. So if we look, go back to the radical、uh, difference between two regimes, that's a fundamental difference, and that's. That's、okay. an actual legitimate reason to to for us to to talk so about campaigns. So there's a there's、yes. a prodigal. You'd be you'd be great to respond to Vivian's point, but before you do, so I know prodigal, you've got a lot to say there to balance out the discussion.、Uh, thanks for sharing those points,、uh, Vivian and, and prodigal. I want to kind of get your thoughts on 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 what Vivian just said. So please do keep those points in mind.、Um, Austin, I want to go back to you on the questions I asked earlier. If you remember, I asked you a few of them. Uh, just on the、um, how military conflict would look like and the possibility of nuclear arms、um, uh, getting involved. Of course. Okay, so there are three things I want to cover here. So I'm going to lay it out. What I want to cover is the possibility of nuclear usage. I want to cover U.S. Chinese trade, and I want to talk about、uh, Jesus. My third point. I'm having a Rick Perry over here. We'll get to my third point when I get around to it. All right. First and foremost,、uh, the potential for nuclear conflict. Okay, no, sorry. My third point was the the chances of the U.S. getting involved in a war between China and Taiwan, and why sort of urgency is key there. All right, number one, nuclear nuclear conflict. Even even in the case of a conventional war between the United States and China over Taiwan, I do not foresee the usage of nuclear weapons happening because no matter if a country is an autocracy or a democracy, at the end of the day, the the structures of power recognize. That a, a full-scale strategic nuclear exchange means the end of their systems of power. It means the end of their oppositions. 
systems of power, and it means likely the end of their country and the country that they are opposing, right? But what, um, do you, what, what, what if what if Xi Jinping's uh, fears for his life? There was an argument made that the only time I can't remember who it was, some analyst, the only time Putin could use nuclear weapons if he fears for his life. So, if 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 a if an autocratic leader feels that it is a sunk cost at that point, if we if we legitimately believe that uh, Xi Jinping will either be deposed from power by an opposition force like the United States or internally, then I think there's a severe um, the severe risk incurred by that individual instead of spending his time organizing logistics to escape and preserve his own life, to give out a nuclear order would likely exacerbate the uh, the opposition forces within his country's ability to remove them from power, and you would likely see mass defections amongst the nuclear forces doing so. Um, if, if you look at how dictatorships have fallen in the past, if a dictator like, like Chusco in Romania, let's say hypothetically Romania had nuclear weapons, had ordered a nuclear strike against protesters, likely the people in charge of actually authorizing that or launching that would look at, you read the writing on the wall and say, you know, sacrificing the entire country because this guy doesn't want to leave power isn't worth it. Um, that being said, I think it would be important for either side in a conflict like this, as it would be important if the United States were engaged in a conventional war against Russia to consider that. And that's where, you know, dialogue comes into play there. Um, and I think you would see, even even in the case of a full-scale conventional war, I think you would have backdoor conversations going on about the application of, of nuclear forces towards something like that. What I'll, what I'll finish that first point on is that as of right now, I'm not terribly worried about nuclear weapons being launched between China and the U.S., between Russia and the U.S., and I think a great example for that is, is North Korea of all countries, right? Because North Korea, uh, you know, as autocratic and dictatorial as it is, um, even uh, – Kim Jong-un recognizes that self-preservation is sort of paramount there. Um, and as many missile tests as he's doing, there's a reason he hasn't launched against South Korea, Japan, and the United States. So that's number one. Number two, why, why uh, U.S.-Chinese trade. So a really good resource to look at trade between countries um, is on the OEC's website. So you can find that at oec.world, and you can sort of see imports and exports between countries based upon sector and, and in some cases by individual goods. So a really good point was sort of brought up by Miles and Matt earlier talking about, you know, the U.S. reliance on China for trade in, in certain sectors and how we've already sort of seen serious economic shocks coming out of the war between Russia and Ukraine, specifically in areas like energy um, and agriculture. So if you look at so I think it's well known what the United States imports from China. I think it's less known what the United States exports to China and how that's grown over the past couple of years. So I'm going to be operating from 2020 numbers for this right now because I'm not going to pay the OEC, the OEC for a premium subscription at this moment. But if you if you look at the changes from 2019 to 2020, there are a couple of major sectors that seriously increased in regards to U.S. exports to China, and mainly they are energy and agriculturally focused. Um, China is a is a net importer of energy and as of lately has been a net importer of agricultural goods. On top of all of this, so should China decide to go to the war with the United States, they're going to be facing severe economic shocks on top of what they're already dealing with, two sectors that are fairly crucial towards making war. Number one, feeding your people, and number two, you know, powering your machines. On top of all of that, the majority of Chinese trade is conducted by sea. And if you look at a map of you know, China's coastline, there are four key sort of corridors that the United States Navy has been preparing to lock down in the case to try and cut off sort of Chinese trade. Those, those four corridors 
are number one from the Yellow Sea to the Sea of Japan between South Korea and Japan, both U.S. allies. The second is through the East China Sea between Taiwan and Japan, one of which a U.S. ally, the other a pseudo-U.S. ally. The third is through the Philippine Sea between Taiwan and the Philippines, both U.S.-friendly states where, you know, American bases exist. And the last and arguably the most important goes through the Strait of Malacca, which exists between Singapore, Malaysia, and Indonesia, which is a very thin sort of uh, sea corridor that, it, Austin, you know. Did you, yes. did you say did you say that I know that the, the U.S. military has a base in Philippines, but did you say they have a base in, in Taiwan? No, the United States doesn't have a base in Taiwan, but the United States Navy is postured to defend the seas around Taiwan quite easily um, and quite quickly. So, okay. it, so the United States naval strategy in this case, we're looking at full scale conventional war, right, is going to be cut off, is going to be to cut off Chinese sea trade. And by, you know, locking down those four corridors, you're eliminating a, a, a majority of Chinese external trade. And that's a huge reason why they've been dedicating so much investment towards um, not just Belt and Road initiatives in foreign countries, but towards land-based trade corridors out of the, the western portion of China. Uh, so I think it, it's, it's a fair conclusion to arrive at that a conventional war between the United States and China would be economically devastating, not just to both partners, but to the entire world based upon supply shocks alone. Um, the last thing I'll say here is the, the reason for urgency and why I believe the United States would get involved quite quickly in a conflict like this is because the entire sort of the, the strategies that have been laid out for the defense of Taiwan rely heavily upon timing. Um, as I kind of talked about earlier, uh, what's necessary for the Chinese to secure early in, in this sort of hypothetical conflict is sea lanes to get towards Taiwan. And the, the major sort of force standing between them and the beaches of Taiwan isn't necessarily air power. It's mostly sea power. And by that, I mean submarine power. Um, the United States Navy has, you know, positioned and postured its submarine force to be capable to engage in the Straits of Taiwan to sink some of those roll-on, roll-off ferries I discussed earlier. Um, and if the United States decides to dilly-dally in that case, then that sort of edge will be will be sort of easily lost there. Um, in the case that U.S. bases in Guam, Okinawa, and, and Japan are struck first before something like this happens, I think it's a guarantee the United States will be involved because U.S. military bases were struck. And in the case that those aren't struck, but we do see large-scale posturing and you know an invasion force heading for Taiwan, I think the timing and of the necessity for those submarine forces will push the United States to act. What, what if what if Russia what if Russia gets involved, takes advantage of the opportunity, and attacks the U.S. Um, in, in what capacity would Russia be able to attack the U.S.? What do you mean in what capacity? So, so I know the military is not – I know the military is well behind China, but if sure. – would the U.S. be in a position to be able to, to – um, I know then you've got sure. NATO, etc. Then, then you're talking about World War if, the, if Russia gets involved and NATO gets involved or potentially World War. Yeah, Mario, is that so, plausible? So, 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 There's always nuclear so, missiles and submarines and flying across the skies that even if they did – use a nuclear attack or EMPs, they always have to worry about a responsive strike. Like this is, this is very speculative, everything we're talking about right now. So, so I would, I would agree actually with one of the few times I actually agree with prodigal there is that, yeah, no, the triad remains there. Um, in regards to Russian involvement in this case, I mean, if Russia decided to attack a NATO ally, I, I don't, I don't really see Russia having the capacity to, you know, fight the European portion of NATO alone right now 
let alone the United States on top of that. And if, if Russia decided to get involved in a war over Taiwan in the in the Pacific, uh, Russia doesn't really have the boats or the, the logistical capacity to transport a force necessary to, you know, go toe to toe with the South Koreans, let alone the United States. Uh, a question that I have for a protocol, I know you've got a lot to add. Maybe I'll ask you that question, protocol. Do you think uh, Biden and Xi Jinping are bluffing when they say Xi Jinping says he's ready to use military force to reunite Taiwan and Biden saying um, that the U.S. will get involved militarily if uh, China invades Taiwan? I mean, I don't think they're bluffing that they will. They could do it, but I don't think it's in anybody's plans. I mean, the issue is here is that more people may die from supply chain disruptions than from actual nuclear weapons, right? This is, you would cement forever uh, the Sino-Russian alliance, which at this point, I wasn't for Ukraine, and my focus has been on China for years, but at this point, we've achieved the reverse detente. Uh, We've managed to achieve the exact opposite of what Kissinger and Nixon did, and we have managed to unite two of our biggest geopolitical rivals. You look at China and what's going on. Uh, they have a stranglehold on, on rare earth elements and uh, precious metals, earth minerals, etc. Uh, in some cases, up to 90%. They've secured uh, Indonesia's nickel. They've secured Myanmar's uh, rare earth elements, which in some instances, they control 100% of the market that U.S. and European Western systems are relying on. You look at, you know, if that occurs and we do the same type of retaliatory sanctions against China in the financial system, a lot of countries are going to have to debate whether they want to uh, start moving away from the dollar, et cetera. I mean, this could be we, – we aren't doing anything we need to if we're serious about China, right? If this occurs, uh, China's been stocking up on supplies of commodities for well over a year and a half now, you know, in excess of its historical record, some, in some cases six to eight months out. It seems that they've been preparing for any, any contingency. And when you look at, at, at the situation and what they're doing and, you know, at a time where global shipping containers are hitting record lows, that they are building out their own fleet to ship their EVs now as they're, uh, you know, starting to cement their hold on the auto market, they seem to be doing a lot of things that we are not. We haven't moved our pharmaceutical manufacturing, a lot of our other uh, technical manufacturing. We haven't unleashed American air- energy. I mean, the other issue that will come up if if this turns into a truly world war, what happens with Turkey and Syria? What happens in Libya? What happens in Yugoslavia? Well, the former Yugoslavia. You know, once the world order is completely over as we know it, it's a land grab. You know, anybody who's telling you different is lying to your face. And you have to ask yourself at this point, you know, what weapons does the U.S. have? Yes, we have a much more modern military, but our production capabilities are shit. We have five prime contractors that, you know, in the last couple of decades, our policy was just enough, just in time. Well, that doesn't work. Uh, at this point, you need to stockpile uh, munitions and other equipment that you're going to need in these prolonged, protracted awards, especially because they burn up so fast, especially, you know, the kill ratio on the field. So this is stuff where you look at Biden, you look at the rhetoric as he's ramping up with China, which, you know, was something that, uh, you know, the administration for a long time didn't care about. I mean, they let out Huawei CEO, uh, let her go back to China. This is a, a administration that removed the Buy American provisions for the national EV charger. This is an administration that, you know, doesn't have any complaints about uh, the Chinese global leader and EV batteries setting up shop in Michigan, which is basically it's a CCP front. They're going to import their labor. It's about to be a, basically a Belt and Road initiative in the U.S. They're not even giving us any of the IP, even though they still like we're not serious. Like to hear people talk about potentially opening up a second front in 
Asia, when we are having trouble supplying Ukraine as is, even if they get their, their F-16s at least 18 months out based on training, and if they use used ones, if they want new ones, it's up to six years. Like, we are not in a position uh, to, to, to do these things they're threatening. And if you think we know it stateside, China and them know it as well. What happens if South Africa collapses and Europe, Europe can't get uh, South African coal next year? Right. There's a lot a lot of Band-Aids across the world. Uh, the stranglehold the uh, Belarus, uh, Russia and China have on fertilizer. Yeah, Canada's there and India's trying to step up. But we are not in a position uh, to be doing this. And I look at these people like they're not serious. It's the same reason why American, you know, I'll end with this. If we're serious, then you need to unleash American energy because Europe is going to be completely reliant on us. If other areas like Algeria, Morocco, <laughs> and et cetera, a free-for-all breaks out in the Middle East because Iran gets nuclear weapons. Like, this is, we're not a serious regime. Americans are not serious people. And, you know, if they don't wake up, you know, you, you, don't question if you're a young kid or if you have children why they end up in a battlefield in Eastern Europe or over in the Asia Pacific because we're going about this completely oh, oh, wrong. Oh, oh. Also, so, I know you've so, got a lot to say on this one. Go no. Yeah, no, so I think, I mean, Prodigal brings up a lot of points and that are valid. I would I would push back, and, and, I'll, and, I'll, and I know Austin Defenders also has his hand up, and I'd love his input on this as well. But I think w- one of the things that you've seen the U.S. military done, specifically post-2017, just as a general, right, and then even lately since 2020, 2021, is there has been this shift into great power competition. And the one specifically, right, if you look at one branch of the military that has specifically solely now been focused on China is the U.S. Marine Corps. The U.S. Marine Corps has completely changed tactically, operational, strategically, their command structure. Their, their, yeah, their I don't doubt we can pivot. The issue is we waited until the threat was there. There's a lot of people who've been sounding the alarm. Right, but no, but, 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 but Particle, I think the, the, the issue you're, you're, right, so I think this is twofold, right? right? This is a twofold issue. The, the twofold issue is that I think what, what the, the benefit of the Russia-Ukraine war from the U.S. side and the European side is that it has, it has it, it's shown a growing issue of mass production of U.S. weaponry. And we're seeing the U.S. Army do that. But one of the things that people completely forget is that the reason why the U.S. was able to ship so much equipment to Ukraine, and we haven't shipped everything, and we're not shipping everything at once, but the reason why the U.S. is because we have a lot of stockpiles, right? That anybody who served in the U.S. military can tell you exactly where all the equipment, the old equipment that we have that can be transitioned for time footing. And then what we're seeing is that the U.S. Army specifically, and I think this was Vivian, I think, mentioned it with the uh, Secretary of the Army. Right? She, she made a comment of like, the intent now is because of the Russia-Ukraine, we're mass producing specifically a lot of equipments uh, related to artillery. But the problem when you're analyzing... I, I'm Russia, not just looking on, at the on, equipment. On, on, I'm, on, I'm looking on, at the on, recruitment. How are the hold recruitment on, levels? Doing for the prodigal, 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 wait, please. Thank you. So <laughs> I did not mute. Um, so the, the, the other issue is, is that it's, it's twofold, right? If, if China is going to launch an invasion on Taiwan, it is not a quick issue. That is what Austin, I, and, and, I'll, and I'm going to push it to Austin Defender as well to see to get his. No, blockade. they'll probably do a blockade before an invasion. It makes sense. Okay. Hold on. Hold on. Go ahead. So. That, but that's the that's the problem. That is what Russia Ukraine has shown. That is a problem that has been shown. You cannot just do a blockade because the moment you do a blockade, you show your hand and you allow the West to respond and you allow the U.S. to respond. China's only chance, only chance 
is to go, in my personal opinion, is to go all or nothing in a scenario of Taiwan. And if they do that, it requires a significant amount of combat power buildup that makes what we saw in Russia, Ukraine, the months of warnings that we got, the months of build that we saw, was to that's child's play. Because this is not just crossing a border, a land border. You would have to do an amphibious invasion. And Austin hit the nail on the head. Amphibious invasions are the most, the most complex military operations that can exist. The command and control that would be required, the, the ability to maintain and, and supply. Because once you get the forces into Taiwan, if you get into Taiwan, you have to sustain them via sea lift. It is not easy. And that time it would take, and there's only certain windows when amphibious and salt invasions are reasonable within China Taiwan because of weather. So you have a short window of time. You have to do a buildup. You have to do everything. If China does a blockade first, the problem they're going to run into is that the U.S. gets to respond to that. They lose the strategy of surprise. And now the U.S. has a, re a reasoning to respond preemptively into that scenario. But Mario, let me let me let me push this to Ocean Defender because I know he's hands hands up and I would love his input as well because he focuses. So, on so you think the U.S. would use live fire if they blockade it? I, I think the U.S. would challenge it, and then the question is, if, if China decides to respond, I mean, it would be up to the U.S. how we respond to it. If China, does how blockade, do you think? How do you think they will respond, also? If if, if China does a blockade, I we think the U.S. administration. Blockade. Yeah, I think I think it's 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 a, it's a blockade is a declaration of war, and if the U.S. says that they're doing anything to alter the status quo, because why would China do a blockade? Is to to do a forceful unification? I think the U.S. administration could say this is a declaration of war. This is China trying to invade Taiwan. We will respond. Again, what Russia, Ukraine has shown is that you need rapid success and rapid success. And I'm not going to go into the military aspect yet in this space. When Mario, when we do the whole war game, I can go into it. It is very difficult to do it when you have centralized military. But I think we should get OSINT Defender into this conversation. Jump in, OSINT. You got to unmute, man. Yep. Uh, so, so I wanted to go over two specific things. Um, but the first one, I know Mario would ask this multiple times, but was about uh, nuclear launch procedures for the U.S., China, and Russia. Yes, they're all yes, they're yes, all, please. <laughs> of course, of course. They're all very different. Um, we know particularly most about the U.S.'s uh, launch or authorization procedures. Um, so, of course, the authorization procedures start with the president, who has something called the nuclear briefcase or the nuclear football. <clears throat> and it's a briefcase. Um, where if there is any sort of nuclear threat um, or any nuclear decision needs to be made, it can be opened up uh, with the military uh, attache that the president currently has. Um, and from this briefcase, he can communicate with the Pentagon. So um, when you say so military, do you say uh, you say military attache? Can you can you elaborate? Is that someone next to him that needs to unlock it, or is like a, a special key? Correct. So there is uh, there's a special position. Um, that is, I, I think there's five different people that work under the president. From They can be from whatever, branch, but they're usually from the Air Force. Um, and it is somebody that works directly alongside the president and carries this briefcase usually. You'll see them sometimes they have it handcuffed to their, uh, to their hand. They're usually in a dress military uniform. Um, I've heard that it can be enlisted or officers, but it's usually an officer. Um, but it's just somebody that's within the military that is always with the president. Would, would we still have the element of surprise if General Myers... Hold on, hold on, protocol, 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 protocol. Let's just, I want to continue the, the nuclear pr uh, launch procedures for China, U.S., and Russia, uh, and we'll continue the discussion. So, yeah, so you've got, all right, so you've got the, 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 the briefcase, you've got the attaché, uh, what's next? 
Okay, so so this this briefcase allows the president to communicate directly with the Secretary of Defense, the Joint Chiefs of Staff, um, the Pentagon, and also some other defense officials, and I'm sure uh, congressional officials as well. Um, from this briefcase, uh, they can kind of make decisions um, that will alert the Joint Chiefs of Staff. So the Joint Chiefs of Staff will be the the people that will give this direct order to these uh, to the launch procedures to the Pentagon. Um, and it, it gets a little bit complicated, but with this briefcase, um, the president can decide whether th- there's a lot of stuff in the briefcase. Uh, it's really hard to go over. Um, I don't fully know. I don't think anybody fully knows what's in it, but there's definitely a lot of numbers, a lot of sheets that has information on our nuclear capabilities at the time. Uh, so that is land, sea, and air base. So the entire triad, um, which is our nuclear submarines, um, our nuclear bombers, and our nuclear silos um, across the country. Um, and th- this would tell the president what he's able to do um, regarding either a preemptive strike and then to prepare a secondary strike, if need be, or a response strike. Um, and this could be decided to be uh, individual strikes. So um, if they needed to just launch a couple of missiles at something, um, like let's say a fleet, uh, let, let's say China's already launched missiles at a, one of our fleets and we need to blow up one of their fleets with some nuclear torpedo or something. Or let's say we need to strike a, uh, a Russian or a Chinese site uh, after they've already hit one of ours, but it's not a full exchange. Or, of course, um, th- this can be made from a full exchange. And once this order is given by the president, um, it would then go to the Joint Chiefs of Staff, as I said. And the Joint Chiefs of Staff would then uh, send this uh, throughout the National Military Command Center and NORAD, uh, and from there, it would go through E-4Bs, which are these these flying uh, operational command centers that, that will fly sometimes with the president and will also go airborne at any time that there's any sort of training drill. Um, and they are able to communicate with all of our strategic assets around the world. So that is our nuclear silos. Um, okay. all so there's our, a, there's a said, few... Yeah. There's a few layers to, to the to the missiles being launched. Now, if you go to Russia, I know it goes through a couple of generals that could refuse orders. I'm trying to oversimplify it. So you can correct me if I'm wrong there, and I would love you to go through China's procedure because that's yeah, the only Barry, one I don't know anything about. get to that about. point, we're screwed anyway. Let's not, let's not <laughs> okay. tell you. Let, let's – I'm just really curious. I'll tell you why protocols. Like when the more layers there is, the more at peace I am. Yeah, because Mario, that's, you'll, I think, you'll see the flash before we figure this one out. Let's let's hope we never get that. that, that that's assuming there's not many layers. So if you, if if Austin Defender tells me, no, in China there's no layers. Uh, Xi Jinping could press the button and that directly transmits the message to the missiles that get launched. Because uh, Xi Jinping really consolidated powers, I will start looking for a bunker. But if it tells me there's different layers, etc., and they could uh, decide to refuse obeying orders, like there is in Russia, that possibility. Um, then I'd be more at peace. So, Austin Defender, briefly, what's the procedure for China and Russia? We'll keep it brief, and then we'll continue the discussion. Of course, uh, it's going to be brief either way. We really don't know too much about either of them. Um, China specifically, um, all nuclear orders come with a, a briefcase kind of situation from the chairman of the Central Military Commission, which is Xi Jinping. There is the president of China. Um, and this goes directly to the Central Military Commission, which is who he is the chairman over. Uh, from there, they it's said that they would decide whether a nuclear strike is needed or uh, or in any way uh, 
respectable for this situation, um, and they would make that decision. So it, there's some people that do say that Xi Jinping could make the decision himself, but it would most likely have to go through the entire Central Military Commission. Austin, I have another I have another question for you. And Dustin, is he with us? No, he just dropped out. I'll try to bring him up, um, but he probably won't have the authority to answer it. But just curious, and call the question naive, but do you think – you know when China said that the lines of communication after the balloon were, were halted, do you think the presidents could just pick up the phone and speak to each other without – you know, just confidentially and they do it on a regular basis? Or oh, that's just completely naive. It's just not that simple. Like, how how is the line of communication between the Chinese president, the U.S. president, and the Russian president? Um, again, not public uh, discussions or meetings or phone calls. Um, so, so a lot. Of <laughs> I'll that tell you what. Happened. You can go ahead, Mario. Sorry about that. Uh, my mic is muting by itself. Go ahead, Austin Defender. I'll let you answer the question. Okay, so, so a lot of that is, of course, top secret. Um, it's known that there is a lot of deconfliction lines between Russia and China. Um, when it's talking about military communication lines that have been cut recently, these are not these deconfliction lines or these, uh, these red phones that were talked about during the Cold War. Um, these are more direct lines. So, uh, any sort of issues, like let's say drills or, uh, exercises that do go on, um, other countries will know that we aren't doing this to, target them specifically. These are what these sort of lines are for. These aren't deconfliction lines. Um, I'm sure that the president has some way to communicate with uh, the Chinese president and Putin if he ever does need to, if things do get to that level. Um, but, but again, those are probably direct lines between the presidential offices that we would not know about personally and probably wouldn't be on any sort of record. Can I ask you one more one more. One more question. What's the, the U.S. ability to, let's say, uh, China or Russia launches a few nuclear warheads because Putin um, is desperate, whatever. Like, I'm not saying it's a possibility. I know it's extremely unlikely. But then again, I, I thought it was extremely unlikely for Russia to invade the Taiwan. So what's the um, – uh, if Russia does uh, launch nuclear warheads, does the U.S. have the capability – um, to intercept, and again, U.S. capabilities, same with the capabilities of most countries, is usually confidential, top secret. But is it plausible? Is it possible that the U.S. has the capability to intercept uh, some, most, or all nuclear warheads a country could launch? Now, obviously, Russia has too many, but not all, not all of them are. A small number of them are active. Um, are you talking about a nuclear attack on the United States? Yeah, is there, do they have the ability to intercept such an attack? Um, so, actually, yes. Uh, the big portion of our destroyer and cruiser fleet have become these uh, ballistic ballistic missile defense nets. Um, so, with the there's a new system that is actually going into a lot of destroyers and naval ships right now called the Spy Six system. And the entire point of this system is to be able to communicate with other. Uh, defense systems and ships in the area to be able to target and designate these ballistic missiles to take down. Um, the biggest problem is is that a lot of these systems are not able to intercept until after uh, these missiles have uh, reached their, their peak and have already started to come down. And by that point, a lot of these missiles nowadays will explode um, in midair and spread out a number of warheads and also a number of duds. So it, it's, it's kind of a trying to shoot fish in a barrel. Um, you may hit a couple of them. You may hit a couple of duds, but you never really know which ones are the actual ones and which ones are going to hit. Um, the biggest thing that the U.S. has been trying to do for the last 
uh, 30 years specifically, um, and we did this a little bit during the Cold War, is uh, land-based interceptors. Um, we have our FAD batteries that are able to limitedly uh, hit ballistic missile targets, um, but the biggest thing is, is actual full-scale interceptors that are able to launch kind of a uh, its own kind of group of missiles that are able to hit uh, this warhead before it gets to this peak or after it does reach the peak, it's able to intercept a lot more. Um, these tests so far publicly have not gone very well uh, out of, I think there's been over 15 tests now. I think only five have succeeded in, in totally uh, intercepting a lot of these warheads. So, I mean, we'd be able to intercept some of them. I'd say probably around 20 to 25%. Um, but but the rest of them would probably hit their targets. Shit, 75% is enough to annihilate um, a big portion of the world. Um, uh, Austin, anything to add on on uh, on what OSINT mentioned? I know it's very – I, I want to add a question to this to, that goes to you, Austin, OSINT, and other speakers. Is um, I think most of us are not yet concerned of such a scenario, at least not too concerned. When – would you be concerned? When do you think it's like, oh shit, now I'm worried and let me plan uh, what to do if this happens? Austin? Mario, if I, I just quick, just to add, there's another system called the ground base interceptor as well. Those are uh, more like silo launched. Um, and if anybody really wants to understand like how the US does uh, interceptors, because yeah, OSINT Defender hit all of it. I just wanted to add that one specifically, the ground base interceptors, but I uh, just Google Missile Defense Agency. That, that's, that's, do, do you want any do you really, information? But do you agree? Agency. Do you agree? Do you agree with what OSINT said that the, the US only has the capability to, to intercept 25% of the missiles? I, I'm not going to speculate. I'm not really in a position to really know. I, I know what I will say though is that when you really talk about US air defense, especially at that level, um, so the, the, the Russian air defense is more or like the Chinese air defense is more for focused on aircraft. If you talk to any, you know, U.S. air defender, what they will tell you for the most part is that they focus on ballistic missiles uh, because it's like air superiority from like aircraft to aircraft. That is the Air Force. The U.S. achieves air superiority utilizing our Air Force. And so a lot of our air defense system has been specifically designed to target ballistic missiles. Um, I, I mean, that's this, kind of this... where I would say it. This is a little insanity, right? Because all, all that needs to happen is a couple gets through. Uh, major urban areas across the world are nine meals away from ripping each other's heads off. Like, if if just a couple gets through, the collapse you would see well, the, globally. The, the, the protocol, like, yeah, yeah, yeah but I, I'm just surprised it's only 25% because the amount that the U.S. military spending dwarfs any other country. China doesn't even come close. And it's been consistent year after year for Oh, what decades? How long has the U.S. been spending such a crazy amount? Yeah, but all they got to do is more than find the... the one weak spot, right, to evade it. You look at China's focus on drones, turkeys, etc. We can build, you know, a billion-dollar jet fighter, but if they're able to cheaply, uh, basically render it useless or you know destroy it for pennies on the dollar, like there's it's just different strategy, right? You're asking why not? They just have to find one weakness. We have to keep the entire shield up, right? So, so oh, there's actually a yeah, there's a really clear reason why that capacity is actually quite low. Um, number one has to do with the ABM treaties during the Cold War. Uh, and the reason that the U.S. and the Soviet Union signed the ABM treaty is both sides realized that if one side has the ability to intercept the other's missiles in mass to a degree of, you know, 70 to 90 percent, 
then that effectively eliminates the the concept of nuclear deterrence, right? The the entire concept of mutually assured destruction relies upon the fact that both sides will be destroyed. Um, and once any any one power gets to the point of eliminating MAD from their side, that incentivizes the other side to launch preemptively to prevent that. Because yeah, but Austin, our side doesn't even yeah. believe in nuclear energy. They don't believe in birds, so like they're cheerleading. I, I mean, I, I I would actually completely agree with you, Prodigal, in that our that we don't believe in nuclear energy, and I think we should. I think nuclear energy is the only real alternative to. Uh, to no, I mean, people actually don't believe nuclear energy exists. They don't believe birds exist. Like this is the uh, the, the IQ of a large portion of the American populace. They don't. I don't even you say, understand the dangers <laughs> of this type of. Okay. 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 So, so, so first off, the, the I, I think it's important to note that the birds aren't real narrative is is mostly mostly parody, but I think we're getting to a point where some people actually think that birds are government drones. Um, that being said, no, no, no. But back to the back to the point at hand here. The reason the United States doesn't have the ability to intercept, you know, nuclear missiles at large is because that's that's a diplomatic and a strategic choice being made by um, the large scale nuclear powers at the time. To, to ensure that MAD exists. And MAD, to this day, in my opinion, is still the largest, um, the largest deterrent towards nuclear escalation. Uh, Defender brought up some very good points that a lot of our destroyers and guided missile cruisers um, are capable to some extent to intercept ballistic missiles. But that's, uh, to this day, that's a very imperfect scientist. Yeah. Science, sorry, not scientist. Um, it, it, some would describe it like shooting a bullet out of the sky with another bullet. Um, uh, Austin, uh, I, I want to yeah. go back to the question of when do you, when are you worried? Like when should you audience? Because you go, yeah. When when should we when should we be worried? Because I so, so uh, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, so so when inauguration back, day, January twenty twenty one. Oh my god! Um, <laughs> when, when I when I when I look back on history, there is there is one point that I kind of continuously drive to as being like if I was in that moment, I would be scared about nuclear escalation, and that would be the Cuban Missile Crisis. When you have before you know before the red line was established, when you don't have leaders explicitly talking to each other the entire time, and you have a blockade being run from one nuclear power to another with both sides having police present that have the capability unilaterally for nuclear escalation. Um, I don't think we've come anywhere near that since then. Uh, where I would be worried is if you have, you know, threats of nuclear escalation going all around from both sides in a conflict, none of them are talking to each other, and there's a present existential risk to either the, in large scale, to the civilian populace of a nuclear power or to the power structures that be there. Um, but I think the largest, the largest thing to look at is, you know, is a conventional conflict already happening? Is there large scale losses on both sides? And have communications been completely, completely cut off? Um, that's where I would start getting worried. Uh, I, I think we've is come it, nowhere near but, there. Austin, yeah, we're not there it, yet, Mario. In, we're not it, there yet. But is it an unfair statement, Ian, Austin, all source, uh, everyone? Is it an unfair statement if I say um, nuclear weapons and centralization of power um, make it make a nuclear conflict inevitable? It's just a matter of when. Uh, no, I, I I don't think it's inevitable. Um, I, I think, think there's so a either. higher. I think I think there'll be a. But you're saying, but you're saying, but you're saying, in the next couple of hundred years, you're not going to have one crazy leader uh, in in the U.S., in Russia, in China, 
uh, cross that line and not give a fuck. In the next 200 years, we're going to go through dozens of leaders. For sure. At at the end of the day, I I think leaders, no matter how much power they have, no matter how autocratic they are, the one thing that sort of drives them at the end of the day is self-preservation. Um, and as long as, as long as mutually assured destruction exists, I think at the end of the day, no matter how terrible someone is, no matter how autocratic they are, uh, they face a future where they have a bed or they don't. And, you know, I I, think, I think that will continue. That has been, and I think that will continue to be sort of Uh, uh, one point. And I know uh, before you jump in, Ian, okay. So Austin, just to kind of add on to that. Um, and, and uh, I'm just going to use an example. It might sound silly, but hopefully you'll get my point. Um, you know, Hitler could have, you know, surrendered, um, you know, when he knew he lost the war, but he didn't. How do you know we're not going to get like Hitler couldn't destroy the world in nine in the 1940s? So, couldn't destroy. Yeah, on that point, I mean, that's a great point. That's not a stupid point at all, uh, Mario. That's a fantastic point. Our concern is not with, you know, America or Russia because these are sane actors. They know what they're doing, well, for the most part. Uh, no, but if Putin, was, but if Putin dies, like in, in, in 20 uh, years, someone else takes over. My issue is not with Russia at all. I think it's our concern is with someone like North Korea or Kim Jong Un, right? If he feels like he's being threatened, he might actually deploy nuclear weapons. And that is the issue. Some, you know, a, a belligerent actor, not like Iran or, or Syria or Russia or America or, you know, any of the nuclear powers currently, but someone who has access to nukes and the ability to use them and isn't, you know, isn't, doesn't have these, 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 you know, long standing hundred year, maybe not hundred years, but 60 years at this point, nuclear powers, right? Someone who's new to the arena uh, might actually be willing to use nuclear weapons. That's, that's the worry. And that's why. Well, Ian, can I ask yeah. you something though? Because like Austin said, a psychopath still has self-preservation. See, my concern, and I think Mario used a good word. He said crazy. Uh, what's your estimation of this occurring? If you have a president who has early onset dementia and basically doesn't know where he is, eats ice cream two, three times a day. Yeah, if you look, um, if you look statistically, we have every X number of decades, we have a crazy leader leading a a a, a, centri- a, a powerful uh, superpower. I think okay? there are checks and balances well, I mean, in the United States. I mean, prodigal. The chances of that happening are probably higher because the only country to use nuclear weapons is the United States. No other country has ever used it. So, despite us speculating about crazy leaders of the past and USSR, but, that's, but, that's, but that doesn't mean. But that doesn't. Bro, bro, that doesn't mean anything. It's like, it's not like, you know, there's only one instance where nuclear weapons have been used, whether that was by Russia, by China, by the US, or any other country. I don't think it means the US, it doesn't make US more likely to use one. No, uh, no it doesn't over... make it, but what I'm saying is like USSR crumbled, they didn't use nuclear warfare, did they? So, I mean, the possibilities that. But they weren't, but they weren't being led by a crazy person that we haven't had a Hitler lead a superpower. In a really long time, but, but if you Mario, had a Hitler, I think one, but one point about Hitler, right? So Hitler actually had a very extensive chemical and biological weapons program. Like Nazi Germany had extensive, you know, chemical. But he wanted, he wanted, but he wanted to. But didn't he, he, didn't he want to destroy Berlin? But, but 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 that's the point, right? So I mean, okay, take it away the Holocaust. But if you look at the war, there was this understanding of Nazi Germany had that at the moment they used it, the West was going to use it as well. Right. And I think that is the point that 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 Austin is getting at. Right. That the fact that there's there's this mutually assured destruction. Right. Limits why, the ability. But, why, but it also also why would Hitler give a fuck? Because he destroyed. He at least ordered Berlin to but be destroyed. Did, but but that, the, the guy didn't follow the orders. And then he killed himself. But he didn't use it. Maybe he didn't right, have the ability to use it. I don't, I don't remember history. But why would he why would he not? So if he had the ability. So he destroyed. He wanted to destroy Berlin. 
if he could bring down Berlin while bringing he, he destroyed Berlin by not surrendering and he killed himself if he had you're saying that in, in that mental state if he had the ability to also destroy the enemies while destroying Berlin he wouldn't use it why is better than destroying Berlin so, without destroying so, the so, enemy I mean, I mean, Mar- we're going we're like, going to the psychology source, right there there's really cool. Go ahead, Austin. Really quickly here, yeah. When, when when we look at Nazi Germany itself, even if you look at Hitler's sort of order to destroy uh, Berlin itself, right? I think it's it's also equally important to look at what all of the equally radical individuals under Hitler were doing at the time. When you, when you look at Hitler, when you look at Manstein, when you look at like literally anyone within that chain of command, what were they doing at the time? Who who weren't in the bunker? Uh, what were they doing? They were running to the Allies and surrendering. Um, so I think it's equally important to say, even in a case when we're describing like the maximum amount of radicalism, even if even if the one guy on top says, you know, my country should burn, every other country should burn, the people under him are thinking about their own self-preservation. They're thinking about their families. They're thinking about what happens tomorrow. They're not thinking about burning everything today. I'm going through the comments and, and people are pretty split. I'm just going through them. Some of them saying like it's a, it's a matter of time. Others saying, you know, we're, we're, we're kind of fee mongering and, and it's impossible. Um, Olsen Defender, where do you stand on this uh, as I'm going through the comments? Um, I, uh, I'm, I'm kind of in the middle. Um, I personally believe that the U.S., Russia and China – um, have had nuclear weapons for so long that we have a good enough checks and balance system to where if we do have some sort of crazy radical leader that there are enough military and civilian officials that are in the way of any sort of nuclear launch or directive. Um, North Korea, I'm honestly not too worried about. Um, I, I'm not really sure who said that. I think it was Ian. Um, and I, I do agree that North Korea is worrying, but I am personally more worried about Iran and Israel um, two nuclear powers in the Middle East. It, Iran may not be a worry right now for launching an attack directly on Israel, but my biggest worry is that Iran will provide nuclear weapons to uh, Hezbollah or Hamas or countries like that that will some way smuggle it but into they should Israel. Be, but so there. they should be – they should be – Elson, they don't have that many, so they should be easy to intercept. And I think all, uh, all three countries, Russia, China, and the U.S., will work together on intercepting – uh, such an attack, because obviously everyone knows the repercussions of of, uh, of such an attack. But but also, defender, if I may, I think what I think people forget, like there has been nuclear powers that have fought wars, and that India and Pakistan in 1999. Like, so if you look at India and Pakistan's history, right, the major wars that they fought, the moment they both became nuclear powers, the next one that kind of happened was 1999, the Cargo conflict. Right in 1999, and that was the least combat intensive war that both sides fought because they both had nuclear weapons, right, and they understood that you know there gets a point where this kind of can escalate further. And I, and I would argue that the, the, probably the India-Pakistan, in my opinion, because of the amount of quantity of nuclear weapons that they both have and how they view each other as geopolitical threats and, and, and existential threat in many arguments could, could re- increase the likelihood of a nuclear war. And yet we see that when they do fight or when there's moment of maximum tensions, when there's people concerned that nuclear wars involved, can be involved, what you do see, and I think Ocean Defender and Mario, I actually know Mario, which you're getting, you see the international community quickly intervene to de-escalate because of the inherent risk that there is. So I'm not making the argument that nuclear weapons, because there's this, there's this theory, right, this international theory that nuclear weapons brings world peace. I don't think that's true. Right. But I but but the nuclear weapons and weapons of mass destruction in general, it doesn't even have to be nuclear weapons. It could be any weapons of mass destruction in general, chemical, or biological, increases the threat 
of war and increases the risk of war and what it could entail and at what level can you go. And I think if, if we can bring this back to Russia and China, we have to remember, though, right? A, a, I mean, not Russia and China, I'm sorry, a China-U.S. war. It, it, the, the really only way we can really see a U.S.-China war as severe as probably what we're seeing in Russia-Ukraine is because of Taiwan. But the, I think there would be kind of a consensus between both that, yes, there might be attacks in the U.S. and attacks against China. But in the end of the day, the center of the war would be around Taiwan. And that geographical limitation in and of itself serves as a barrier to further escalation, right? The US uh, so I agree with you. I agree with you as well. I think the, um, if there was going to be nuclear war, I think India and Pakistan would have a greater chance, not only because of um, them being on the border of each other, but also when you look at the ground war that could occur, it, it, only, it only works if Pakistan make a preemptive strike. So the chances of that happening okay. are much larger. And just to answer Mario's point from before, I don't think the Hitler example is a good example because with, with that wasn't a nuclear example. In his, he even said in his statement that he was willing to destroy the infrastructure with the understanding that they could rebuild it again once the enemy once once the enemy left. Whereas with nuclear, you can't have that. Well, hold on, you're saying that if Hitler had nu- nuclear capabilities back in World War II, okay, maybe. But but I, I've I've got a question. Um. I asked earlier that is it possible that China or the US or even Russia are bluffing because if we believe everything is being said publicly the US is does not want a PCL is backing Ukraine Ukraine wants Crimea Russia will not accept defeat uh, yet Ukraine will not accept to give out territory so if this is all true and no one's bluffing there and they're not going to meet halfway then I can't see what the outcome could yeah, be, and then but, but the same applies. War, the same applies. The same applies to yeah. Taiwan. I'll let you go, protocol. The same applies to Taiwan. If the US says I'm gonna, and I've said this a few times, if the US says we're gonna support Taiwan militarily, China said we're gonna reunify Taiwan militarily. Um, unless someone is bluffing, or at least uh, you know, trying to 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 show strength with the intention of meeting halfway, but without showing their cards. That's the only the only outcome that would uh, that could avoid war because otherwise there's no other possibility unless they change their mind. Yeah, but Mario, you could bluff your way into wars, right? You could lie your way into wars. We saw that with Iraq, WMDs. Just because it's a bluff doesn't mean that it might not escalate. I agree that once nuclear, biological, WMDs, etc., are involved in the mix. You have to be much more calculated in the, in the decision making because any action you take that escalates could be world ending. There's a reason why India and China beat the hell out of each other with paddles on the border instead of firing guns because they don't want to unleash a live fire war that could lead to nuclear engagement. But here, uh, you know, they are putting themselves in positions. You're having more armed deals go to Taiwan, which I don't have a problem with. You're having more senior U.S. leaders visit. And at the same time, with this chips sanctions, which I agree is a good thing, but we should have done it a long time ago. Uh, you know, China is going to build up its own domestic industry. China right now is weaning itself off of U.S. corn. It's buying more and more of Brazilian corn. You look at China and it seems to be whether it's bluffing or not, it's taking it serious because of what was done to Russia. And this, you know, now you have the, the, the FBI emerging, you know, two years later to admit that they always thought it was a leak and you know, it was probable and most likely. Like there's a ratcheting up of geopolitical tensions that I'm seeing, you know, uh, Biden take, who I'm no fan of, that I, I don't understand why we ratchet up tensions right now, especially if he's intent on supporting Ukraine as um, much as he is. 
It's just it's insane to see what's uh, going I, on. I'd like I I also I'd like your answer as well to to what I just asked. Is that unless someone is bluffing, um, I just don't see a positive outcome. Uh, regarding Ukraine, I don't think anybody is bluffing right now. Uh, do I think that things will change in the future? Possibly Ukraine decides. Um, I've got a question. Could, could could you if Ukraine the only possible solution that I'm seeing is Ukraine gives up some territory. I don't see any other outcome. I just don't see Putin accepting because he loses his grip in Russia. I don't see him accepting pulling out of all Ukrainian territory. I just don't see that to be a possibility. Mario, what do you mean by I, I, I what don't... do you mean by uh, Ukrainian territory? Um. I'm talking well, French Crimea. They, they think the Donbass, right? The Donbass, oh, Crimea, Donbass, Donbass, yeah. You mean the separate regions? Yeah, that's fine. Yeah, the, the, those yeah, regions, I, yeah. I, Russian I, territory, I, Ukrainian I territory. Since 2014, you know, that's just yeah, I don't care where my money doesn't go there. Yeah, I mean, I, I, oh, I, I entirely agree. Um, I entirely agree with what you said, Mario. Um, Crimea, a lot of people don't realize since 2014, a majority of Crimea has become Russian. Russians have moved there in droves. So I think from what I've from what I've heard, almost fifty-six to sixty percent of Crimea is now ethnically Russian. Um, Donbass, uh, the Donetsk and Luhansk regions are a little bit different. Um, they are still ethnically Ukrainian, so that could kind of be changed up. But so, is, but so that also, then, then back to the is is uh, Zelensky bluffing or his administration is it bluffing when when it says uh, we will not give up Crimea? Is it just a show no, of force? I, I, I did tweet something today that was an official that kind of indicated uh, potentially changing their mind. It was a bit vague. Uh, I'll read out what exactly he said. I don't know if anyone saw the tweet or saw the news, uh, but I'll read out what he said. Maybe that kind of indicates um, potentially Ukraine either changing their mind or, or yeah, kind of moving away from the forces in Bakhmut right now, and they don't have the kind of support they were expecting from the West. Right, they were expecting a lot of munitions coming in from NATO. And they got tanks, out. man. They got tanks, and now they've, there's a possibility tanks, of them getting tanks jets. Are not a game changer. Tanks are not a game changer. I'm talking about artillery, right? Munitions. And they, and they, didn't, they, get tanks. they didn't get them. tanks from the United States. They're still waiting for like the main tanks from the United States. They got a few. Yeah, from but we, they're getting. But yeah. every. But guys, every time I mean, there's something that we think is talking about but, it, right? Look, you, if you look at the way that everyone's talking about it, whether it's uh, Britain or Germany or France or the United States, all these countries that have pledged uh, to support Ukraine with even more weapons. They're saying these weapons are not coming in for maybe a year, maybe two years, and and they're talking let about me, after the war, right? They're, they're let, me, let me let me let me let me quickly read out what I was referring to. I just found it. So it just says the the um, what's his name? Uh, so Oleski Danilov, Oleksiy da- Danilov. So the strategy for the deoccupation of Crimea, uh, he says it's time for a new edition. The sequence of means of deoccupation, political, diplomatic, military, economic, etc requires a change in priorities and his position is secretary of the national security defense council of ukraine so is ukraine hinting at either changing their mind or kind of part of a planned yeah. bluff Zelensky and could we see could we see openly talk could we see about... something similar i'll just finish my question and let you go in it and is it can we see something similar with taiwan uh, and then if so i just i just don't know is it going to be us is it going to be china how could it play out ian Okay, so first I'll I'll say that uh, um, Zelensky has been openly talking about endorsing China's proposal for peace, right? It wasn't like people mistake it and they they thought, oh, you know, China's proposal is the plan. No, it's not the plan. It's just a proposal. 
but he, ha- he has expressed an interest in supporting the proposal to come to peace with Russia. This is something that's unprecedented, you know, for, for about a year now. They've been talking about war, war, war. And he still talks about that. He still goes on about war and fighting the Russians. He has to maintain his rhetoric because he has his own people he has to deal with. But he has openly supported, I mean, the, the possibility of supporting China's proposal. So this is being talked about. And right now, uh, it looks like uh, Russia is making a lot of inroads with China as well as with India, where you have, you know, the G20 summit that's coming up. Uh, you know, very recently, just what yesterday or a couple of days ago, you had uh, Lavrov going over to India and talking to them and 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 forming relationships, like trade relationships and all these things. And the topic of Russia and Ukraine was not even brought up anywhere in the G20 thing, right? That's uh that's like a no go zone. They're they're talking about the future now, so it it seems like it. I'm not gonna say it's wrapping up, you know, and things can change tr- drastically, but this is where it seems to be heading. As for the question of Taiwan, I mean, I, America obviously doesn't want to lose Taiwan to Chinese influence. But at the same time, the Taiwanese are an autonomous country and, and they can make their own decisions. It might be in their interest to uh, come to a sort of agreement where with China, where they agree to become a part of it, but they'll still maintain some kind of autonomy with the United States. So it allows them to trade openly with the United States, even though they are so, run ostensibly by the Chinese government. Mario, if, I'll, I'll, if I may, if I may, if I may, I think, because I do want to ask this question, though, too, because what, what I think Ian is maybe referring to is the, you know, uh, uh, what is it, one country, two systems. And I would like Vivian, because Vivian, you, you know, you were a journalist in Hong Kong. And if you can kind of lay out from your experience there when China basically overruled Hong Kong's autonomy. If you can give a layout about that and how a lot of people from Hong Kong might have felt, like do they felt like their, their liberties were trampled? Is this something that they actually wanted to allow China to have direct rule over Hong Kong? If you could just kind of lay out kind of the protests we saw and then how China just took over control of Hong Kong. Okay, thanks. Uh, you know, we, 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 we make the topic a little bit shift back to the, the region. Because I, uh, honestly speaking, I do see a lot of American uh, framework of discussing the things. Uh, one thing I have to say, because um, you know, in the comparative political science study, somehow we we can compare two societies if there are fundamental factors that com- to be compared comparable. But uh, for most of the time, uh, I think one uh, complex of doing comparative political study uh, cases is that actually many countries, especially two societies, are not comparable. So sorry to put this on the desk because I see a lot of discussions uh, basically uh, involving uh, the com- just incomparable comparisons, so to put it this way. Uh, so I'm glad that you made the question. Uh, let me, because uh, before Hong Kong, actually, I spent quite many years in, in Beijing. And uh, I, as I see, one of the frustrations that a lot of correspondents that work in China or have worked in the region um, is that they, how they need to, how they cover China in a framework that uh, their homeland audience could understand. You know, so but somehow my point is why it's so difficult to understand China's uh, uh, mindset. And I just heard discussion that you say because um, don't have any access to decision making process in the military. So it's even hard to understand how uh, China Xi Jinping makes a decision to press a button. Uh, but then we go back to talk about uh, the possibility of using the nuclear weapons. Um, so my point is, uh, somehow the decision-making system in China could be very 
straightforward. It's definitely up, uh, you know, but up to the bottom. But sometimes a lot of factors are involved, and uh, uh, and Xi Jinping can be uh, very direct, make a very direct order to 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 interfere into Hong Kong uh, affairs. But many times. Uh, in a lot of occasions, once we see uh, how the information was sank, was buried in this uh, layers, uh, layers democracy, uh, bureaucracy. Uh, one prominent uh, comparison that I want to use is like there's a famous photo about uh, how Putin, how paranoid Putin is about his security. So he's, uh, uh, he's continuously using extremely large size uh, conference table. That's very hard. Yeah, I've seen those. Uh, see, like yeah. you see the pictures, he's sitting on one side and the other one's like yeah. 20 tables yeah. away. So I think that's a good comparable case uh, for us to, uh, you know, uh, analyze how Xi Jinping makes his decision on certain uh, cities. Um, but that's also the typical nature of the dictatorship and, the, you know, the dictatorship regime that how um, isolated uh, if, uh, a, a a dictator could be in the information. So go back to your question about Hong Kong. Um, I think all the Hong Kong's uh, doom started from the from the time when it was handed over back to China in 1997. Uh, that's uh, but at the time, Hong Kongers were actually a lot of Hong Kong people. I wouldn't say Hong Kongers because there's identity issue. A lot of I think half of the Hong Kong people were hoping that they will have a so-called homeland, a great country to embrace, but uh, very quickly we see the deterioration of uh, democracy, freedom of speech, independent judicial system, everything that makes Hong Kong unique as a free uh, democratic international uh, society, in addition to his important uh, position as international finance uh, hub, are fading off. Why? Because Xi Jinping, Especially during the past 10 years, we see this downfall of Hong Kong democracy um, uh, right after the, there's a very famous case about the Causeway Bay bookstore. I don't know how much uh, the, the audience here know about that, but that's a typical mm. case saying, uh, okay, there's a famous uh, independent bookstore. Usually the publication in Hong Kong, uh, in the past, publications in Hong Kong were definitely uh, free. People can publish whatever books unless you register as a publishing house, extremely free, extremely uh, easy. But that Causeway Bay bookstore was raided and all of the ma- all of the staff and the managers were taken back to the mainland China. Uh, for those people who don't understand the the geographic. Uh, so to, 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 I want to go back. I, I do want to go so, back to the yeah, to the to the to the question. Uh, just yeah. uh, I, I, I want to go back to the question. Uh, just to, if you don't mind, because I know Matt and Emergent also um, Emergent hasn't had the chance to speak at all yet in the space. Um, just to, to continue from what Vivian said, uh, maybe we'll go to, to um, Matt first and Emergent and Evita. Matt, uh, where do you, the question? Can I conclude my Yeah, point? please do. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, of course. Uh, about Hong Kong, I would say, for now, Hong Kong people are living in the fears and the frustration. That means that uh, on the regime level, Hong Kong is part of China forever, politically, geographically, and, and they have nothing to do. Uh, as long as China won't, uh, is not democrat, uh, demo, uh, you know, democratic, uh, democratization doesn't happen in China, Hong Kong has no hope. But how to look at Taiwan? I think Taiwan... People also looking at how uh, Hong Kong fall into uh, this I, completely controlled yep. China city. So 
Taiwan people want to watch Hong Kong and they, they want to warn themselves and, you know, never let CCP uh, come to Taiwan. So whatever it takes. Mm. And I think that's a message as a, a White House is taking seriously. I think that goes back to the question why, why uh, yeah, hard to say, but why uh, White House now making some points that they have to do something on Taiwan if China invades. Mm. I hope. That could be a good case to study Hong Kong. It's like never really imagined that CCP would back off. It's really about direct confrontation, but it's also about how to do it strategically. I have to say the world doesn't do uh, very smartly with uh, Hong mm. Kong. You know, not enough voice is made when Hong Kong was, you know, ruined by the CCP. Okay. I want to. I want to go. Thanks a lot, Vivian. And, and Matt, wait, wait, I've, I've got a question for you. She just finished, bro. And I, I want to go to Matt and Emergent just on the question of um, just uh, continuing from what Vivian just said. So I think it's a good continuation. Where do you see um, Ukraine and where do you see Taiwan in 10 years? Maybe, Matt, you want to kick this off and then we'll go to Emergent, Olsen, and Evita? Yeah, I mean, I think in 10 years with the Ukraine, I think you're going to possibly, uh, you know, you're going to see in the next, uh, it's a prediction. You don't hold me to it, I guess. You can't hold me to it. I, I don't care. But I think in the next one to two years, you're going to see the Donbass and Donetsk regions get autonomy like they want. Uh, Crimea is not going anywhere. Uh, I've never seen anyone make threats while they're surrounded by three sides with over 150,000 Russian troops. It, it, it's, it's unbelievable that we're believing the propaganda from the legacy media in that war. And uh, I don't see any way out for the Ukrainians here. They're running low on ammunition. They're not winning the war despite what the legacy media continues to try to push, propaganda. Um, so I think, you know, I think that thing's going to hopefully, you know, fizzle out here in the next, you know, 18 to 24 months. We have a U.S. election in about 18 or 19 months, which that could really, uh, whoever, depending on who wins that, could bring people to the negotiating table and end that as well. As far as Taiwan goes, I, I think if, I disagree with what some folks said. Now, they may have, they probably got more experience than I do, but I don't think China is going to go across 100 miles of treacherous strait to, through sea to try to, you know, do like a Normandy or a D-Day type situation. They've planned for this. They've got the PLA. They've got over a close to, I think, somewhere between 30 and 50,000 paratroopers that, you know, they can get anywhere within all of mainland China within 24 hours. They practice these drills. Um, they've got these J-6s that they've turned into over 400 MiGs into suicide drones. If they're coming for Taiwan, they're going to come in with, that, with you know, four or 500 of those suicide jets, which are now drones, take out key, you know, defense systems, military targets, probably come in with, I think it's their Y-18s or Y-20s. Don't hold me to that. I'm not a military expert, but they'll come in with, you know, paratroop. They'll drop in and try to take control of Taiwan with, with tens of thousands of paratroopers after making a massive strategic strike on infrastructure and, and military targets. And, and they'll probably take it quite easily. I don't see them even going across the strait. I don't think they have to. Um, now, if the U.S. somehow gets involved and wants to escalate that to a to a, to a possible insane outbreak. I, I don't see the U.S. getting involved if Taiwan invades because it's going to come and it'll come swift. It's not like they're going to announce it or make a phone call. Those are my takes. I think, unfortunately, well, what, what about Taiwan's Japan, under Chinese though? control. Matt, Matt, what about Japan? Because they've sort of hinted that they would engage if China went after Taiwan. Do you think Japan would actually... I mean, they're remilitarizing as we speak. They just signed mutual pacts with the UK for soldiers in both of their countries and with a Marine regiment, they've extended it in Okinawa. What's your thoughts on Japan? It's alarming to me with, with how history repeats itself that we've allowed Germany and Japan to build armies to begin with, to be honest with you. It's, it's, it's unbelievable. I mean, 
we had treaties in place. Maybe it's, it's only been 70 years, uh, you know, since people were trying to take over the world and, and we had an Axis alliance of evil here. So I, I don't know. I've got a different stance on that than a lot of folks do probably. But um, I, I don't think Japan can stand up to China. Uh, it's a numbers game. I don't think it's necessarily a, you know, a talent game, so to speak. But they've just got such a massive military. Uh, they can just come in with waves. They don't, you know, you've seen what they've done with the younger. They don't care about sacrificing people. They'll do what it takes to take to take Taiwan if they want to take it. But I think in ten years, to, to, you know, to answer Mario's you know question, probably I think in ten years Taiwan is probably under Chinese control. And I think that uh, you know Ukraine loses thirty to forty percent of their land mass. And I hope that's all that happens over there, and and uh, and things are back to normal to a degree. If I could just say this, ahead, if if I I I I pray, I pray that if China decides to invade Taiwan and they do an airborne invasion, it would it would make the Russia invasion of Hostomel Airport look like a success. If if China if if anybody believes that China can seize Taiwan, be an airborne assault or an airborne invasion only. It would be an unmitigated disaster because you have to think about the just the, the, the sea that separates China and Taiwan. You're talking about it. First of all, when we talk about Taiwan, let's not forget it's a country. Well, I believe it's a country of 24 million with a vibrant democracy. Right. So let's never forget the Taiwanese perspective on this and in their own aspirations as people and what they want for their own country. But how, two, strong, how strong is that? How strong is their military without the U.S.? So no, with, that's a problem. I'm not going to undermine that. However, the same argument everybody made about Ukraine. I would easily make an argument that Taiwan's military was better prepared and better equipped than Ukraine's prior to the invasion and that Ukraine suffered a much worse situation because of a land border. If, if, if you are going to invade Taiwan, if China's going to invade Taiwan, it would make D-Day pale in comparison. D-Day is nothing compared to what China would have to accomplish to invade Taiwan. An airborne invasion on the Taiwan mainland, we can talk, the outer islands are separate because Taiwan has outer islands or some of them that are like at spitting distance from China. That is a separate conversation. But if you're talking about the mainland, to actually seize absolute control of Taiwan, a country with 24 million people, you cannot. Yeah, I, I didn't say seize absolute control, but you've got to come in in some capacity. You know, you got to have a first strike. And I think that would be their first strike. They would They would take out a lot of military infrastructure with their drones, their missile attacks. I mean, my God, they've got over 79 submarines right now uh, with, with crazy capabilities. They have abilities. We're acting like this is, uh, you know, this isn't our, the, Iran, the Iranian Navy. You know, we're, you know, this is an, they have the ability. Of, I, don't, I think it's the same situation we deal with in the Ukraine when people say, well, Russia's struggling. Putin doesn't want to turn, you know, Kiev and Lviv into a parking lot. He believes it belongs to Russia. He, he believes there's a lot of Russian sympathizers, which there are, in the Ukraine, same thing with Taiwan. I don't think there's a lot of CCP sympathizers, but I don't think China wants to come in and make it, you know, rubble either. So I think you have to look at it when they come. If they come for those things, they're going to they're going to do it in a strategic way to not level the place. If China or Russia wanted to take Ukraine or Taiwan and did not care about casualties or landmass or infrastructure, or any of those things, they could take it in a matter of days. And I think anyone who says otherwise is fooling themselves. They could absolutely level both of those countries. No, so you, Russia cannot, again, it, it, you're, uh, Russia absolutely failed, period. They, they showed they're an incompetent military that does not have war, sufficient war planning. They do not know how to use combined arms. I'm sorry, this is something I would virulently argue. They failed resoundingly to seize Kiev, which was their primary strategic objective. 
And the, the, now, if we're going to talk about drones and everything like that, I'm all about having that conversation, right, and strikes. Because what you're getting at is targeting, right? The, the targeting, the ability of targeting and collection, because it's both. You have to collect, utilizing intelligence, and you have to target effectively. What we've seen Russia struggle extensively in Ukraine is to have effective targets that make an impact on this military situation on the ground. I do not disagree with you that there would be a first strike. There would be a massive, there would be a massive strike against Taiwan military, civilian government, and military infrastructure. But what, what Ukraine has shown is that even after a, a strike like that, you can still fight a, a war, right? You can still fight. China, to seize Taiwan, if you do what, because if you look at how Russia, when they initially thought how they were going to seize Ukraine, they literally, Matt, it's exactly everything you said. They thought they can go in, do some decapitation strikes, some critical strikes, send in their military, and that they would quickly collapse. Within the first two days, and they realized that that was a failure, they started to transition their military strategy to then do massive land operations to conduct a massive invasion, more organized, not perfect, but more organized to launch an invasion against Kiev, which ended in a resounding failure. What the Russia-Ukraine war has shown for China and Taiwan, if I'm China and I'm a Chinese general and I've been tasked to invade Taiwan, you cannot, cannot rely on the people on the ground to turn the situation for you. You have to do what the U.S. did in Iraq. You have to go in full strength, what the U.S. did in 91 and what the U.S. did in 2003. Full strength, full might, absolute dominance. Because if you allow the enemy the time to operate and to counterpunch and to react, you buy time. And any time Taiwan has, you're inviting U.S. And thank you, Prodigal. Thank you for saying Japan. You're inviting Japan because that was something I was going to bring up earlier. You're inviting Japan. Japan will definitely intervene in this. You, 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 you open up the possibility of Australia. You open up the possibility of Europe. You're opening up invitations of other militaries to start disrupting your operation. And the problem that China is going to have in a Taiwan scenario, if they get into land, they still have to do more offensive to, to invasion on a country that is extremely mountainous. Taiwan is extremely mountainous. Oh, oh, oh so can I, ask you, can I ask you a question real quick? Yeah, go ahead. If China was ever going to make a military move, which I don't think was its initial goal, it, it had vast success infiltrating Taiwan's political and military structures. The problem is, since things have gotten so bellicose now, uh, if they were going to achieve a union through elections decades down the line, it seems that that timeline's extended. But if China was going to make a move militarily, I think they'd let North Korea off the leash first. Do, do you? Uh, I mean, what's your thoughts? I think that North Korea would be let I mean, off the that, leash. That is interesting. I just think the problem, if you're running into but North do Korea... Do North Korea think, have any... Do they even have any capabilities? So, I... Yeah, well, Seoul is I mean, so I mean, close, I, close that they could just use I mean, regular artillery to I mean, bomb it out of existence. Yeah, I think a country that suffers through food insecurity, just as North Korea, that has history that they can run into famines very quickly... And malnourishment. I'm not going to put too much. I'm. They're a threat. Let me just put it that way. But I think the thing, the differences between this is that I don't. I don't think people can look at North Korea as quote unquote China's ally, right? North Korea is inherently independent in how they make decisions. They can. They could give a rat's ass what China thinks. They could give a rat's ass what Russia thinks. They will do in the end of the day what Kim Jong Un believes is best. And they're very, 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 very nationalistic and internal in how they make decisions. I, if China were to tell North Korea, invade South Korea, I can literally see Kim Jong-un being like, mm, no, thank you, but no, we're good. You you do you, right? We're not going to get kind of involved in this. Maybe they'll give them weapons. Maybe they give them some token support. They'll go to the United Nations and say, yeah, China has, this is China's internal. Besides that, I don't think there's more to it. But again, a Taiwan invasion, 
right? The first and most, this will be an invasion where the critical domain of this war will be naval. It will be prime, decided by the naval component. And the reason why for that is because the only way China can sustain its invasion into Taiwan is through sea lift capability that Austin hit beautifully. They can leverage their civilian merchant ship once they've established a secure port, but they have to maintain that sea lift capability, which allows the United States that has enormous deep strike capabilities to disrupt that. And you do not require much disruption to break down. And then the second point that I think is very important to highlight as well is command and control, right? An amphibious invasion has a plan. Dwight D. Eisenhower said it best about D-Day. Plans are useless. Planning is essential. In other words, the initial plan that China is going to have when they invade Taiwan is going to be very scripted. China's military is a highly politicized force. And the, the, they have political officers. They make Russia's military look apolitical. They do not encourage decentralized command and individual initiatives to make decisions on the ground. That is going to be a problem. Everybody talks about when we talk about cyber, everybody talks about, oh, China can disrupt and do, you know, hack and destroy our infrastructure, and our communications, etc. I'm not denying that. But so can the U.S., Right. And so you're going to run into a situation where you might have China and Russia. I mean, China and the U.S. fighting a war with no communications. I am very confident in the U.S. ability because all U.S. military officers train on this to fight in, a, in, a, in an environment without communications. Literally had to do it as a platoon leader. No communications, oh. no GPS. You're going to fight. I do not trust oh. China's ability to do that. Go ahead, Mark. Oh, Austin, Austin, hold on. I just want to ask Austin Defender, and I'll give you the mic back protocol to ask. Um, so I want to ask Emergent. Uh, Emergent, how are we even comparing China to the U.S. or Russia to the U.S.? In this case, China, sorry. How are we even comparing the Chinese military to the U.S.? When the U.S. has been spending so much for so long, how are they even comparable? How is it even impossible? Well, first of all, I wanted to, um, and by the way, for those that don't know my background from previous spaces, I'm a, uh, Army Air Defense veteran. I worked for, uh, NORAD, also worked in the civilian nuclear industry. Um, so, uh, here's, here's a couple of thoughts. First of all, I think All Souls is absolutely on the money there with the how China would have to conduct, um, an invasion of Taiwan. Uh, there, I think General Flynn had a space the other day, and he had a couple of other uh, senior U.S. Uh, military leaders in there, and they were talking about how would a how would a Chinese invasion of Taiwan even go? And basically, the 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 scenario here is China can do two scenarios. There's two feasible scenarios. China, uh, China could attempt a fast invasion, which will be chaotic, and most leaders on both sides agree that would fail. Or they would have to do, as All Souls was hinting at, an invasion with a very long buildup, which means they would have to position forces along the shore. They would have to relocate ships to ports. They would have to start putting assets in place. And those are things that geospatial intelligence is going to pick up. Uh, those are things you're talking a six month or, you know, four to six month minimum buildup for that to happen. And during that time, the U.S. could easily position, you know, assets from Guam, assets from Japan. Uh, they could deploy a couple of carrier strike groups and park them directly in between China and Taiwan. So in the fast scenario, China most likely fails and it's a national embarrassment to them. In the slow buildup scenario, they give the U.S. and the allies in the region a very 
long time to respond with their own moves, which ultimately then it, it kind of it kind of puts China in this scenario. Well, then if the if the U.S. and allied buildup is is greater than their own, then they risk, again, a national embarrassment by either launching a failed invasion or by backing down and blinking in the staring contest. So I think that's probably the most likely outcome there. I think China is probably posturing here. Um, I think part of it is a, a point of national pride for them. I think when push comes to shove, they want Taiwan, but I don't think they're willing to self-destruct over it. Uh, yeah, with their likely. demographic crisis, why would they chew up all those young men? I mean, they're, they're I in mean, the long game. Sure. Uh, you know, I think I think they're. I think their response would be probably a little bit more along the lines of try and combine that with, uh, you know, trade deals and economic sanctions and economic warfare and hope that somehow, honestly, right now, I think China is kind of pivoting their attention. We don't know what they're going to do. They're kind of pivoting their attention to helping Russia and Ukraine in some way, maybe financially, maybe, you know, we don't know if that's going to be boots on the ground, but that seems to be their current play. Why? I think because they see an opportunity to get the advantages they would want uh, without risking a Taiwan invasion. Um, I think that's that's part of the reason. Um, a couple of other points I wanted to make. Uh, somebody commented earlier. I don't uh, know before, if it was before also. We imagine, keep, keep the points okay, in mind. Back to your other point. Um, if they do a blockade on Taiwan, how would the U.S. respond? And then please continue with the other points. I'd say most likely you'd see a buildup of various forces. Um uh, various forces in the region. They'd probably give assistance to Taiwan and various factors there. Um, and then you'd probably see U.S. Uh, carrier strike groups deployed to the region. You'd probably see forward place assets uh, in probably uh, Guam, uh, Guam, Japan, etc. You might even see some assets pulled from the from the Atlantic fleet to go support them, just depending on... It's probably going to be one of those... some. You know, a group of generals will, and admirals will make a calculation of how much have the Chinese built up and how much do we need to build up to uh, to provide uh, enough of a threat that they won't risk it. That would probably most likely be the goal. I, I will yeah, say, though, and I, I think emergent is important to highlight this. Though. I mean, we, we in history, we have run into a blockade before and it's the Berlin blockade. Right? Everybody goes to the Cuban Missile Crisis, but the Berlin blockade is a perfect example where the U.S. just flew over it. And we, we challenge the Russians with well, the Soviets into it. And, and, and that could be now there's a risk of obviously conflict. But I think once the first bullet flies, either it's war or diplomacy, but the blockade is over. But I think the U.S. would find ways to challenge it just like we did in what was it, 1961? Sure. I, mean, agree. I, I agree. I agree with the parallels that you guys have made with um, Russia's invasion with Ukraine, because obviously even Putin said that the reason why he basically kept his foot off the gas was because he saw them as his, his own people. And then you have the same problem with China and Taiwan, and that makes it a lot more different than when the US was invaded in the Middle East. So if China don't view in the same manner and become brutal, then they have a chance. But yeah, if they hold off like the way Putin did and was a bit more off the gas, didn't destroy the infra- infrastructure straight away, then yeah, they will have problems. Yeah, and um, that, that was um, 
kind of so my other the other thing I wanted to touch on was somebody commented earlier. I'm not sure if it was All Souls or uh, or if it was OSN, but they commented on the uh, the regional uh, systems uh, like Thad was was mentioned very briefly. I just wanted to point out that there's actually over the last couple of decades been a lot of um, strategic deterrence assets placed in in the Pacific region. Um, they did Thad tests in Japan. I want to say it was around the early 2010s, followed by permanent placements. Um, Taiwan has had U.S. Pac-3 Patriot batteries for a very long time. Uh, in fact, um, I have a somewhere on one of my old phones, I have a picture of one of those sitting inside a warehouse mid-upgrade um, uh, with with the Taiwan, you know, banners hanging off. It's kind of cool. Anyway, um, the... Uh, the other thing there is actually in 2017. So this is a this is a good example of something that that shows how these scenarios play out. Uh, in 2017, the U.S. Uh, sold and placed and did testing with Thad in South Korea, and China was not happy about that and engaged in about a year long economic standoff where they cut certain trade deals, um, and basically they were trying to make. Uh, South Korea pay enough of a political cost for accepting those that they would get rid of them, and it ultimately did not work, and those THAAD batteries are still sitting in South Korea to this day. So there's a lot of regional assets the U.S. has in the region, and in the event of a long buildup China-Taiwan threat scenario, they would likely build up with more. In fact, in their, I think it was 2018 or 2019, it was put on the table. They said, oh, well, what if we sold THAAD batteries uh, to Taiwan, and one of the Chinese generals responded that if you put if you put those in Taiwan, that will be the start of the war. So again, it's one of those things that if China poises themselves for an invasion, then they'll likely say, "Okay, well, we'll just go ahead and put all the stuff there that you don't want to be there." <laughs> so, um, are, are you, are, so they are, can are bluff we, each other. Into a war. I, I had I had one other. Uh, 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 one. Yeah, oh, oh, before uh, keep that keep that keep that point in mind, Emergent. I do want to go to Olsen. He's been he's at his for a while. Also, I'd love you love you to jump in on what Emergent just said. And then we'll go back to Emergent to finish his point. Go ahead, Emergent. You can finish your point, and then we'll push it over to Olsen Defender. And then, okay. uh, and yeah, go ahead. Okay, yeah. So, um, I just wanted to, you know, this is just general, um. So as someone mentioned earlier about what about the communication breakdown between uh, U.S. and uh, and China. So a couple things there. So there is a there is a phone switch network that is used for those high level command type decisions that runs between the White House, the Pentagon, NORAD, um, at U.S. MAGCOMs, any major command. Um, it's called the, the Defense Red Switch Network. Um, there is and it's basically you pick it up and that's where that's where, you know, the important folks make the important decisions. So uh, there is a version of that. I don't have the name of it in front of me. I'm sure I could dig it up. There is a version of it that is essentially the international diplomatic version of that phone network. But there's also diplomatic back channels where, and sometimes world leaders that they need to pass an in, uh, a piece of information in a, in a way that is sensitive to the politics of the situation. Sometimes it's done through third parties or intermediaries. And that's kind of what we saw with Millie 
and his undermining of Trump. Essentially, Milley was using a back channel to make his communications with the Chinese general saying, oh, don't worry about Trump. We've got that. We've got that handled. So those kind of, those types of factors come into play. Last thing is just a high level point about, you know, are we are we, you know, uh, Mario asked, you know, what would what would really concern you? And here's why I'm not probably as concerned as most people here is the the theory of war at a high level is it's it's a, it sounds kind of strange but it's a negotiating strategy so if if china really goes toe to toe with the us they're either out to end the world or they see some way to use war to negotiate an interest that they want right um, so I would see either side in, in this type of scenario would use much l lesser methods or hit some form of outlying target before escalating to full-scale nuclear war. So I wouldn't really be concerned until we see safety starting to be removed, you know, uh, Plugs being removed from from ICBMs in Montana and North Dakota, you know, bombers on station, that sort of thing. Or we start to see actual shoot down uh, forces in the region or actual shoot down events. So I think the um, I mean, and people have speculated about could could, you know, in Ukraine or in Taiwan, could could there be a potential use for, say, a tactical nuke? Possibly. But it's it's really unprecedented in the history of warfare. So there, there's my thoughts. I have a cool. I think just want to ask one more question. Sorry, it took me a while to to unmute. Um, one more question before we go to Olsen Defender. By the way, Olsen Defender, are you there? Because I know you had your hand up and you couldn't unmute. Um, unmute if you're there, Olsen. But uh, uh, emergent. Um, Mario, I'm going to head out. I'm going to add out. The only thing I wanted before to say. You, yeah, go ahead. I'm going to say one thing before I leave. What people are discounting is in Ukraine, the West is, is going to start more and more showing its capabilities with it when it's more modern tech and equipment it sends over, right? Uh, China is studying our tactics, uh, our equipment, etc. And while somebody asks, well, how could we spend all this money and not do it? Uh, they're going to find whichever effective way Russia used and cheapest way uh, to neutralize this machinery and equipment. And I guarantee you that their focus is going to change in their own military and weapons industry domestically. Right. Uh, a lot of Russian drones there are, all, are not just the Iran, Iranian ones. Uh, DJI uh, is instrumental in a lot of the Wagner Group's operations. So, I mean, I don't think China's in any rush. I mean, the longer this goes on, the more it benefits them. Europe, Europe made it through this winter. Let's see how next winter goes if South Africa collapses and Israel strikes Iran for reaching 90 percent uranium enrichment. There's a lot of things that can go wrong over the next year. And the Horn of Africa is going to experience its worst famine. And over a decade, about 250,000 people at a minimum are about to die. Uh, you know, this is not something that the longer it goes, yeah, it's going to hurt Russia and it's going to hurt the West. But China really will benefit just by allowing this war of attrition to play out. Look at no, the but budget. they're risking their, look, look but the they're risking, aren't they, aren't they risking their economy? And therefore, this, it, the, the, the Communist Party is risking their grip. Yeah, but if this they is come their out biggest, if, this is their biggest fear. And they get more regional influence and they are able, while Europe and NATO, while the U.S. and the West is focused on Europe, China can go in and pick up the pieces in Iraq, which is now going to do trade denominated in the yuan, Saudi Arabia, which is now considering it, and grow bricks and other alliances. But still, they're number, they're number eight. The, the, the currency is number eight. They're far from it. I think the, the argument that China – it just it, it, it just overblown, and that, that kind of goes back to the question. I don't and disagree maybe they're, they're far from it, but my point is a, a beachhead has been established, and it's not just China. A lot of countries – 
for how we dealt with, with uh, Russia's central bank and their foreign currency reserves, etc., are very hesitant now to be tied to a Western system that can be politicized and weaponized against them. Uh, look at how much trade India is doing with Russia. This is uh, all they have to do is flip a switch, right? I'm not I'm not arguing it's going to be overnight, but if you don't think this type of erosion is going to occur while we're relying on a Volcker style '80s interest rate increase, which we is still unprecedented what we're trying to do now because we never had this type of debt level, so we don't know if it's going to work. In addition to the increase in the money supply, there's a lot. The next year, this war going longer is not going to be better for us than it is for China. That's what I'll say. Thanks, Portugal. Um, uh, I want to go to Mario, question. I'd like also to make a, I'd yeah, like go to ahead, ask you a question, Mario. <laughs> Would I be able to uh, ask a question? Uh, yeah. Well, uh, sorry, I keep getting muted. Uh, in a bit, uh, who, who just okay. spoke? Who yeah, spoke? so it was, it, it was Austin. It was me. Oh, sorry. No, it was a lady that spoke as well. Was that you, Lindsay, or who was that? Oh, weird. Uh, I thought I heard a lady on it. I think that was Vivita. Vivita was speaking. I think it was Vivita, but I don't want to jump. Ah, and Vita. Yeah, 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 I'll I'll give you. Oh, yeah, of course, Vita, you've been waiting for a while. Yeah, I'll uh, right after Austin, I promise. Yeah, Austin, what's. You want to ask me a question? I I don't know. What's wrong with you, man? What are you doing? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So so this is actually on on, on financial markets and um, specifically talking about the RMB as opposed to the USD and sort of inroads being made. Uh, From my perspective here, I I understand the argument being made towards China attempting to make inroads with the RMB as opposed to the USD or the euro and everything like that. But I I think we're seeing that on a a far more tactical basis, sort of targeting individual markets that don't have sort of a large scale impact over international trade. I would argue that you know, the foundation of the euro was a far larger threat to the U.S. dollar as sort of the dominating currency around the world than what China's currently doing with like Saudi and other countries. I'm just curious as to your thoughts on that. I'm not worried at all. I disagree with Ray Dalio, and I think they're far from it. Um, so that, that's my, my two cents. But, um, you know, I'm, I'm not the expert here. I do want to ask you a question, Austin. Why is no one talking about microchips? Isn't this a battle for the new oil? Isn't this a battle for microchips? Taiwan playing a key role in, in the supply chain and being the biggest manufacturer. Is it all about microchips uh, even more important than strategic value of Taiwan? Because Taiwan is a neighbor to China. I think if it wasn't for microchips, would the U.S. even care about Taiwan, considering the one-China policy? I, I would say, I would say, okay, so I would say, yes, the U.S. would care regardless. Um, and I think that mostly goes to back to um, strategy as well as ideology. Um, I think I think the reason that Taiwan is particularly important, I think microchips is an add-on to that, not necessarily the, the sole sort of the sole sort of reason, right? Because if we look at the, the history of, of US Taiwan relations, you know, those existed before microchips even existed, right? Um, I think I think it plays a, a particular matter of importance today. Um, I do not believe that it's it's the sole reason. And as, 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 before we go to Evita, so Lindsay, you put your thumb down. Do you disagree with Austin? And then we'll go to Evita. Yeah, I disagree with Austin. Not completely, but some of the things he said were intelligent. But I'm disagreeing with like 90% of everyone just because it's laughable. Um, so there's this thing in the world called trading companies. And if you do anything with China, like I mean, I've been trading in China for 20 years. I lived there. I speak Mandarin. Um, it's part of the optics like having someone between you and who you sell to, especially in China. And Taiwan and Hong Kong are part of that. And that was set up by design because the West, and I'm, I'm not I'm not trying to sound racist, but it's like a, 
the the Anglican, the white, the the American style person, the European style person typically did not want to work directly with China. So this was by design. American companies, European companies would set up shop in Hong Kong. They would set up shop in Taiwan. And that created this optic that, hey, we're working with this foreign entity. And that made it easier, right? It also increased the cost. I'm going to pay $17 when I buy something from Taiwan instead of paying $7 from China. China is deeply, deeply, when I say rooted, I don't mean like, yeah, they have a couple things there. They're deeply rooted in Taiwan, deeply rooted. Every single governor in, in the Chinese government has three citizenships, Hong Kong, Chinese, and Taiwan. Why is that? Because they all are billionaires that have businesses in all three places. They have companies that hedge. They have companies that sell materials and assets to each one, and they make money on either side. And they do tiny IPOs all throughout China every time someone like me calls them and says, I need something made. So please understand that this is not in any way, shape, or form like to ever, ever be like saddled or somehow compared to Russia and Ukraine, which is literally a completely different conflict with completely different civilizations. It is nothing similar to, to Pakistan and, and, and India. Like that's like putting tiki masala next to gunpowder. Okay. It's a completely different civilization. I'm not trying to be like rude or, or anything, but it's like, it's, it's asinine. Some of the comments are just like, like guys, like this isn't, a, this isn't like playing Hot Wheels and war games and sitting in your bathtub with, the, with all your toys. It's not the Sunday spread of the Super Bowl and what's Japan got in on it. This is a, this is like world conflict. And it's, and it's, and it's scary because you, like sitting here and saying, Oh, China's going to go and attack Taiwan. Think about the Arctic right now. That's what you need to be focused on because whoever gets the Arctic has complete control of everything on this planet because that's the last place right now where, where there's no one kind of controlling what's actually happening. That's the place right now where there's tons of military going, you know, happenings happening. Uh, China has been fighting for that area deeply since 2003 and has infiltrated every single country that's made any move. Lindsay, Lindsay, I've got a question for you. So if China says, and I'll I'll keep using this as an example, because either someone is bluffing or the, the, the ambitions, the Chinese ambitions of, uh, I'm just going to mute your mic, Lindsay. I can hear you breathe very loud, but, and I'll let you make sure I'm mute to speak. Um, but the ambitions of China, similar to, to Putin's ambitions with Ukraine, uh, outweigh the economic, uh, risk. Okay. I, I don't think China said, I, I'll read out the quote. Yeah. I'll read out the, I know it's not the same, but there are similarities, but it's not the same. I think we all agree on that, but I do want to say one thing. China said, um, we will, you know, we, Taiwan will reunify, reunify with China. And, uh, Xi Jinping said that he will not, um, discount the use of military force to reunite with China. And then the US, Biden said clearly more than once, we will support Taiwan militarily. Either someone is bluffing or this is a serious matter that could escalate to war. I think, uh, I think that. I would, I would definitely check where that came from and who said that actually. Like what? Oh, this is yes. Yeah, 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 I've got, I've got um, it on my thread. Uh, Xi Jinping said that himself. I've got the recording and I put it in my thread. The video of him saying that uh, China will use military force. They prefer not to, but they will use military force to to reunify Taiwan. And Biden is pretty well known as a video everywhere. And it's also in my thread where Biden said he was asked, "Will you use? Will the U.S. send military personnel to support Taiwan in case of an invasion?" I'm paraphrasing, and and uh, Biden just said yes. And I think it's happened on more than one occasion. And both those videos are in my thread, so it's not like a source or someone said or hearsay or anything like that. 
I think that it'd be good to look at the context that's set in. I think it depends on how it was said, but but just my, my personal opinion, then you can move on. But it's just is that if it was said, it was said as a trigger moment. It was said as I mean, Biden. As a, we know so you think it's a possible bluff? Like maybe a bluff, but more of a trigger. Like maybe more of a trigger. I mean, China's la- like one thing that China's more important, like is much more important to them, is to to have customers, right? So there, there's no interest in them bombing someone or changing something or costing them more money or anything like that. They're a business country, right? They they war from a level of business, not not like sticks but and we stones. Know, but they've but they've had ambitions for decades to reunify with Taiwan, and Xi Jinping wants to do it in his lifetime. We've had people say. His opinion of reunification is the same as ours, though. Like he's already done it. Like they already print their money and back the whole country. So like maybe maybe he wants the optics of the pride of like people in Taiwan saying rah rah China. I mean, Taiwan is a democracy that's allied with the U.S. So it doesn't seem like it just. I don't uh, see it it's as a not reunified. Though. It's it's not though. It people say that, but it's not. It's a very. It's kind of like which one? It's, it's not a democracy, or it's not uh, allied with the U.S. It's not a. It's not a democracy like the U.S. is. Like we're very democratized. China is kind of like. I feel like the, like Taiwan is almost like. It's like It's like China's. Uh, like democracy project or something like it's it's not like really a democracy like you and I have here. That's that's preposterous to even make it. This but it's definitely but it's very far from where China's at. So it's a it's a democracy relative uh, to China. I mean, I, I would recommend it's kind everybody of like here it's to, like, to, uh, to, to the counterpoint, Lindsay. If but, I may, the counterpoint to that is uh, literally anybody go on YouTube and look up Taiwanese Parliament brawls. You want to see like how serious Taiwan takes their democratic rights they will fight in parliament and have brawls for it. Like if people think about politicization in the U S is a joke. Taiwan is a vibrant democracy. They fought for it in the, in the mid nineties. They had a revolution to get a democratic system. They have been, this is from the nationalist government in China after the Chinese civil war in 1949, there has been multiple Taiwan Strait crisis. There's been multiple conflict zones between in the cold war between China and Taiwan. And this, and, and, and Xi Jinping has made it in China's, Communist Party has made it abundantly uh, uh, clear also, that they are willing to fight also, for uh, According to the index, hold on, Vivian. Hold on, Vivian. Vivian, 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 can you hold on? Vivian, before I ask you a question, I just want to say one thing on, on all sorts, and I do want to go to Evita, then we'll go to Vivian, because Evita's been waiting for, re- I think, an hour and a half, hasn't spoken once yet, and then we'll give you the mic, uh, Vivian, if you don't mind. But on the point all sorts that you just said, I'm going to read out... Uh, I just Googled top democracies, didn't even put Taiwan. I just Googled, I'll tell you exactly what I Googled. I said, uh, uh, most democratic countries. I clicked on a link. According to the index, the most democratic countries in the world are respectively Norway, number one, New Zealand, number two, Finland, number three, Sweden, number four, Iceland, five, Denmark, Ireland, Taiwan, then Australia and Switzerland. Taiwan was above Australia and Switzerland, and the US is not even on the list. Uh, and then Netherlands is number 10. Um, so that's... Uh, Pretty surprising. That's just Taiwan one is list. a very vibrant democracy. It's extremely vibrant. And, and yes, I, I think no we idea. can go to Evita, but and like, it's, it's a very vibrant democracy. It's a dem- and I'm looking here on Wikipedia as well. Um, in 2020, Taiwan was upgraded from flawed democracy to full democracy, and it's it's in the top 10. It's above Thailand. It's above East Timor, Vietnam, Israel. It's above Israel. Um, so, yeah, it's in the uh, – oh, no, it's not in the top 10. I hold on, hold on. Let me tell you exactly where it's at. Ranked 2022. So yeah, there it is. Number 10 is Taiwan. Above Canada. Above Germany, Australia, Japan. Where the hell is the US? Above the UK is number 18. What the fuck? France, Spain, South Korea. Not even comparable. We're up to the 20s. United States is number 30. Uh, this is, by the way, this is all surprise to me. So I'm just pretty surprised here. If you go to Wikipedia, write democracy index. 
Um, you could check it out. Belgium is at 36, flawed democracy. This is fascinating. Number one is Norway. New Zealand's number two, unsurprisingly. Uh, well, I but want to know is... how exactly they're calculating how democratic a country is. I mean, if you're going to call New Zealand uh, democratic, that's just kind of a joke. Hold on. You're saying New Zealand's not a democracy? Have you I, seen okay, what they've been I doing for the past three years? So, Mario, can we just get to Evita? Because I think we're just yeah, yeah, God, yeah, Evita, yeah, of course, Evita, thank you jump very in. Much. Thank you so Thanks for waiting um, with us, Evita. Oh, no, no problem. So, um, just um, a little digression from what I wanted to ask, but I do think that when uh, if China goes to invade Taiwan, they're not going to do it because it's the same, um, they have the same system, or they think it's one one country. They do it for economic reasons. Um, one of them is a chip factory. The other one is strategic. The other one is resources because there's gas and oil. You know, they have been building those islands for a reason, so they will do it because uh, it will enrich them and they will do it when they're capable of succeeding and they, or they think they're capable of succeeding. Um, now, um, China is a total authoritarian dictatorship. Xi Jinping doesn't have to consult many people. He has been purging uh, competition and opposition, same as Stalin did and Mao before. So he has absolute power. He had been doing it for a while. So now uh, that's my personal opinion on what's happening in China. And they hate our guts and they want to defeat the West and they have allies. So we have to figure out who is their ally. And one other question is, like, I'm not a question, sorry. So even um, in a sense, they were giving some diplomatic hints before the Olympics to sign this eternal friendship with Russia. So they are supporting Putin and Putin wouldn't, he is evil, but he is not done. And he is fighting NATO and not giving it up. So he would never ever, Russia never ever has any chance to fight NATO on its own. So someone else has to be standing behind them. And they know that they are. Yeah, but that, that, uh, uh, yeah. Well, I guess. So, what, what do you think yeah. of this point? Uh, uh, that's actually interesting. You're saying, Evita, hold on. You're saying, I'll let you finish. I'll let you finish. Yeah, yeah okay. I just want to ask you, do you mind if I ask you a quick question on one something you said and then I'll let you finish? Uh, okay. Just one point you said. Hopefully I won't forget um, what I wanted to say. <laughs> okay, I'll let you finish then. I'll let you finish. Go ahead. Okay. So um, I, I do think that uh, Putin is knows that he has a Chinese support. Chinese, obviously, they are watching how is it all playing out. And they know that um, America and Europe um, is using their weapons. And our manufacturing is not yet up to snuff. So it is in their favor. It's definitely in their favor. Also, other things are showing up that there are some countries within our allies that are reluctant to help out. And we need to really also realize who are the allies of Russia and China, because we don't really know that. You know, there's Iran, um, there is possibly India. How can we blockade China in India is going to help Russia and possibly China? They have conflicts, but maybe they are not as big. No, are we able to blockade that? What about our manufacturing? Like we really haven't think it's, uh, fought it through. Germany and France, you know, they also like the Chinese. And Germany likes the Russia, like the Russian gas. They have lots of people who are in their industry, who affect their politicians um, and the politics who want to have close relations with Russia and China. What are we going to do? What about, for example, countries that I am from, Canada, Australia? We have a lot of Chinese communists that pay our you know, who are able to... So what, what, what's, your, what's, your, what's your point? So you're saying that the interconnection of all these country, countries make it well, very unlikely that a war will break out? No, it, no, I'm not saying it may uh, break out. It, we are already in that war. It's already broken. 
No, it just. Nah, we don't I wouldn't know. say. I wouldn't. I wouldn't say that we're in that war at, at all. Like, just if if a cold war is very different to direct conflict, and there's something that has happened time and time again. You're right. Oh, I wouldn't but say we're all we out, and and we still, conflict. and we, we, are we still, conflict. yeah, but not, we but it's very weapons. different when, yeah, we're sending weapons to Ukraine that's using them to fight Russia. It's very different than sending yeah, our planes is, into Russian uh, also airspace. Sending uh, to we don't, Russia. we don't have, no, 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 we don't, we don't have evidence of that. It's possible, okay. but the U.S. at least the official statement, and I'm not saying it's not true. Uh, mm-hmm. We don't know what we don't know, but. Um, okay. Uh, the U.S. Ha- would have been would have would have um, I think would have been very vocal if that happened. They would have taken action, and they've kind of shown concern. Uh, well, China is definitely supporting the Russian it. economy. We should consider mm. it. What are it's the possible, yeah. possible alliances and how we can prepare for it? We have to consider it. Hmm. Um, I- I'd love your your take on this quickly, also, but then I want to go to Patrick get his thoughts on all this. Also, yeah, no. Um... Yeah, I, I'm here. Um, I, I, I just believe. And one thing it, I wanted to say later, if I have a oh, moment, but later. Yes. Yeah. Of course, Evita. Um, yeah. Go ahead, uh, Osos. Yeah. So, I, because he did come in broken for me, but I think the gist of it is, I think what I did get to, and one thing I would point out is, I think people put way too much focus and emphasis on economic benefits when we're talking about war, right? If, if you like, let's just use Russia, China, I mean, Russia, Ukraine as an example, right? Like Russia's invasion of Ukraine made no economic sense, yet they viewed it as their national security interest. Countries have demonstrated throughout history that they're willing to sacrifice economic security for national security interests, both any country in the world, right? A lot of countries will see if especially if they're great powers will take economic sacrifice to achieve national, you know, national security interests. And I think that is something that needs to be considered now, what the U.S. will, and I think what Evita is getting at, and I think it's important, is that if, if Taiwan does an invasion on Taiwan, right, there ha- would there would have to be a kind of like what we saw related to Ukraine, where the U.S. would kind of take the lead to economically isolate China to make sure they suffer and they, they suffer consequences. But one of the things that China, I think, has very overestimated is their diplomatic soft power and then this transition to the wolf forward diplomacy, which has shown that has backfired completely. Um, if you were to look, let's say, Japan and China, Japan and China has very extensive economic relationships, but Japan clearly sees China as an economic, uh, as, a, as a national security threat and is adjusting their military accordingly. Also, so let me, in, yeah, go ahead. Let me, let me, let me, I want to jump in and I want to ask you a question. I want to go to speaker to speaker to ask the specific question. I think it would be a good way to wrap it up. But it's a very interesting question that could go on for a while as we go back and forth. Where do you see everything in 10 years? Because that's what really matters. No one knows what's going to happen in the next couple of years. I see it to be inevitable that China will just not accept not reunifying Taiwan. It's just a matter of when and how. Um, but I do expect the Ukraine conflict to not last as long as many people make it out to be. That's my two cents. Um, but I, what the hell do I know? What, what, where do you think will be all source in 10 years? So time? I, so I think recently we've seen, I'm going to just base this on, on some U.S. officials. So what we have seen is, I think a lot of officials have demonstrated, have started to publicly comment recently compared to what we saw three, four, six months ago, two, two, three, two years ago, is that it looks like deterrence is working, right? Again, I think we cannot, when the U.S. military operates, they will always prioritize deterrence. And I think what you're seeing with Japan, what you're seeing with the United States, what you're seeing actions even that the Philippines are doing, and a lot of our allies in Asia are doing, is that they're acknowledging that they want to maintain the status quo. Right. They want to make sure China and Taiwan stay as is. And I think there's been a lot of pressure both on China to make sure they do not do aggressive 
invasions. And I think there's a lot of internal problems that China has from, from its economy, from its political structure, et cetera, that might, and, and their military capability that might dampen their most aggressive policies against Taiwan. I am not in the camp of belief. I will, I will say, but I have, I, I, it's very hard to predict the future and things can change in a heartbeat. As things are right now, I do not think China is going to launch an invasion against Taiwan in the next 10 years. I don't, I don't think it is, I don't think it is. I think the U.S. has recognized that China is a military threat. They're posturing to, to face that. And I think that level of deterrence would, would calm China down. Where I think China, you're starting to see the slow shift in China recently after the zero COVID is that they're trying to be back into the international stage. And I think one way we might see an increase in China related to Taiwan is I think we'll go back to this when it was kind of the nationalist government, the KMT government in Taiwan, where they're trying to have just more cross-state relations. And I think China might try to leverage a lot of their soft power and diplomatic influence within certain sectors of Taiwan's politics to see if they can get at least tampering what their biggest concern for Taiwan is they declare independence. And I think if Taiwan just maintains everything as is, I do not believe a war is happening. But again, things can change in a heartbeat. This is I'm not making this with any level sort of confidence because it's very hard to predict the future 10 years, let alone one year. Uh, I want to go to the same question. Uh, is uh, Austin there? Austin, same question to you, and then we'll go to Emergent. Uh, could you repeat the question? A very simple one, man. Everything in 10 years' time. All sorts get very complex uh, detailed answer. Mine was pretty simple. Uh, I just don't see China except not reunifying Taiwan, and I don't see the Ukraine-Russia conflict lasting more than a few more months. Okay, so... But then, again, I, I'm pretty... I think I'm going to completely, be completely wrong, because I never thought uh, will the, 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 the conflict between Russia and Ukraine will even last more than a few days or weeks, sorry, not days, weeks, and never thought that Russia will cross the border. So, uh, obviously, my predictions are not going to be right, probably. Yeah, no worries. Um, okay, so Russia, Ukraine, I can see lasting another 12 months easily, at least. Um, I don't think either side has really, you know, shown, um, any sort of apprehension or willingness to sort of let go of their strategic objectives right now. I think we're going to, I think I'll have a far better grasp on an estimate for the length of the conflict four months from now. I think the spring is going to be very decisive in regards to what we see each side do there. Um, but when, when we talk decades, uh, what I'm looking at is what does the Chinese economy in particular look like? Are they able to sort of surmount uh, a lot of the issues they've been having with, with real estate? And I'd love, actually, would love Lindsay's uh, opinion on the Chinese domestic economy here. Um, what does the Chinese economy look like? What does the United States economy look like? Uh, has... Do we see the EU have a bit of a, a resurgence in economic growth? Um, I mean, 10 years is such a long time. It's in, in an era of uncertainty that we're in right now where global supply chains are kind of being upended left and right. Uh, my, I guess what I'm looking at is what supply chain next comes under threat and how does that affect uh, mostly developing economies moving down the line? Um, I think we'll see further issues potentially with either climate change or maybe another pandemic as we see more zoonotic uh, interactions between humans and animals that um, traditionally have not interacted as much. Um, yeah, I don't know, Mario, 10 years is 10 years is a long time. But it, do I do I foresee a war between the US and China in 10 years? I'm going to give the slight edge to no. Um, but that's going to have slight to edge. To, hold on. Did you say a slight edge to no? Yes, 
slight edge to no. Um, I, I think Shit. What, so you, what would you say? Out of ten, how likely is it that China and US will be in, in a conflict? I, I, I would give it a three. So, what, what would you rate it? I know I'm kind of simplifying yeah, it. Honestly, yeah, maybe slight, maybe maybe larger than slight. I would I would say three out of ten, something like that. Um, I think I think the economies are too intertwined, and if we look at Chinese foreign policy over the last thirty years, it's been extremely focused on domestic development and economic inroads. Um, and I, I, I have a very hard time seeing the Chinese, even under the CCP, sacrificing all of that over over a conventional conflict with Taiwan. Um, it just, it I would, just I would change. Align. I would change mine to two. What's yours, Austin? Before we go to other speakers, I didn't ask you that particular question, and then we'll go to Ian. Yeah, three, three, four, maybe. Three for you, Austin. Kind of sorry, what, what's yeah. yeah? Sorry, and also, I meant you also. What, what would you rate it? The likelihood of a Chinese U.S. conflict in the next ten years. Two to three. Yeah. All right. So we're aligned on this one. Um, we'll go to to um, uh, Ian and Osint. Maybe we'll go to uh, Ian first, and then we'll go to Osint. That's a good Defender. question. Right. Whether uh, China's going to invade Taiwan? Um, I, I'd rank it at around three. I, I really don't see them doing it. I would be more concerned about what happens in the next. Uh, no. So just years. Ian, the question the question is not whether China will invade Taiwan. It's whether the U.S. and China, because you know the U.S. We'll could step away and let. Right, right, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Within the next decade, three. I would say honestly, two or three. They're just not ready. Neither side is ready for this war, right? If if there is a war, it's not going to happen over Taiwan. I think that Taiwan will naturally just become a part of China. There's political upheaval in Taiwan. There's many people on the on like half of the of the country wants to reunify with China under certain circumstances, right? Like they want, um, um, what do you call it, um, guarantees that they will not lose their complete autonomy, right? They, there's many people in the country that are open to it. Many of them are obviously on the side of China and they don't want to see a war. And obviously they all have family on both sides. So there's, we're not going to see a situation where it's like North Korea versus South Korea. I don't see that happening. I don't see a detente happening. However, um, when it comes to like the long-term the United States and China are inevitably going to to go to war, right? Within the next, I would say, forty years, fifty years, maybe, over the uh, uh, the Arctic, the Arctic resources. People don't talk about that, but oil is not going to go out of fashion just because Greta Thunberg makes a fuss about it. This idea that we're just going to stop using fossil fuels—stupid bullshit, right? We might not be driving cars that are necessarily running on gas. But eventually, we are going to run out of oil that we have right now, right? That peak oil is happening, right? And people don't necessarily want to just destroy their own countries to, you know, keep drilling, right? That's a, that's a problem. We're going to look to the north. We're going to look to the Arctic um, to get that oil because we need it for plastics. We need it for refining. We need it for like a million different reasons that people just don't want to talk about. People like to imagine that oil only goes in cars. No, it goes in your plastics. It goes in the production of, of, of everything that you use, even refining, uh, uh, you know, Producing things like with metal, metalworking, you need oil for that. So oil is always going to be necessary, and the next war is going to be fought over oil. It's going to be in the next mm-hmm. 50 years, I would say. Uh, well, Mario, can I come in on this point? Um, yeah. Like I'm at a function. I, I've I, been I, waving as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so hold on, guys. I'll, I'll go to, to Olsint, and then we'll go to Joa and Piotr. Uh, Olsint, uh, same question, man. Is your mic working now? Um. Yes. Can you hear me? Yeah, man. Where, yeah, I can. Where, where do you see us? Where do you see the world, or, or specifically China? No, where do you see Russia, Ukraine, and where do you see um, China, US in the next ten years? And then rate out of ten a possible conflict in the next ten years between China and the US, a direct conflict. 
Um, so, so I fully agree, I think, with what Austin was saying with the uh, Ukraine-Russia situation. I think the spring is going to be very decisive, and we're going to see the Russians either decide to go fully all in on this and risk their entire Air Force um, and maybe some of their strategic bomber fleet um, and pretty much their do you really economy Do you really think this. that – would they really go that far for Ukraine? That's mental. That's what I'm saying. I'm, I'm saying they're either going to decide to do that or they're going to decide to partially start to back off and negotiate. And Ukraine is either going to decide that they are able to lose some of these territorial areas such as Crimea and possibly Donetsk and Luhansk, uh, or they're going to slowly start to lose support from, from some of these countries over the next year. I do think that this war you, is going to probably last uh, also over just, just quickly, uh, Just quickly on that point. Uh, did you hear what I read earlier? If you could just mute your mic, a bit of background noise. But did you hear what I read earlier on what um, – um, I'm just going to try to find a tweet. But one uh, a, a lawmaker, part of the administration in Ukraine, said about Crimea. Uh, did you hear what I said earlier when I read it out? If not, I'll read it out now. And I want to see whether that hints at a possible change of heart in Ukraine regarding uh, uh, Crimea. And obviously, Donetsk could follow. I'll read it out. There it is. It's by the um, – uh, Secretary of the National Security Defense Council of Ukraine, and he said the following. The strategy, I'm just going to pin his tweet right now. The strategy, I just pinned it above for anyone. You can go up and, and read it. The strategy for the deoccupation of Crimea. It's time for a new edition. The sequence of means of deoccupation, political, diplomatic, military, economic, etc., requires a change in priorities. Obviously, it's a bit vague. Does that indicate any change of heart? I know it's like the first time I see anything like that. Or am I misunderstanding what he said? I, I don't think it's too much of a change of heart. I don't think we will determine anything as a change of heart until Zelensky says it. Uh, again, a lot of people forget that the, uh, the Ukrainian government was a lot more open to negotiating about certain territorial areas such as Crimea towards the beginning of the war um, when they were – I mean – when the Russians were less than a mile out from Kiev, um, and even even then, until they pulled out of the Kharkiv area and stopped the assaults on Odessa and Mykolaiv, uh, they were still very, very... Uh, and was it Russia that was uh, refusing to negotiate back then? Um, it, no. Russia, no it was, Russia was the goat. Yeah, it, it, Russia was negotiating, but it, it, it was still kind of tense. Um, and Russia also... Their, if I remember correctly, their um, procedures that they wanted was the complete uh, demilitarization of Ukraine um, and uh, neutrality by Ukraine and a bunch of other things. Of course, those negotiations um, fell through, but I don't think that we're, we can decide whether uh, there is any sort of change in this policy that, that – Zelensky has said that he wants to take Crimea now um, until we hear Zelensky say that they're up to negotiate about the territorial integrity of Crimea. Uh, of course, Donetsk and Luhansk are completely different, but Crimea, I think, is the big deciding factor right now. The issue of Zelensky is that he's under pressure from both sides. In the West, right, the, the, one of the promises that they require from him is for him to keep fighting the Russians and keep attritioning them, even if it means losing tens of thousands of Ukrainian soldiers, in order to get funding from the West. Right? If he stops, if he starts pulling things back, they will think twice. They'll say, well, maybe we shouldn't be helping Ukraine because we're not going to get our money back. 
Um, th- that, that's exactly true. And um, the U.S., I think, is going to provide weapons and uh, munitions until the end, no matter what Ukraine really decides to do. But the rest of the European countries, I think, are going to become more hesitant as this war goes on, um, especially if the Ukrainian government and the Russian government are not willing to negotiate, especially Zelensky, um, on certain territorial integrities against specifically Crimea. I want yeah, to go to Joe. America doesn't want to end the war, right? People need to get this into their heads. It's not in America's interest to, to, to end the war because what America gets, you know, out of this war is they get to try to weaken Russia, although that that you know is questionable. Uh, but they're also weakening Europe as well. Europe is now becoming financially completely dependent on the United States for help militarily and economically, and and they're also cutting them off from Russia because before you had Germany building the Nord Stream pipelines together with Russia and uh, various different countries making deals with Russia. America now uh, has cut off Nord Stream, obviously. But the U.S. The US is not going to but the U.S. is not going to intentionally weaken their NATO allies. Yes, they are. They, they might benefit. They the benefit, but then... What do you think the Nord Stream was about? What do you think the destruction of the Nord Stream was about? But, yeah, but you can't... We, first, we don't know it's the U.S., but there's... Obviously, it's very likely... No, 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 no. It's very... I'll agree with you. I'll agree with you. I'm just saying that it's very likely the U.S. We just don't know for sure. It's important that we don't know for certainty. I wasn't there. But I'd say... But I would disagree with that completely. I, I don't oh, think who's, who's that? Yes, I, I don't think yeah, so, actually, tell me, tell me, yeah. To, I, yeah, so, who, who do you think blew it up? Because my, my assumption, obviously, no one knows, and there's a plausible explanation for almost every side. And there's, I've seen, uh, I've read arguments on, on all sides, including Germany being responsible, but that's really unlikely, obviously. Yeah, but I want to ask you, like, do, yeah, exactly. But, um, uh, the US having done it, in collaboration with their NATO allies, because doing it without telling their NATO allies is, is just ridiculous. Well, they would have Norway, right? Because it happened in, in, in Norway's territory. Yeah, but I mean, they wouldn't do it without uh, consulting Germany, even though Germany could harm their oh, yeah, economy. Uh, Harsh, right? They did it with in conjunction with Norway. They didn't do it in conjunction with Germany because Germany does not benefit from this at all. No, they right? would have. They would have benefit. They would have told Germany. They would have told exactly, Joe. They wouldn't. Hold on. Also, I'll give you the mic. But yeah, Joe, they would have yeah. told Germany. Germany's a NATO ally. They're not gonna risk losing Germany. Uh, as a they NATO ally, just they don't care about Germany's sovereignty. What can Germany do to America? Nothing, because they are completely they can... dependent on Brandenburg. Uh, uh, right? They're completely Ian, dependent Ian, on the United States Germany, defending the... them. Ian, Germany Ian, is a terrible Germany, space right now where they're unable to even do anything. If Biden takes a shit on Olaf Schultz's face, he's just going to say, "Please give me seconds." Uh, Austin, I'll, I'll let you Ian, respond because I'm sure you have lots. No, no, no. So I, I disagree with a lot of that. Um, First and foremost, from a from a strategic perspective, uh, the United States had had very little to gain from you know the potential to sabotage the entire uh, the entirety of the NATO alliance over destroying critical strategic infrastructure. No, so if they would you so so I kind of reword it like what if they did it in conjunction with the the NATO allies in Europe to yeah, kind of remove so, that dependence so, on if, Russia? No, if, yeah, if, if the United States did that, that's that's the end of NATO, right? Because if, if a NATO not, state... Did it in conjunction... Them, no, 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 in conjunction, in conjunction with other NATO other, countries. Yeah, yeah, well, I mean, number one, there's there's no... The, okay, so so the, the article that Ian is citing was written by Seymour Hirsch, and it's it's been... There's actually been a lot of research put into that article, sort of debunking it by a man by the name of Oliver Alexander, looking into specific aspects of the article and why they, they don't really make sense. I would, I would highly advise uh, everyone in the space to both read the article by Hirsch and then read the critique by Oliver Alexander. Um, 
what it drums down to, though, is there are specific factual inaccuracies in that article blaming the United States for it. But from a larger perspective, even if Norway, like hypothetically, if the U.S. and Norway decide, like, yeah, we're going to end Germany's uh, dependency on Russian natural gas, that number one, Nord Stream 1 at the time of this incident was not pumping any liquid natural gas to Germany because Germany nationalized their portion of Gazprom and put it under under German state control. Um, on top of that, Nord Stream 2 was never completed. Nord Stream 2 never pumped a, 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 an ounce of, of liquid natural gas, right? So we're looking at two pipelines that were not operational and were not expected to be operational in the near future due to disputes not between NATO and Russia, but between Germany and Russia, specifically in regards to Gazprom, right? So what does the United States have to gain from destroying that and putting at risk the entirety of, of the NATO alliance, right? Possible, so Germany, Austin, Austin uh, why, why has Republicans and Democrats been calling for the end of Nord Stream for years now? Both, both yeah, sides so it's of the just the, it's the, yeah, even though it wasn't operational, it could become operational. They want to kind of remove that option so Germany doesn't even consider it and there's no uh, pressure, there's no, there's no tool – uh, that uh, Russia could leverage. Like my question, I'll ask you the same question. Like, what could Russia sure. really benefit other than sending a sig? It is the benefits are very, very minuscule relative to the cost. The plane drops so, 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 so the Russians blocked the Crimean bridge for reasons that that only Putin knows. You know, I mean, this is the kind of, of level of, of of discourse that's happening right now in, in, in the Ocean community where they blame Russia for everything stupid that happens, and and then they're like, oh, Russia blew up its own AWACS plane. Yeah, okay, sure. Okay, so 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 both the AWACS plane and the and the Kerch Bridge are unrelated to to Nord Stream. I think it's important to to note from from the get go here. Um, but but likewise, I mean, obviously the United States has been warning foreign policy wise warning Germany against Nord Stream for a while now. I think that's that's all well and fair, but that still doesn't breach the level of risk being undertaken with demolishing a NATO ally's critical energy infrastructure, right? We, we, we could be railing against the fact that the Germans are, are turning to coal power plants. That doesn't mean that the U.S. Air Force is going to bomb a coal plant outside of Hamburg for doing so. And, and the reason is because that, that puts the entire alliance at risk. The moment one state attacks another, the entire alliance is out the window, right? So in regards to who did it, I mean, I will wait to see what, what you know, the actual investigating agencies turn up. Um, Oliver Alexander has done a really good job so far, sort of pointing towards it may have been actually an industrial accident. But at, at the same time, like it's it's really anybody's guess. But what I will say so, from who, the US's perspective, there's far yeah. too much risk to be. Mar, Mar, I shared the article. I shared the article. I shared the article in the Nest. Oliver Alexander has done extensive research on this. He's somebody that Austin, myself, Austin Defender, talk to regularly. He put a. I mean, he's been doing this for weeks. And he's been combing it through. I, this is the last one he posted because he's been posting updates. Highly recommend you read it. He debunks. Can you do me? Horse. Can you do me? Can you do me a favor? Can you can you help me organize a space? Uh, I'll get Seymour and you get Oliver. Oh, Oliver is all about it. I already talked to him. Ah, oh, perfect. All right, let's let's talk about it offline. But what what was his conclusion? Um, who does he point the blame to? It's hard. I would so say anyone that points the blame. Go ahead. So the tweet, what I put, and this is like, he, and this is the last tweet I shared in the notes, and I'll just read it directly, directly from Oliver. 
Additional research of the past three days has made me change my initial hypothesis and point my finger at the academic Chernisky as the cause of the south southern Nord Stream 2 rupture, a vessel ill-equipped for the test that ran into many problems. Basically, he's arguing that it looks like it could have been an industrial accident. You know, like it, it was not an intentional, we're going to put explosives, blow it up. He and, and 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 that is kind of the line of thought he has. Yeah, but also, if you do the space, he I know he'll go Nord into Stream it. One, also, what does he say about Nord Stream 1? He says that you Russia blew I, I, I would. I, I know. I talk about it. He also covers the nursing. I, I will. I will. Let, you know I've what? While you guys having wrote. this conversation, let me reread his entire thread, and I'll come back. That's how, how old is he? I've read his thread. <laughs> I've read his thread. What he basically, first of all, Seymour Hersh's uh, um, article is actually quite brilliant. Um, Oliver's response obviously has changed, as he said a number of times, and his argument is that guess what. Nord Stream 2 had some kind of structural damage and obviously this new position that he's got now. This is and moving as soon the as the Russians right? found right. out about whenever, it... Whenever people present arguments that are like, yeah, Russia didn't do it, it's like, well, yeah, maybe it's an industrial accident. Um, no, no, but people... Listen, not, I mean, look, I will no, no, argue that, he says how he says covert... That basically, so, sorry, he says, no, this is one sorry, thing I will put my foot down. What do you mean you have to put your foot down? One thing I will, one thing, Solomon, I'm sorry, but one thing I will put my foot down. One where I put my foot down. It makes absolutely no freaking sense. Absolutely no freaking sense that the U.S. would do a covert operation. And in Sigmar Horst article, he said he was doing a covert operation to not tell Bro, the game of no eight, but he's going to have Norway do it. That makes no sense. That does not make sense. Russia's basically making money and they're like, you know what? Let me just blow my own pipeline. That's the dumbest point I've ever heard in my life. And then leave the Balkan line. So like basically they blow up Nord Stream 1, they leave the Balkan line, it's like the most dumbest thing I've ever heard in my life. The whole argument makes no So hold on. Am I, am I, am I, am I actually finding middle ground? Also, do you think it's plausible? Uh, because I'm kind of leaning towards the US doing it in conjunction with other NATO countries to kind of re- remove that dependence. I think they probably did it with Poland. If honest, you know, if we're looking at who benefits from this, Poland would, benefits uh, from this the most. I would be, I, would, I think they would have oh, done yeah, it with Poland all NATO benefited. countries. Norway benefited. US benefit. Yeah, but I don't, I just, again, yeah, I just Norway, don't think US Simon. And Poland benefit, and they probably did it with the help of the UK. And Denmark. You know? I mean, there's no reason that Simon Hirsch's article may have been complete. Yeah. I mean, a lot of people involved in this. Mark, so, Mark, Simon, do you think. No, Mario, yeah, let me I, just I, answer your I, question no, to this. Let me, let ahead, me answer your question to this. Let me, let me, let me, okay. When was the last time that everybody knew about a US covert operation? Is the raid of Osama bin Laden. Having Denmark, Norway, Poland, all these countries involved that are not even part of the Five Eye of his alliance, they're not even our closest military and intelligence allies, they're not even part of the Five Eye of alliance, you're telling me that the U.S. is going to do a super covert operation that the President of the United States is not going to tell a gang of eight, but we're going to tell four NATO allies about this covert operation that we would rely on them to do it when the U.S. has to come on. It doesn't, it doesn't make any sense. We, it does it's it's not from the we have been done that never done the U.S. Hold on, guys. Hold on, guys. Hold on. Sorry. Uh, Joe, I go ahead. I was saying we've done it in the past. Like we keep saying U.S. did it with someone else. U.S. didn't need to do it with anyone else. They could have done it alone and told their, told their allies they're doing it. They've been calling for the destruction of it, both sides of the aisle. For many, many years, why wouldn't they take the opportunity to blow also, it up right now? Would you, would yeah, you disagree? Also, raises a great point. You have Victoria Newland out there saying that you know, praising it, talking about blowing it up. You have Biden, literally the president of the United States, saying that we're going to do something about it. It's like, come on, guys! Like, it's fucking obvious. So I have a, I have a, I have a question that, to you also, then to you, Ian. I think you meet or, or Slayman as well. I'll do it with, with all three of you. 
and see if, if we can meet at least close to the middle. Because I'm somewhere in the middle. Do you think, I'll start with Ian, do you think it's possible that the US did it, but did, I know you think they did not uh, consult Germany, but do you think that it is also possible they did consult their NATO allies uh, to show that bridge is not burned, even though Germany might it suffer in the short term economically. They, they signed a deal with, like, you know, the Green Party or something. Yeah, exactly. Somebody in the in the German government, and oh. without the consent of the people, because if this got out that the Germans were involved, not the people. I wouldn't. Definitely not the people. people Otherwise, it'd be public. I don't think they told Germany. Shall I tell you and why? Right now they're struggling. Right Ian, now, right? Ian, so the last thing they want Germany, to learn is, is that you know their own government fucked them over. Uh, so so I Ian, I don't think they told Germany when they were about to do it. They may have told them afterwards. Because initially Germany were open arms, they were planning to do an investigation, which has gone quite very quiet very soon after that. So I think they. But that could be part of. But that could be no, no. That could have even if they told them before, Germany would would do a quote unquote investigation. Otherwise, you'll just look very sus if they don't do an investigation. Uh, But so I mean, just to kind of meet in the middle ground, like, do you think it's also possible they did tell Germany to make sure they don't harm the alliance because again the benefit of the Nord Stream I don't think outweighs the uh, again I don't want to argue that do you think it's possible that well, they did tell Germany because that Germany are the Germany are the whipping boys of the world right now the, the amount they've been abused by America is just unbelievable so yeah it is possible in terms of Oliver, and maybe there could Alexander, be maybe there could be a there could be a behind the scenes economic deal between the two that could be supplying Germany uh, gas at a, at a very discounted rate in return I mean, Germany, for that it, it, it's possible but German people are struggling significantly so unlikely um, and, and I want to go to Allsource and, and Austin. I know you guys are usually on the same page. So Allsource, do you think it's plausible? Um, I, I'm not saying you think this is what happened, but do you think, would you say it's at least a possibility, even though you think it's unlikely, that the U.S. did it in conjunction with NATO allies? Now, your, your point of them not being able to keep it a secret, they don't have to tell all military personnel. This could be a, a deal with, on, on an executive level, uh, uh, something that will come out later as it gets declassified or gets leaked. But do you think it's a possibility? And then I'll go to Piotr and Patrick, who've been waiting for a while. What is like, it, it, it doesn't make any sense. Like, I'm sorry, people can make up argument. Oh, like, what geopolitical national security interest would the United States have blowing up two pipelines that, for the most part, the Germans stopped utilizing? And oh, Stop by the way, that, but I'll, I'll, I'll give you. I'll give you. I'll give you. No, but hold on. I'll give you. Talking about blowing it up. I mean, you're asking what's going on. Guys, 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 guys. Everyone, everyone, Yeah, go ahead. Also, again, I think, I think Mario, I think Mario, this is a, this should be a specific space where you can have the people that actually arguing their facts because by the way the Sigmund Horst article he also changed it because now apparently the PC-8 utilized by Norway was actually flying but Americans he did also change it so like let's get that fact and he did not provide any signal evidence just anonymous source bad, uh, but hold on there's no, nothing bad with changing uh, just want to say exactly okay go ahead Jay. what I'm saying <laughs> is Sweden for example Sweden is in the process of joining NATO Sweden also suffered from this event, right? Why would the U.S. sacrifice a huge victory, a geopolitical victory in the Nordic countries, having Sweden Sweden and Finland join NATO by blowing up a stupid pipeline? It doesn't make any sense. Again, but but also also, you're making the point if they did not do it by telling their allies on an executive level, telling the president and prime ministers um, that they were going to do it and they all agreed together. And they did a deal behind the scenes of supplying gas at a discounted rate or something where they did not hurt their allies and they removed Germany's potential reliance on Russian gas because the pipeline could be reopened and Russia could use it as a negotiation. But that's, it's a potential. Uh, it's it a is potential. Potential. We don't know. We don't know. I just want to see if you look. But I'll go. I'll go. Can I add a I'll go. I'll go. No, no. Joe, what I'll do is I'll go to Piot, but not to discuss 
this point. So I'll go to Piotr then Joa, uh, but not to discuss the Nord Stream pipeline because I think this does deserve a space and we are planning for it. Uh, to I go do, back to the original question, if you don't mind. I want to go back. I, I, I'll make sure. How about this, Joa? I promise I'll invite you to the uh, – well, you're always invited, but to the uh, Nord Stream space and then we could continue the discussion there because I don't want to digress too much. You know, I want to go back to the question of Piotr. Uh, I know you've got a lot to add, but if you can avoid the Nord Stream, because I know we'll go back down that rabbit hole. Instead, um, respond to other points relating to China and the U.S. But, and back but, to the Mario, question of where to do you see the White Rabbit, Mario? You have to Ian, the White Ian, Rabbit. Ian, Ian. <laughs> you can't, uh, uh, you can't of, uh, where even dangling what, like that. No, no. What, what, you you got to let Joe up speak, and you we'll got to let you know Piotr speak. Uh, I want to hear what, what they have to say on this issue. Uh, how about this? I'll do this. Uh, the audience, I want to go through the comments. Do you want us to continue discussing the North Stream, debating the North Stream, um, or go back to the uh, US-China relations over the next 10 years? And I will listen Look, to Maria, the audience. I've, go got, to, I've got to speak now, buddy, or I've got to go. So yeah. do I speak now or I leave? That's, that's okay. I was about to give you the mic, bro, but you're jumping in like this and saying this is not nice at all. What the fuck are you doing, man? I was about to give you the mic. And you say to me, just interrupt me when I'm telling the audience to comment. Interrupt me like, I got to speak now, I got to leave. All right, bro, leave. It's not nice at all, man. So, Joa, I uh, would love your take. But if you can avoid the Nord Stream discussion, that would be best. Yeah, I'll, I'll talk about um, China. I, I mean, I think, it's, I think it's crazy to think that Ukraine and Taiwan are separate when these countries have an alliance they're making moves to change the world power structure. Um, if you look at if you look at what resources Taiwan need, except like the normal uh, resources people need to survive, what's their number one thing that would harm their entire business? They need neon to to create to print silicon chips. You know who provides ninety percent of the world's Taiwan, industrial exactly. grade I'm glad- neon? Yes, Taiwan. Yeah, uh, yeah, Taiwan. It's it's yeah. Ukraine, right? And fifty percent of it say, was in sorry, Mariupol. Sorry. Did you say? Oh shit! I got it all wrong. So what? What does Ukraine, Ukraine supply? Neon, neon. And okay. the rest Ukraine, of it's provided Ukraine by Ukraine has so have yeah, fun with that. Yeah, ninety percent of the world's industrial grade neon comes from Ukraine. You need industrial grade yeah. neon in order to print the silicone chips. Without it, there's no chips. Hold on. So you're saying Ukraine? I don't know how I miss this. Ukraine is it plays a key role in the supply chain of the microchips. Yes, it does. Yeah, hundred yeah. percent. Why do you think Russia wants it? And and and, and Mariupol controlled fifty percent of it, and they blew it up. Hold but on. And then Taiwan. To Russia now. But uh, and Taiwan, obviously, they they manufacture the most. Uh, I don't know what the percentage is, but the majority they, they, of the they, microchips. Yeah, most of it. Yeah, that's why there's this Chips Act and all that stuff. All that exactly. Stuff going on. That's why there's so many moving pieces here, like Enbridge. I don't know how many people know about Enbridge, but Enbridge is basically the SWIFT used for the Middle East to use oil, which United Arab Emirates is already a part of. They've already tested it, and now they can circumvent SWIFT if they want to as well. Uh, like there's uh, uh, there's so, so many I'll, moving I'll, pieces here. I want to go back. I want to go back to that. I want to go back to that rabbit hole, Joa, and I'll give you the mic. But I do. I know Piotr has to leave, so is, is it okay if you give the mic to Piotr? give us his thoughts on all those points in the question. And then we'll go to you, Joe, to continue down that rabbit hole. Because I had no idea Ukraine uh, plays such an important role. I don't know how I miss this. Plays such an important role in the supply chain of the microchip uh, uh, industry. So, so yeah, Piotr, I'll give you the mic and, and then we'll go back to Joe. Uh, thanks, Mario. And sorry for the echo. I'm at a, a function in D.C. Um, and it's with the... Oh, good. It's perfect. Okay, cool. So I'm at the Lithuanian embassy right now. And on the Taiwanese question... 
Um, I've got three few quick things to say. So number one, um, it's fundamentally and just categorically wrong to say that the Taiwanese are in favour with reunification uh, with uh, the mainland. Um, polls taken for the past 30 years um, have clearly illustrated that the Taiwanese identification has grown not just with Chinese and Taiwanese, but specifically just as Taiwanese. The Taiwanese increasingly, about 60%, 65% now, see themselves as just Taiwanese um, because of what China's encroachments and uh, belligerent... What percent? Sorry, what... what what percentage was that, sorry, Piotr? 65%. So in the, nine, in the 1990s, um, it was about 25-30%. So in the past 30 years, the um, identification as just Taiwanese has more than doubled um, with the Taiwanese people. They no longer want to be associated with mainland China. Um, the other identification is whether or not Taiwan wants to be part of China or if it wants to be a fully separate state. So do they want to keep the status quo? So there's this weird, you know, limbo. The island isn't really a country, but neither is it uh, fully part of China like Hong Kong is becoming. And that has shifted from about 25% to more than 70%. So the point is that the Taiwan... Can I, can I uh, just, do you mind if I just, on those metrics, and I'll let you continue, I'm just gonna, I've got it open with me. Just let me know if, if this is what you're, you're saying, because uh, on the prefer maintaining status quo temporarily on d- indefinitely, it was 40% 1995, 2001 up to 45, and now sitting at 57. Yet support independence now or in the future was at 10%, and now it's all the way up to 30%. And then support unification now or in the future, uh, so unifying with China, was at 20% in 1995, now it's at an all-time low of 7%. I don't know what the poll is. Uh, that's the website. It's grid dot, uh, grid.news. Um, and it's, uh, yeah, if you want to go through it and look at the source, you can. Uh, but yeah, so, so yeah, go ahead. Uh, oh, the polls by Election Study Center, Shengqi Universe, University. Um, it's multiple polls. But yeah, Piotr, go ahead. Yeah, uh, so there's, so there's more than one poll. The point I'm trying to make is that the association the Taiwanese have with China has has grossly changed. That comes after the Taiwanese third crisis, as it was known in 1995 and six. The one that we had last summer where the Chinese entered the Maritime Economics Exclusive Zone, or EEZ, of Taiwan was known as the Fourth Strait Crisis. The more China presses, the more it alienates Taiwan. And the reason I mentioned Lithuania at the beginning is because um, last two summers ago, so in 21, um, the Taiwanese established a official, like, the closest thing, basically, to a embassy in Lithuania. And the Chinese, the massive Chinese you know, economy and country reacted by basically threatening not just Lithuania, but the Germans, the Czechs, um, a multitude of other European states that utilize Lithuanian components, basically saying we will bar, we'll put an embargo, we'll put a, a bunch of trade barriers on these, um, compo- uh, you know, components, these products from entering Chinese markets. And because Germany is one of the biggest exporters to China, that was a huge problem for the Germans. But it showed you how much the, the Chinese CCP party don't like the fact that countries are willing to notice Taiwan as an entity, right, as a, as a separate state. So 
Um, there's a lot of concerns about Taiwanese independence. It's a very different kettle of fish to, to Ukraine. Um, to answer your question, since I heard it when I was in here hoping to speak earlier, I don't think there's going to be an invasion by 25. Um, Robert Spaulding, who we've had on the show and I've hosted on my podcast, you know, thinks it's much higher. He thinks it's what, like, you know, the likelihood of an invasion is as high as sort of seven, eight out of ten. Uh, it would be an aerial invasion, not an amphibious one. Um, so there's a lot of varying degrees. And, and the one thing that the Ukrainian war has done is put the spotlight on Taiwan and China. And the last thing the CCP likes is being in the spotlight. That's why they didn't like the whole shit with the balloon. They didn't like the whole um, issues with public health and zero COVID. And so what did they do? They produced the peace plan, I think, as a bit of a diversion to get people talking about Ukraine again and not so much about China's uh, screw-ups with foreign policy, espionage, and so on. So for me, Taiwan is a very, very difficult thing to predict. Um, the uh, the PLA has not been in action, or the People's Liberation Army hasn't been in in the theatre of war since the 1970s. We have no idea its capabilities on the naval front. Um, the, the 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 conditions needed to launch a successful maritime invasion are absolutely massive. Basic uh, military theory suggests that for every single defence individual you have, you need three attacking, so three to one. And based on the current systems and vessels and equipment that the Chinese have, um, they would only be able to transport about thirty to 35,000 troops, just troops, not anything else, to Taiwan at a time. And if you've got a very large standing Taiwanese force backed up by a coalition of Western partners, China's going to have a hard time uh, invading Taiwan, taking Taiwan, keeping Taiwan. Um, there's only two months of the year that make an invasion successful, um, April or October, all the conditions are about right. Um, and then there's also, as I said, the, um, the Japanese, even the Indians would likely get involved. The Australians are operating their engagement in the South China Sea and the general South Pacific region. So there's a lot of factors here that would make it very difficult for the Chinese. That's not to say we mustn't um, treat them with, you know, caution and, and respect and the fact that it is China. But I think it's um, a, a very big um, issue. And, and I've got two last points. One. Uh, the talk around the START treaty last week has begun to normalize more broadly the conversation around nuclear weaponry and proliferation. North Korea's launching of missiles has meant the South Korean population are thinking it's right for the first time in forever uh, to, to develop their own nuclear weapons. And this is very concerning because it plays into China's narrative of upping its own nuclear facilities, own nuclear arsenal, um, and, uh, and to be one of the big boys in the, in the nuclear theater. And then the last point is um, about generally just uh, the, the, the attitude that other countries have and semiconductors and all this, right? So uh, the semiconductors bill by the United States is is pretty big deal because it does um, it doesn't stop, but it does delay, in theory, China being able to develop advanced nuclear technology. And uh, the Dutch and the Japanese, the Japanese and the US being two of the large trading partners with China, is a huge problem for their, you know, economic prosperity and development. So... Uh, and, and, and if we see more countries develop this or pursue this, it's going to be a problem for China. And generally, China has technically, you could say, been at war with the US for the past four years. So there's a lot of elements here that I, I think we should keep in mind when we talk about whether it's just a conventional kinetic war or if it would mean lots of different components and aspects to it. So anyway, I'll but thanks a lot for your space and uh, I hope to join you better next time. Thanks, Piotr. Um, I, I want to go to Joa. You've been waiting patiently. Um, I want you to finish what he's saying, and I'm still kind of 
honestly, that's probably the, the high, does, hold on, I want to ask you a question for all speakers on what Joe has said. Can you put a thumbs up if you knew that Ukraine played, I want to see if I'm the only idiot here, if you knew, put a thumbs up if you knew that Ukraine played a key role in the um, supply chain of microchips. So Lindsay's putting a thumb up. Anyone else that knew? Put a thumb down, Ian knew this. Put a thumb down if you did not know or disagree with it. Okay, Patrick knows, man. No, all. Okay, obviously, Austin. Okay, I'm the idiot. <laughs> Vivian knows. Everybody knows. Austin, you're the only one that hasn't put a thumb up. Did you know that or no? Or are you just being nice to me? Okay, he's I'm not even on his phone. <laughs> okay, I'm the, I'm the idiot. All right, Joe, uh, go ahead, man. Yeah, I, you know, I just see a lot. I don't think China needs to go in Taiwan. I, I kind of side with the fact that yeah, right now, polls are low, but. China's gaining a lot of favor in the Middle East if their plans go forward, which they've made public to, to create a, a global reserve currency. China will want, uh, Taiwan will want to join them, um, more than likely. Um, I, plus if, do you mind if I ask you, Joe, before you continue, can I, I'm sorry, last question. I'm sorry. I, I, I'm mm-hmm. interrupting too much today, but just on your microchip one, is it, why is no why am I not reading it anyway? Cause I watched the whole video going through the whole microchip supply chain. Ukraine was never mentioned and the press I, is not mentioning it. So if, if microchip is playing such a key role in Ukraine, and all of you know that. And Taiwan, obviously, uh, when Pelosi went, she visited the biggest manufacturer, the state-owned, I don't know if state-owned or private, but the manufacturer yes, of microchips, see, the biggest yeah. in the world. Well, well it's, yeah, even, yeah. it's even worse. Let me read, let me just read uh, two sentences to you. Globally, Ukraine supplies 70% of the world's neon gas and 40% of the global uh, krypton supply. Moreover, Ukraine supplies 90% of the highly purified semiconductor-grade neon for chip production used by U.S. industry. The other, major, the other major suppliers are China, Japan, and South Africa. Now, China, South Africa, Russia are all in an, in, in an alliance. The only country that's not is Japan. Uh, this one is the uh, Center for Strategic Shit, and International man. Studies. I can send it to you. Jesus. I think they're not looking great hell. for America right now. Just saying. No, yeah. it's, it's and that's it's, and Mario, I'm gonna I'm gonna change your mind about Ray Dalio really quick, really really quickly, because you've lived through something. I love similar. Ray, by the way. I... Yeah, but fiat currency is a confidence game. When you lose confidence in the currency, the currency drops. Right? If a global reserve current, if if the the Middle East joins China like they've already requested to do, and they start accepting. Whatever currency they they wind up calling it, um, why does the thirteen trillion that is stuck in in international uh, reserves in other countries, um, in global reserves in other countries, thirteen trillion? Why would they need it? And if they started to sell it, how quickly do you think it would fall? Right, because confidence is not lost over a long period of time. Confidence is lost the same way it happened to FTX. And happened to Luna, and and you see it a lot in the crypto game. People lose confidence, and within a week and a half, it's gone. Right? Same thing happens in, with the with fiat. Historically, that's what's happened over and over and over throughout it's history. More, but it's more it's more complicated than this. I, I'm not going to try to explain it, but there's like three big pillars to it. Uh, liquidity is one of them. I can't remember. It. Like ease, ease of access. Three key checklists. That the currency has to meet, and that China's really far from all three of them. Um, yeah, I agree. I agree but, with that. 
And I think it's got, it's, I don't know, it's, it's, if Ray Dalio and other heavyweights disagree on this point, who am I to have an opinion? But it's the microchip one is just fascinating. Like before going to Patrick and Lindsay, uh, also, or, or Austin, because I know you guys uh, uh, are usually on the same page, do you agree? Did, like Ian and Joe, uh, especially Joe, made the point of microchip uh, and the supply of microchips, which is like the quote, new oil. Could it just be mainly about microchips in U- in Ukraine as well as Taiwan? Because I thought it was only for Taiwan. Is that a possibility? No, I don't think I don't. I, I, th- I don't think the, the Russia invaded Ukraine because of microchips. Um, I'm, no, I'm not only that, not I, only for that, but do you think it played? But do you think NATO? No, I don't think it played a, a significant role. In, 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 I mean, all the arguments that you hear, if you look at Russian media, if you look at what they're targeting, what they're trying to do, the targeting of Ukrainian in the aspect of the neon pure gas, etc., was more to cause economic damage to Ukraine to kind of force. This has been a tactic that the, that the Russians have done, but it's not only been done to microchips; it's been done to the economic infrastructure, power stations, civilian infrastructure. It's just to break the will of the, the Ukrainian economy and the population to fight, not necessarily tied into this idea of trying to get the global competition of microchips. Yeah. yeah, I would agree uh, with that, and I would t- I would tack on with that if um if if the the strategy was to sort of seize microchip based infrastructure in Ukraine, you, we would have seen Russians trying and to trying to rebuild or preserve infrastructure in the areas that they're taking over. I think Mariupol is an excellent example when you look at the city that's been you know mostly fundamentally destroyed. Um, if the objective was resource based, I think we would have seen evidence sort of looking at sort of resource production by now, uh, and we haven't seen that. And nor is that That's really sort of but, gone but in Austin, line with what we've heard from Russian media. But there's there's if you look at what happened in Syria, right? America pulled back from northern Syria, Russia gained control of the pipeline, they gave it to China. Right? If they get rid of the neon in in, in um Mariupol Guess who becomes the biggest supplier of industrial grade neon? China. Right? So they don't need to save it. They can give the power to China just like they gave the pipeline to China. But, but Austin, Austin, I, I want to kind of take a different take on this as well. Pelosi visiting the manufacturer, the, the microchip manufacturer, and visiting Taiwan and Taiwan's um, uh, importance in the supply chain shows the importance of microchips. And I think the argument of the importance of microchips in today's society with AI and uh, and military, especially militarily, and the, and the uh, the sanctions by the U.S. and Japan and Netherlands uh, against China just shows that it's important. Uh, these are unprecedented sanctions. Um, so, considering this, and I think we'll all agree on up to what I've said so far, doesn't it just add up that if if Ukraine does play such a central role, why wouldn't it have at least some impact to the decision of? But like the U.S. is just throwing it, it's stupid amounts of money to support Ukraine. Um, and it's not because they're good-hearted. Maybe it plays a small role, but it's also strategic, of course. You know, Russia's getting close to NATO, etc. You know, there's many reasons why they're doing it. But uh, uh, microchips has to be on that list, no? At least play a, a medium role, the supply of neon. So I would say I would say microchips plays a far larger role in the case of Taiwan. Um, it, when we talk about like stupid amounts of money being thrown, I think the widely thrown around sort of tidbit is that you know the United States is currently spending six percent of its annual defense budget on aid towards Ukraine. Um, so 
I, I, I'm very much, I, I can understand the argument on Taiwan, specifically when it comes to microchip production and everything like that. I am very much not sold on the idea that the, the Russo-Ukrainian war is won over microchips. I need to ask Joa this question because he, he constantly brings it up. Joa, what pipeline are you referring to? And then two, when you're saying the U.S. pulled out of northern Syria, are you saying there's no U.S. soldiers in Syria? No, there are soldiers still in Syria. It, when we pulled out of northern Syria, and, and there's plenty of reports on it. They even called it Trump's gift to Putin uh, in some reports. Um, but I also blame Obama for not protecting Crimea when he took over Crimea. So I'm not picking sides here. Um, there's two pipelines. One was American and one was, I don't remember who the other one belonged to. Uh, but when they when they did do that, China then came in with a proposal of building a 1,000-kilometer-long pipeline. But the one from Saudi Arabia already comes up, and as soon as China did that, that's when Saudi Arabia started saying they wanted they want to join the uh, the BRICS. But and now they're building one you, from, so from Iran. I, I, I can give you I, the I, name I, of it. I, what? Because and the reason why I'm asking this, Joa, mm-hmm. like I, I was part of Operation Inherent Resolve. Like mm-hmm. I was. Like we, we, I participated in the counter ISIS campaign. Like one of the things we did was bomb the shit out of ISIS controlled oil fields. Like we bombed the shit out of it. Now there's mm-hmm. one specific pipeline is the Kirkuk by nice pipeline that goes south of the Euphrates river. It goes from Kirkuk. It goes down, crosses into the south, into Syria, south of the Euphrates river, and then go to by in, in the port, right? That was never under control of U.S. forces. Never. We never had control of that. The, the, the Syrian regime seized it well before when the whole Syrian civil war, when ISIS had a predominant presence. There's that one. There yeah, was yeah, a proposed it, but it used that never to, went through. There was no, a the pipeline, pipeline that used to belong to America. Yeah, but we never owned... Once the Syrian civil war happened, once right. the Syrian civil war happened and ISIS took control of it, the U.S. never had control of that pipeline once it hit into Syria. We never had control of that pipeline. Yeah, after the war happened, but then when we pulled back, then what happened? The pipeline, to the pipeline? was south. That was always that was. I'm sorry, Joe. That pipeline in the south, the Kirkuk to Bainas pipeline, because you're talking about the Saudi Arabia up north. Yes, separate mm-hmm. conversation. The one from Iraq that goes from Kirkuk to Bainas, which is the main pipeline, the area that it enters into Syria was never under U.S. We never, we never had control of that. The Kurds never reached that I'm pipeline. Not, I'm not talking. That was always under Syrian regime control. It was south of the Euphrates River. The Euphrates River has always been the boundary between U.S. forces in the north and Russian, Syrian, Iranian forces in the south. Always has always been. We never had control Joe, of that pipeline. Joe, we back, the shit also, Joe, to, back, back to the... Yeah, yeah. No, I, I just if I enjoy, briefly answer, but then move, move continue back to the point of uh, where you see everything in ten years' time. Just want to get back to the point. Yeah, I mean, there's two there's two pipelines. One used to be under under U.S. control before it got um, before the war happened. It was lost once the war happened. Once we retreated, Russia took over, took control of that pipeline, and then that pipeline went to China and. Uh, Mean you can speak all off off uh, off um, out of this because I would like I would love to clear it. Yeah, up. yeah, I'll, I'll connect you. I'll connect you guys on WhatsApp if you want. Also, so I know you don't dox yourself. I'll, I'll let you guys decide. But yeah, Joe, I'll, uh, just back to the last question before we go to Patrick and Lindsay. Um, where do you see um, Ukraine and China, uh, Ukraine and Taiwan in ten years? 
Yeah, I don't see. I see a. I see uh, Russia keeping Crimea and some of the coastline because they do need that coastline in order to make Crimea work as a, a warm water port. Um, I see Taiwan. I don't see China invading Taiwan at all. Uh, I see it as a threat. I see it as a distraction. Um, China has way too much power over something that Taiwan needs. Why would they need to invade? They would need to negotiate with them to get the neon, or else they don't have a they don't have a an industry. Uh, Patrick, good Joe, to... I just want to praise you, man. Like uh, your critical thinking skills are just marvelous. It's a real uh, pleasure to have you on here, bro. Uh, Joe is like a secret weapon because he uh, sometimes I sound he very smart. Stuff. He's a chronicle, he knows, right? He knows stuff. Yeah, but what Joe yeah, does... His knowledge is really good. His knowledge is outstanding. But then, you know, some people have information but don't, don't have the critical thinking skills. This guy is just uh, brilliant. Yeah, there you go, Joe. And, Thank and, you, appreciate and, that. And, and Joe is like a secret weapon because he, during spaces, sometimes I sound really smart, but it's just Joe via WhatsApp sending me things and I just say them. I've actually, if anyone listening to the space has been in my spaces, sometimes you see me giving a shout out to Joe. This is him because I would say something really smart, but that's because Joe DM'd it to me. So he does this in almost sp- every I space. Sp- I spam the hell out of Mario. No <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, Patrick, good to see you again. It's been a while before I got to Lindsay. Um, it's been a great discussion, hasn't it? Yeah, it's been quite good. Um, would love your thoughts on what was discussed. And, of course, the question that I was asking everyone is where you see uh, uh, China and Ukraine uh, – sorry, Taiwan and Ukraine in 10 years. Well, I, I tend to side with all sorts on this. There's a, there, especially where Taiwan is concerned, there are a hell of a lot of moving parts, and 10 years is a long time. But uh, I'll try to run down a couple of them. First, on the Nord Stream 2, th- 2 thing, just very, very briefly, I know you don't want to go down that rabbit hole again. You're going to tell me that the most risk-averse president in my lifetime, Joe Biden, the guy who's been on every every side of every issue in his entire career, who voted against, who was the only guy in the National Security Council to vote against the Bin Laden raid, who in his debut move as a senator in '74 voted against sending the South Vietnamese ammunition to fight against the communists, that guy is going to make the call to potentially destroy the NATO alliance. I, I'm sorry, on that basis alone, I'm not buying it. Um, no, so not destroying the Patrick, just to add on to it, but I'm just saying it couldn't you because you guys keep ignoring the possibility of doing it in conjunction with the NATO alliance. Is there a reason for that? No, if you do it, Germany didn't sign off on this. There's no way in hell they did. But what if no? But what if they did because uh, the U.S. gave them uh, a really good deal to kind of compensate for the uh, losses of of Russian supply? Because remember, Nord Stream Two was not operational, so if the U.S. gave them gas at a very at a heavily discounted rate. To make up for the explosion, then then they could sign no, up. We don't no? have a state production facility that would allow us to do that. I mean, no production facility is going to be able to undercut Nord Stream two to Germany without massive federal subsidies in order to allow them to do that, and that would have to go through Congress, and we haven't seen it. But doesn't it hurt Russia the same way it hurts Germany? Because Russia obviously is a bargaining chip; they own the pipeline, or Gazprom does, and it's a it's a potentially potential negotiating chip plus a great source of income for russia so why would russia blow it up and if it's not russia if it's not germany all the other players are sorry it's not russia it's not the u.s i don't think any other player would do it without um speaking to the u.s or speaking to russia in this case the u.s so belarus would speak to russia and nato countries or ukraine will speak to the u.s before doing it so who's left again i i again i don't know who did it 
but that is my problem with the notion that Joe Biden ordered this in particular. It would be, but but would you agree that it's also? But would you agree that it goes again, like it harms Russia to blow it up as well? Is that a fair statement? Sure, too? it harms Russia. It all. I mean, again, if this got out, first, I don't believe Olaf Scholz would ever go for it. He's been Ostpolitik to the hilt his entire career. He's somewhat Russophilic in and of himself. He was very reluctant to get drawn into this entire thing. I don't believe he would go for it. And if he, even if he did, the German people certainly would go for it. Uh, I mean, if you look at the polling, they are enraged at the very notion America might have done this. I I have big issues with it. On the 10-year thing, just so we don't get drawn too far down this. Um, it's I expect the, the war in Ukraine to last. I was just saying, Patrick, it's it's crazy. Before we go to 10-year thing, it's just crazy how like it's just such a difficult thing to solve everyone i speak to is just so undecided on it obviously there's some that have an opinion but it's just like a lot of us here uh are are just you know you're saying like you also and austin said it can't be the u.s but you don't say it's russia either because it's really hard everyone just it harms everyone there's no one that genuinely net benefits the u.s probably the most US uh, if they did it in conjunction they do but yeah but they, they but the, no but then there's the argument yeah but then there's the argument that obviously they all made okay it goes around the rabbit hole they argue they made that it does harm the nato line it's a false premise it's a false premise that all saying where they want you all to believe that everybody in nato are equal partners they're not equal partners u.s is in charge and then you have secondary partners and tertiary and lower partners but u.s is the whole show of u.n I mean, sorry, NATO. So it's against a false premise. Yeah, but we're not we're not talking about Turkey. We're talking about Germany. Yeah, but even Germany, it's US who are in charge, and then other partners, so UK and uh, others, are secondary, and then the rest are even beneath. Oh man, them. I wish we were in charge, NATO. Some people might actually meet their two percent defense spending requirements. <laughs> Wouldn't that be nice? I mean, you're yeah, in charge. So, so you remember, Germany. Look again. Germany is the fourth biggest economy. Uh, we're not talking about again. We're not talking about. Yeah, but they don't spend economy. all that much on their G. You know, all of their GDP on the military the way that America does. That's why they don't have a lot of weight to pull in NATO. Militarily, but economically, they do. I just again, oh, okay, sure, but they magic. can still be bullied, and this is the problem with Germany. Right? Germany have been bullied. Yeah, they're they being bullied all the time because they don't have any military and power. And they should be I mean, because they're failing to be Even before. now they were forced to give tanks while the United States are like, you know what, uh, we'll give it. We'll go, minute. we'll go. Exactly. Uh, Patrick, I'll let you go to the Smart. 10 Mario, year. Yeah, ten, back to the 10. Okay. On, on the 10-year thing. I, yeah, sorry, Patrick. No, it's, it's fine, Austin. I expect this war in Ukraine to last for the bulk of this year at a minimum. I, I am quite a bit more pessimistic than, than Austin and some of the other guys. I think this summer could be decisive. I'm not convinced that it will be. Uh, I'm not convinced that Ukraine is going to get the, the proper amount of men and material to make it decisive, especially if they're forced to conduct major counterattacks to stem this penetration around Bakhmut. Uh, and in the end, Russia is still in possession of a very large, if poorly led and poorly equipped army, and it seems to be willing to use it as long as it wants. I don't think uh, new rounds of conscription are out of the, are out of the question from Putin specifically, uh, even though that is a domestic danger to him. So I I am very, very wary of saying that this is going to end anytime soon. It may drag on it in next year. I don't know. It has that potential. A lot will depend on what happens on the battlefield. Um, on the Taiwan thing, I think, I, I'm, I'm not sure who said if it was all source or, or Austin or Austin or somebody, Taiwanese independence or, or any move toward that is something that would cause China to act rationally. They have a 
a genuine mania about the notion of a breakaway province. Um, so if that were to take, if that were to come about, I could see them acting militarily either in a blockade, more likely a blockade situation than a direct invasion. But there are other moving parts here. What does China's demography do in the next 10 years? What does their economy do? What does the U.S. economy do? I mean, do we continue piling debt upon debt until our you know, servicing of that debt equals the U.S. defense budget? That's on track to happen in the next five years if we're not careful. That's going to limit the U.S. response to anything China does, which could influence their thinking. Does South Korea, under President Yoon, go nuclear? which he's threatening to do and campaigned on that during his during his presidential run. Does Japan follow? Do they say, hey, Taiwan, you want to be free from China? Get in on this. Become a nuclear power. Does that happen? It's not out of the realm of possibility. Everyone's looking what just happened to Ukraine and realizing, yeah, if I live next to a really aggressive nuclear armed neighbor, the West may not come and save me. It doesn't matter what treaties I have. It doesn't matter what assurances they've given me. I may need to get nukes myself to keep myself safe. And that's, you know, that's going to be an ongoing issue. So I I think Asia will be a very unstable region potentially for the next decade and and perhaps beyond. Um, I think China at, at least will continue aggressively expanding their military capacity, aggressively expanding their footprint in the developing world. Um, their elite capture model for both the developing world and the developed world, and look at Canada for a recent example, uh, will continue to go as long as their economy will continue to support it because it pays them dividends without having to get into direct conflict with the West, which is something they absolutely love. Um, so th- that's kind of my thoughts on it. It's tough to give you know hard yes or no's on a lot of this stuff, but I, I think we're in for some problems. Mm. Now, it's impossible to give any definite yes or no's. Um, I'll go to Lindsay, then Emergent, and of course get our co-hosts, uh, Slayman, Ian, and all sorts to kind of sum it up. But uh, uh, Lindsay, yeah, I just think um, I think that I'm like in the same boat. I don't think that they're we're going to be attacking anybody. I think the attacking is happening kind of in a cat's paw kind of a way. Like most of these countries tend to use other countries, which makes sense. We do too, <laughs> um, and right now the 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 biggest issue is you know as joe said which is kind of funny i guess i thought everybody knew that too but um is that the semiconductor pieces come from there but the other thing is that russia nobody talks about how russia supplies palladium i think that's the other thing that people don't think about most pretty much like that whole part of the world is like this giant supply chain basket of of stuff that we need like raw materials and china has always been that entity that has provided the labor force and the manufacturing know-how to do that. Whereas the other countries have provided, you know, the mining and the minerals and then also cheap labor. But China's always been like the business side where, where Russia, Ukraine, uh, Afghanistan, they have like the brute force, right? They're the ones that handle their people, if you will. Like, and so you're dealing with this like really complex situation that I think, I think people limit it to like, it's just this one bad guy when it's not really like one bad guy, it's kind of like a group of people that work together in business and always have. And that there's middlemen that are kind of like losing their jobs and changing jobs and becoming more and more important in one job than they were in the last job. And that's really what's going on. And if you can put your foot on the neck of Ukraine at this point, that just makes those stronger guys a little bit stronger. 
and it makes people like America, believe it or not, actually make more money. And I know that it seems like that's a stretch, but it's not because when our corporations are buying material from China, it's like, it's like every time somebody says, Oh, we have such a big defense budget. It's like the defense budget goes to China guys. Like they don't have, they don't write it down. They don't say like, Hey, we're spending all this money on defense because they don't have to, because you're giving them the money right on top of that. They don't publish like what all they spend but the, because they don't have to. You're saying the U.S. military spending goes to China because oh yeah, hundred percent military. So, hundred percent, yeah, because they make all of our stuff and all, and they also sell us. But all not military, materials. but not military oh, equipment. No, absolutely, hundred percent. Yeah, Boeing, Boeing, Raytheon, all those companies are like again, they're hedges, Mario. They they purchase the merchandise from China, so we don't have to think about the fact that we're dealing with China. And the optics of Congress doesn't get mad that we're dealing with China. So we give a check to Raytheon and Boeing. Why? Because we get 50% of it back at the end of the year in taxes. Like it's all, <laughs> you know, it's all a it's all a money game. You see, there's what margins. A web. What a web. So I know Vinci uh, says Russia this all the time. Xenon, I, which is also, uh, you know. All source, you're wrong. Xenon, all source, you're wrong. And, even and our, even one of China. our fighters, they found Chinese aluminum in it. And they weren't supposed to have even had it in it. Like, you and, don't they, and they ceased and they grounded the entire F 30. It was the F 35. They yep, grounded the entire F 35 fleet. They pulled that out. No, they didn't. No, they didn't. Sure they can't. They, they can't because there isn't yes, any more can. aluminum it's, anywhere, honey. Yes, like, where's the yes, aluminum? Yes, I'm sorry. Tell I me actually, the top three no, places where aluminum called, comes from. Tell me. Lindsay, Tell it's me called right export now. compliance. Lindsay, it's called export compliance. Right. It's but where do you get compliance. aluminum from if it's not from those places? The U.S. All that comes people. I know. I know people are going to be shocked by this. I know people are going to be very shocked by this. But the U.S. actually produces aluminum for defense purposes as well. Yeah, but it doesn't. And all our defense. It it's doesn't. The U.S. produces, Lindsay, it's called export compliance. When they found the F-35s that they had components from China, because look, the F-35, look, people forget, is a multinational, it was a runs Boeing sourcing department, oh. okay? My business partner is the is this is the senator of Xi'an in China. Okay, I'm telling you right That's now. That's great. Like then this optics, recording will be optics. a criminal so, investigation. I'm just saying. Why would it be, be a criminal, criminal investigation? investigation? Why? So hold why? on, I'm just looking at so top ten. So I'm just looking at. I'm just looking top ten. I just look at BizVibe top ten largest aluminum producing countries in 2020. Um, so China's at 30 in 2019, thousand tons. China's at thirty six thousand. Then India's at three thousand seven hundred. Russia's at thirty six hundred. Canada two twenty nine hundred. UAE twenty seven hundred. Australia sixteen hundred. US is at eleven hundred. Norway thirteen and Iceland. Yeah, China makes the most of it. Uh, yes, it's um, it's ten times it's, more it's, than India. But it's not even just that. It's not even just the the raw materials. It's like it's like the the refining. Oh, why would they? It's but the why would they ground it? But it's but if they. But if they. Everything. But if it's but if it's allowed from China, why would they ground it in the first place? And why would it be officially not allowed? It's optics, and they didn't ground it forever. They they're still flying because they can't get it anywhere else. Yeah, the the export compliance thing is is only temporary. They they you know they're not going to keep it on the ground. Maybe emergent emergent. Do you do you can you shed some light on the disagreement there between uh, Lindsay Olsos and Ian on the aluminum supply? Or no idea. So I'm I don't uh, I'm just I'm kind of looking at the same resources you are on the raw material supply. I'll just say from my point of view and my time around defense contracting, 
I'd be more apt to believe that the raw materials are being bought than, than end finished components. But there's also the possibility that you might have a, in, it gets very complex in engineering where you have a subcomponent. Some, some components have 30 contractors and subcontractors, maybe not quite that many, but many contractors and subcontractors that make a subcomponent or a COTS component that goes into something larger. So I don't think it's implausible raw materials, but as far as final assemblies, I'd find that a little bit less likely, but so you know, I, I'm, I've I'm, got I'm, I've got I've got some more metrics. So WorldPopulationReview.com, U.S. aluminum imports by country uh, in 2023, uh, Canada's number one at 8.2 billion, and then China's not, not second at less than half at you 3 know, billion. Even if all the embargoes, yeah, you know, I just want to say, even if all the embargoes that America has right now to sanctions, not the embargoes, the sanctions that America has on Russia. It's still importing xenon, you know, like. <laughs> yeah, so, but wanna, I think. You uh, want to the, the... oil and stuff, but then you're still getting their stuff. You either do it to Turkey or you do it directly. In the case of xenon, you get it directly. And a lot so of I think, these, uh... Uh, semiconductor companies like Intel, for example, they're stockpiling all these Russian materials because they, they, they realize that, okay, this is not going to last forever. You know, the Biden administration might step it up and start sanctioning even more. So they're buying this stuff up by the bulk, right? But it's it's happening. But it's uh, not a so, bad thing. It's not a bad thing. To yeah, the economies. To I think the more the more interconnected economies are, thing, it's, yeah. like, it's, sanctions it's a better are fucking thing, yeah. stupid. Sanctions it's, only hurt the little guy because like, the big guys, the, the countries, they don't they don't hurt. Like Russia isn't hurting from this at all. Like if anyone's hurting, it's the people who are dependent on Russia and America. I wouldn't. I wouldn't say. Other. I wouldn't say yeah, Russia would, is hurting I would at all. Disagree with Long that. Long term. I mean, why, why is the right, Russian economy tough. contracted in in the past year? I mean, not only not only I think the economy contracted the past. Hold on, yeah, yeah, no, no, it's more. Is the difference between sanctions and an embargo? Sanctions are typically industry specific or good specific, right? Whereas an embargo is is typically a total ban on goods, which is right, why yeah, I'm yeah. glad Ian Ian but kind of corrected himself on that sanctions. because there's because not currently like the an embargo on the going planet. on against Russia. It's sanctions. These are capitalists. Yeah, and also. Like communist countries, they don't care about sanctions. Like, are you kidding me? Okay, like, uh, people people might say Elon Musk is the richest man in the and world, the, but you know, honestly, he's not. It's the people in power. They're more powerful than he is. Like, you don't need currency and hard cash to say, hey, I'm the richest guy. No. Like, right now, Putin is the most powerful person on the planet because of this. So, this idea that you're somehow bankrupting him when, in right. fact, you're making him richer and richer by sanctioning his 100%. stuff and making his stuff more expensive oh, okay. than you need. It's like, okay, you're just giving him power. This is so stupid. You're I just think that the, the impact... Like right, so, it's brilliant. It's so, brilliant. Just, 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 going, just going back to the uh, point, I, I want to go back to emergent, but... Oh, why is muted, everyone? Okay. Um, yeah, just going back to the point, but in terms of sanctions or, or embargoes, whatever, embargoes is a whole different level, but let's talk about sanctions. Uh, the sanctions, the, the impact is usually long term. Like, you know, it, 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 some people are arguing there's a brain drain happening in Russia uh, that has long term effects. Um, Russia's also the ban. It is, it is. It's happening right now. Yeah, it, oh, the, the brain drain there is. I think a lot of a lot of uh, entrepreneurs and companies moved out of Russia. Uh, could they come yeah, back? But they guess could what? be. China has moved could. in. China has moved in to fill in the vacuum. This idea that or Russia's Chinese uh, economy... entrepreneurs. 
Yes. Chinese entrepreneurs moving into Russia. I haven't Absolutely. seen any. Absolutely. But anyway, so so, so another. Gap. Like we've been talking about like Adidas moving out, right? Adidas moved out of Russia, and everybody thought, oh, this is going to collapse the Russian fashion industry. But that's not no. a brain drain. That's, that's not. A, but that's nothing. To, that has nothing to do with the brain drain. I'm talking about entrepreneurs and, and moved economics. Out, right? Mercedes Benz. They closed Again, down the that's factory. not a. But that's not you a. Know, but that's not a brain drain. The Russians are buying their stuff. Like, but that's, but that's not a. Yeah, but that's not a brain drain. So, like, I'm talking about academics and entrepreneurs and startups um, and funding. But just I'm, I'm, again, it could, I'm not saying it's gonna continue that way. Funding are coming from, from the economy. Asia. Like, this is not it's uh, not that big a deal. Like, the West has has overplayed its hand. It thought, oh, you know, no, I'm just saying, brain, you know, we're, we're going away. Right, so and I, I, and, and well, guess, I, I, you know, China and Saudi Arabia moving in. It's like, eh, you know, there's a market for it. Yeah, so just to, to the other point that was being made is um, Russia not having access with the sanctions, not having access to a lot of um, advanced equipment. So they've, they've kind of, just so you know, the, the, uh, the both European and Russian economies have been more resilient than analysts expected, predicted, especially Russia. Um, but um, to just go back to the to the long-term effects that we just, we're just we just predicting, um, is that uh, Russia is now having to depend, like if you have a, a certain part in your car that you can't import anymore, you could use it or in your tractor or machinery, you could use a, a Russian-made or Belarus Belarusian-made alternative that is going to do the job but it's not going to be as efficient, and then less efficiency means, uh, you know, long-term well, economic a, damage. The the but Chinese these are these. Are, are, they, the Chinese have cloned every single piece of American technology. When it, when it comes to John Deere tractors, for example, the Chinese have completely cloned it, and they're supplying this stuff to Russia. And furthermore, their tractors are better than the John Deeres because they don't have copyright protection on them. There's no DRM. If you want to patch them up, you can fix it yourself. Whereas at John Deere, you're going to, have to buy a license, and that license costs a lot of money for small farmers. They can't afford it. This is the issue with John Deere, and this is the issue with patent and, and copyright issues in America, where you know all these other you know developing nations in particular, they're going to turn to Chinese alternatives or even Russian alternatives will make them there, uh, and, and those will be basically very, very cheap for the same stuff that is even better that you can even fix yourself. So, you know, if I was a developing nation, say I was, say, you know, North Africa or something like that, or, or somewhere in East Asia, I would be buying a Chinese tractor. I'd be buying a, a Russian mm. tractor uh, instead of an American one, because I don't want to have to pay millions of dollars in licensing fees. Okay. Uh, Merchant, I know you had the mic, so I'd love you to continue making your points and then go to, to the question that everyone else answered except Slayman, who's left, on uh, where you see Ukraine and Taiwan in 10 years. Sure. Just a couple things. Uh, number one, I agree with Ian. I think there's a lot of um, – I think there are a lot of U.S. companies that have gotten to a point where where there are some ridiculous things. Uh, you know, The example he mentioned with John Deere – um, you know, we've probably all seen the documentaries on the, the broken McDonald's ice cream machines. I think some of that is, is getting really ridiculous and is, is getting ready to bite a lot of, uh, U.S. companies in the ass. Um, what's so, the, what's uh, the broken, what's the broken ice cream machines emergent? Oh, <laughs> well, that's a whole rabbit hole, but short, shortest version is, um, McDonald's, they make the ice cream machines. Uh, they have a, they have a manufacturer's lockout and you can't get into the machine without a code. You can't read out the temperature. You can't get the data from it. And it's basically an agreement they have with, uh, Taylor, the manufacturer of the machine so that they, and then the, the franchisee that owns a restaurant has to pay them like $2,500 to come out and push a few buttons and unlock the machine and fix it. It's like, it, you know. It's it's pretty bad. 
I'd, I'd probably direct you to uh, Johnny Harris has a pretty good documentary on YouTube on, on that. There was actually a company called Pitch that made a small unit that connects to a smartphone that bypasses the lockout, lets you gets you past the, the manufacturer's codes, lets them read the temperature and do all the functions. And there's a huge lawsuit between McDonald's and Taylor and Pitch. And it's like a whole it's like a whole scandal. So. Uh, yes, yeah, so I'll let you, I don't want to go down more rabbit holes. If you could send me, but I'd be very grateful if you could send me through the documentary, it'd be, be great. Uh, but oh, yeah, I'll sure let thing. you, uh, I'll let you continue. Okay. So one thing I just wanted to respond to, uh, you know, um, just a quick follow up point. Uh, like we, we were talking about the U.S. defense industry. I mean, I think another thing about it that I think is important to factor in, like I said, I think the final assembly of components is much more likely to occur in the U.S. and that's an intentional, political design of of the military industrial complex you know programs like the f-35 uh and certain others if you really dig into it and again there's some good documentaries i could i could direct you to they're intentionally spread across many 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 congressional districts is that because they have to be made in 20 30 40 different places no the answer is they want a majority of congressmen and senators who are in key voting positions for those programs to have an incentive because one of the biggest, easiest ways to either lose or win an election is is you either created or lost jobs in your district. So it kind of gives those those uh, congressmen and senators uh, a strong incentive to vote in favor of that program because it's protecting jobs in their district. So, again, a lot of those things, final assembly of those uh, components is intentionally in the U.S. in most cases, and it's intentionally spread across congressional districts for for that reason. But that that's a whole that's a whole other rabbit hole. Um, but my take on um, Ukraine and Taiwan, I think Ukraine is going to go on for a while yet. Maybe maybe this year, maybe next year. I think you will eventually see a negotiated peace there. Uh, Possibly, uh, you know, prompted by, you know, depending on how it plays out and, and who starts to gain ground and how much Russia is willing to throw at the problem. Uh, I think you'll, you'll probably see a negotiated piece there. And I think the Taiwan scenario is very unlikely to play out in, in any kind of military conflict. I think it's mostly just posturing, like I said before. Um, but I think uh, I think as we've kind of seen from the the FBI, the cybersecurity documents, and all of that, I think uh, the the focus of of the U.S. government and the intel community is going to start to shift to domestic affairs. I think they don't really, you know, we've we've talked about this on many many of the spaces. So uh, I think their their new uh, their new public enemy number one is going to be Mario and uh, the Twitter spaces. And I can't unmute. Timing not to be able to unmute. Uh, yeah, I, 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 I would not like to take that title. Keep me out of uh, all the dramas and shit. I value my life and my, <laughs> my peace of mind too much. So I love China. I love Russia. I love Ukraine. I love Taiwan. I love anyone <laughs> that has that level of power. Just leave me alone. Mario, do you know um, why DJI has so much power in the commercial drone space? What? Hawaii. Do you know why DJI has so much? Yeah, power I had, I had, the, I had the question. I just, uh, as well just as the enterprise space, right? 
It's because they're open source, more or less, right? You, you have software development kits that you can download for basically free, and you can make your own programs with it. American companies do not do stuff like this. The Chinese realized very early on that making stuff open source makes it very easy to engage and very easy to adopt, right? So let's say you're a farmer, and you have a small operation. You want to you know, fly some drones over. Uh, the last thing you want to do is have to pay licensing fees. So guess what? They'll buy a DJI drone. It's cheap and it's easy to edit. You know, you can download software for it that people make for it and that can, you know, you can hire a software developer to tailor make something to your specifications. This is what DJI offers. And right now, that's the reason why Russia is using extensively, right? The Wagner group in particular, right? The, uh, they're using DJI drones pretty much exclusively because they're able to tailor it using their own software to use on a battlefield. This is what we're talking about here. I mean, America has basically shot itself in the foot by making everything closed source. You know, who the hell wants to pay uh, millions of dollars in licensing fees for software that sucks when you can just make it for yourself? You know, you can hire an engineer, a software engineer, and do it yourself and do it with a DJI drone, which is all open. So that's the reason why. You know, this is an advantage that not a lot of people are talking about. Slayman, uh, you're the last man that has not spoken. Would love your thoughts on what was discussed so far, and uh, the answer to the question that we've um, that everyone else has yeah. answered. Yeah, of course. I'll, I'll just answer the question that you you asked because um, it's getting late and we don't want to start another two minutes. Yeah, in two minutes. By the way, in two minutes we'll hit the the five hour mark. I didn't expect the space to last that long. It's a, it's a beautiful, beautiful discussion. Really enjoyed it. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I'm looking forward to the Nord Stream one as well. Now, uh, yeah, what, where, where do I expect things to go? So I think when it comes to the Russian, Russia and Ukraine, I, I don't think it's going to last long, probably like everyone's saying, six months to a year. I think with the Ukraine struggling with ammunition, struggling with manpower, um, think, uh, struggling in a lot, number of areas, I think things are not looking as rosy. So I think that conflict will probably end and with the annexed and separated regions either becoming part of Russia or becoming independent, um, depending on which one is oh, it. Oh, they already when, signed on board of Russia. They're part of Russia now. Sorry? They're already part of Russia. They they did the um, uh, they did the votes and stuff. Oh, yeah, cool. Yeah, so yeah, I think that... Uh, sorry, what I meant, Ian, was in the small possibility that part of the agreement is that they do a re-election. Uh, so, but yeah, they did probably vote Russia in that regard. So I agree with you there. And then, uh, in terms of uh, China and uh, Taiwan, I don't think anything's going to happen. I think it's just posturing, as everyone has said. I like that no one, no one believes that. Um, is there anyone in the audience? Can you can you tell me in the comments? I want to go look at the comments live now. Is there anyone in the audience that believes that there's a high likelihood, or on stage, that there's a high likelihood in the next ten years, China and Taiwan? Uh, China and the U.S. Um, I think it, we're trying to think war. of it as unthinkable, right? I mean, we're being optimistic here. We're being optimistic. Uh, we don't optimistic really or realist? Uh, realist, like uh, no, but I think it's also, oh, it's also like, realistic. It's, Absolutely. Yeah, I, mean, yeah. I, I don't. I don't just mean to say that. Oh, we're all you know positive thinkers here. Realistically, it doesn't look like that would happen because of the cost it would you know take for for China to invade uh, Taiwan successfully. Right. Even in the event that America or whoever else, you know, South Korea, Japan, do not help Taiwan, you know, it's still going to be an enormous task for them to do that. It's not like invading Ukraine where it's, you know, you have you're bordering it by three sides. Here it's like, OK, it's it's a Navy. It has to be an amphibious attack, but also it's to be an aerial attack. And it's like, you know, good luck with that. It's hard. Yeah, um, I think that's it. Any any final words, anyone, before I wrap up the space? I think we're all dead. 
Um, it was a great discussion. I really enjoyed this one. I slept one hours, one hours. <laughs> I slept one. I slept one hour last night because I got woken up for the Twitter files. Came out of nowhere. So I thought I'd be dead for this one. I was telling the co-hosts Justin and then later also some of my guys I, I might fall asleep. But I'm full of energy. That was probably my favorite space today. We've had incredible spaces, Elon and everything else, Mark and Reese and FTX. This one beats all of them. Uh, these are the discussions I like. I'm really passionate about this. Um, and I think the next one, the next place we should do would be, uh, um, uh, I'm talking about political space. I think Nord Stream discussion is something that I've been planning to, to do for a while. Um, and then maybe do a new Ukraine-Russia space. Um, I don't think there's anything else that matters more than Ukraine, Russia, and, and China, Taiwan. But otherwise, yeah, really enjoyed it. Thank you so much for anyone that survived five hours. All source, uh, Austin uh, and Slayman, you, you three were there since the since the beginning of the space. Actually, not you, Austin. Slayman and All source. So uh, respect there. And thanks for all the other panelists that came through over the last five hours. Uh, I'll see you tomorrow. We're going to start a daily uh, breakdown of news and current events. So we're going to start doing daily spaces, uh, most likely as of tomorrow. Um, probably get them to be short unless it's important news. Um, yeah, that was a great discussion. Thank you very much, everyone, and uh, have a wonderful, uh, wonderful evening. Good night, everyone.